Chapter 1 of the Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Roth. Chapter 1. Of the reason why this book was written, and of several sorts of cats which are not strictly zoological. One day, ever so long ago, it struck me that I should like to try and write a book about cats. I mentioned the idea to some of my friends. The first burst out laughing at the end of my opening sentence, so I refrained from entering into further detail. The second said there were a hundred books about cats already. The third said nobody would read it, and added, besides, what do you know of the subject? And before I had time to begin to tell him, said he expected it was very little. Why not dogs? asked one friend of mine, hitting upon the notion as though by inspiration. Or horses, said someone else, or pigs, or, look here, this is the finest notion of all, the book of donkeys by one of the family. Somewhat disheartened by the reception my little project had met with, I gave up the idea for a while and went to work upon other things. I cannot exactly remember what I did, or how much, but my book about cats was postponed sine die and in the meantime, I made some inquiries. I searched high and low. I consulted Lady Cuss's little volume. I bought Mr. Beaton's book. I read up Buffon and Bell and Frank Buckland. I eagerly perused the amusing pages of the Reverend Mr. Wood. I looked through two or three hundred works of one sort and another, and as many old newspapers and odd numbers of defunct periodicals, and although I dare say I have overlooked some of the very best, I have really taken a great deal of trouble, and sincerely hope that I shall be able to amuse you by my version of what other people have had to tell, with a good many things which have not yet appeared in print, that I have to tell myself. One thing I found out very early in my researches, and that was that nine out of ten among my authorities were prejudiced against the animal about which they wrote, and furthermore, that they knew very little indeed upon the subject. Take, for instance, our old friend Mavor, who thus misteaches the young idea in his celebrated spelling book. Cats, says Mr. Mavor, have less sense than dogs, and their attachment is chiefly to the house, but the dog's is to the persons who inhabit it. Need I tell the reader who has thought it worth his while to learn anything of the cat's nature, that Mr. Mavor's was a vulgar and erroneous belief? that there are countless instances on record where cats have shown the most devoted and enduring attachment to those who have kindly treated them. Again, nothing can be more unjust than to call cats cruel. If such a word as cruel could be applied to a creature without reason, few animals could be found more cruel than a robin redbreast, which we have all determined to make a pet of since somebody wrote that pretty fable about the babes in the wood. And apropos of the robin, do you remember Canning's verses? Tell me, tell me, gentle Robin, what is it sets thy heart as Robin? Is it that Grimalkin fell, hath killed thy father or thy mother, thy sister or thy brother or any other? Tell me but that, and I'll kill the cat. But stay, little Robin, did you ever spare, like Robin the ground or a fly in the air? No, that you never did, I'll swear. So I won't kill the cat, that's flat. But all the cruel and unjust things that have been said about poor pussy I will tell you in another chapter. I mean to try and begin at the beginning. In the first place, what is the meaning of the word cat? 
let us look in the dictionary. A cat, according to Dr. Johnson, is a domestic animal that catches mice. But the word has one or two other meanings, for instance. In thieves' slang, the word cat signifies a lady's muff, and to free a cat, to steal a muff. Among soldiers and sailors, a cat means something very unpleasant indeed, with nine tingling lashes or tails so-called from the scratches they leave on the skin, like the claws of a cat. A cat is also the name for a tackle or combination of pulleys to suspend the anchor at the cat's head of a ship. Cat harping is the name for a purchase of ropes employed to brace in the shrouds of the lower mast behind their yards. The catful is the name of a rope employed upon the cat head. Two little holes astern above the gun room ports are called cat holes. A cat's paw is a particular turn in the bite of a rope made to hook a tackle in, and the light air perceived in a calm by a rippling on the surface of the water is known by the same name. A kind of double tripod with six feet intended to hold a plate before the fire and so constructed that in whatever position it is placed, three of the legs rest on the ground is called a cat, from the belief that however a cat may be thrown, she always falls on her feet. Cat salt is a name given by our salt workers to a very beautifully granulated kind of common salt. Cat's eye, or sunstone, of the Turks is a kind of gem found chiefly in Siberia. It is very hard and semi-transparent, and has different points from whence the light is reflected with a kind of yellowish radiation somewhat similar to the eyes of cats. Catkins are imperfect flowers hanging from trees in the manner of a rope or cat's tail. Cat's meat, cat thyme, and cat's foot are the names of herbs. Cat's head of an apple, and also of a kind of fossil. Cat silver is a fossil. Cat's tail is a seed or a long round substance growing on a nut tree. A catfish is a shark in the West Indies. Guanahani, or Cat Island, a small island of the Bahama group in the West Indies, is supposed to be so called because wild cats of large size used to infest it. But I can find no particulars upon the subjects in the works of writers on the West Indies. In the north of England, a common expression of contempt is to call a person catface. Artists call portraits containing two-thirds of a figure cat-size. With little boys in the street, a cat is a dreadfully objectionable plaything, roughly cut out of a stick or piece of wood and sharpened at each end. Those whose way to business lies through low neighborhoods and who venture upon shortcuts well know from bitter experience that at a certain period of the year the tip-cat season sets in with awful severity, and then it is not safe for such as have eyes to lose to wonder where the epidemic rages. In the north, however, the same game is called piggy. I learned by the newspaper that a young woman at Leeds nearly lost her eyesight by a blow from one of these piggies or cats, and the magistrates sent the boy who was the cause of it to an industrial school, ordering his father to pay half a crown a week for its maintenance. The shrill whistle indulged in upon the first night of a pantomime by those young gentlemen with the figure six curls in the front row of the gallery are denominated catcalls. This is, I am given to understand, a difficult art to acquire. I know I have tried very hard myself and can't. And to arrive at perfection you must lose a front tooth. Such a thing has been known before this as a young costermonger having one of his front teeth pulled out to enable him to whistle well. 
let us hope that his talent was properly appreciated in the circles in which he moved. With respect to catcalls or catcalls, also termed catpipes, it would appear that there was an instrument by that name used by the audiences at the theater, the noise of which was very different to that made of whistling through the fingers, as now practiced. In the Covent Garden Journal for 1810, the O.P. riots are thus spoken of. Mr. Kemble made his appearance in the costume of Macbeth, and amid volleys of hissing, hooting, groans, and catcalls, seemed as though he meant to speak a sterile and pointless address announced for the occasion. In Book Third, Chapter Six of Joseph Andrews, occurs this passage. You would have seen cities in embroidery transplanted from the boxes to the pit, whose ancient inhabitants were exalted to the galleries where they played upon catcalls. In Lloyd's Law Student, we find, By law let others strive to gain renown. Florio's a gentleman, a man of the town. He nor courts clients or the law regarding, hurries from Nando's down to Covent Garden. Zeith's a scholar, mark him in the pit, with critic catcall sound the stops of wit. In Chetwood's History of the Stage, published in 1741, there is a story of a sea officer who was much plagued by a couple of sparks prepared with their offensive instruments vulgarly termed catcalls, and described how the squeak was stopped in the middle by a blow from the officer, which he gave with so strong a will that his child's trumpet was struck through his cheek. The catcall used at theaters in former times was a small circular whistle, composed of two plates of tin of about the size of a half penny, perforated by a hole in the center and connected by a band or border of the same metal about one-eighth of an inch thick. The instrument was readily concealed within the mouth, and the perpetrator of the noise could not be detected. There used to be a public house of some notoriety at the corner of Downing Street, next to King Street, called the Cat and Bagpipes. It was also a chop house used by many persons connected with the public offices in the neighborhood. George Rose, so well known in after life as the friend of Pitt, clerk of the Parliament, secretary of the Treasury, etc., an executor of the Earl of Marchmont, but then a bashful young man, was one of the frequenters of this tavern. Madame Catalini is thus alluded to with disrespectful abbreviation of her name in the new song in Covent Garden Theatre, printed and sold by J. Pitts, number 14, Great St. Andrew Street, Seven Dials. This noble building, to be sure, has beauty without bounds, it costs upwards of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds, save Madame Catalini there to open her white throat. But to hear your foreign singers I would not give a groat, so haste away unto the play whose name has reached the skies, and when the caddy opes her mouth, oh, how she'll catch the flies. It was once upon a time the trick of a countryman to bring a cat to market in a bag, and substitute it for a sucking pig in another bag, which he sold to the unwary when he got the chance. If the trick was discovered prematurely, it was called letting the cat out of the bag. If not, he that made the bad bargain was said to have bought a pig in a poke. To turn the cat in the pan, according to Bacon, is when that which a man says to another, he says it as if another had said it to him. There is a kind of ship, too, called the cat, a vessel formed on the Norwegian model of about 600 tons burden. That was the sort of cat that brought the great Dick Whittington of turn-again memory his fortune. 
Do you remember how sorry you were to find out the truth? Do you recollect what a pang it cost you when you first heard that Robinson Crusoe was not true? I shall never forget how vexed and disappointed I was at hearing that Dick Turpin never did ride to York on his famous mare Black Bess, and that no such person as William Tell ever existed, and that that beautiful story about the apple was only a beautiful story after all. End of chapter one. Chapter Two of the Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter Two of Some Wicked Stories That Have Been Told About Cats. I do not love a cat, says a popular author often quoted. His disposition is mean and suspicious. A friendship of years is cancelled in a moment by an accidental tread on the tail. He spits, twirls his tail of malignity, and shuns you, turning back as he goes off a staring vindictive face full of horrid oaths and unforgiveness, seeming to say, Perdition catch you, I hate you forever. But the dog is my delight. Tread on his tail, he expresses for a moment the uneasiness of his feelings, but in a moment the complaint is ended. He runs around you, jumps up against you, seems to declare his sorrow for complaining, as it was not intentionally done, nay, to make himself the aggressor, and begs, by whinings and lickings, that the master will think of it no more. No sentiments could be more popular with some gentlemen. In the same way there are those who would like to beat their wives, and for them to come and kiss the hand and struck them in all humility. It is not only when hurt by accident that the dog comes whining round its master. The lashed hound crawls back and licks the butt that kicked him, and so makes friends again. Pussy will not do that, though. If you want to be friendly with a cat on Tuesday, you must not kick him on Monday. You must not fondle him one moment and ill-treat him the next, or he will be shy of your advances. This really human way of behaving makes pussy unpopular. I am afraid that if it were to occur to one of our legislators to tax the cats, the feline slaughter would be fearful. Everyone is fond of dogs, and yet Mr. Edmund Yates, traveling by water to Greenwich last June, said that the journey was pleasingly diversified by practical and nasal demonstrations of the efficient working of the dog tax. No fewer than 292 bodies of departed canines in various stages of decomposition were floating off Greenwich during the space of seven days in the previous month, 78 of which were found jammed in the chains and landing stages of the Dreadnought hospital ship, thereby enhancing the salubrity of that celebrated hothouse for sick seamen. And I cannot venture to repeat the incredible stories of the numbers said to have been taken from the Regent's Canal. There are some persons who profess to have a great repugnance to cats. King Henry III of France, a poor, weak, dissipated creature, was one of these. According to Conrad Gesner, men have been known to lose their strength, perspire violently, and even faint at the sight of a cat. Others are said to have gone even further than this, for some have fainted at a cat's picture, or when they have been in a room where such a picture was concealed, or when the picture was as far off as the next room. It was supposed that this sensitiveness might be cured by medicine. Let us hope that these gentlemen were all properly physiqued. I myself, 
have often heard men express similar sentiments of aversion to the feline race and sometimes young ladies have done so in my hearing in both cases i have little doubt but that the weakness is easily overcome as for a hidden and unheard cat's presence affecting a person's nerves i beg to state my conviction that such a story is utterly ridiculous and i was vastly entertained by the following narrative written by a lady for a magazine for boys and given as a truth such a valuable fact in natural history should not be allowed to perish she calls it a tale of my grandmother my maternal grandmother had so strong an aversion to cats that it seemed to endow her with an additional sense you may perhaps have heard people use the phrase that they were frightened out of their seven senses without troubling yourselves to wonder how they came to have more than five but the druids of old used to include sympathy and antipathy in the number a belief which has no doubt left its trace in the above popular and otherwise unmeaning expression and this extra sense of antipathy my grandmother certainly exhibited as regarding cats when she was a young and pretty little bride dinner parties and routs as is usual in such occasions were given in her honour in those days now about eighty years ago people usually dined early in the afternoon and you may imagine somewhere in yorkshire a large company assembled for a grand dinner by daylight with all due decorum and old-fashioned stately politeness the ladies in rustling silks stately hoops and nodding plumes are led to their seats by their respective cavaliers in bright coloured coats with large gilt buttons with dignified bows and profound curtsies they take their places the bride of course at her host's right hand the bustle subsides the servants remove the covers the carving knives are brandished by experienced hands and the host having made the first incision in a goodly sirloin or haunch turns to inquire how his fair guest wishes to be helped to his surprise he beholds her pretty face flushed and uneasy while she lifts the snowy damask and looks beneath the table what's the matter my dear madam have you lost something no sir nothing thank you it's the cat replied the timid bride with a slight shudder as she pronounced the word the cat echoed the gentleman with a puzzled smile but my dear mrs h we have no cat indeed that is very odd for there is certainly a cat in the room did you see it then no sir no i did not see it but i know it is in the room do you fancy you heard one then no sir what is the matter my dear now inquires the lady of the house from the end of the long table the dinner will be quite cold while you are talking to your fair neighbour so busily mrs h says there is a cat in the room my love but we have no cat have we no certainly replied the lady tartly do carve the haunch mr Blank. the footman held the plate nearer a due portion of the savoury meat was placed upon it to mrs h said the host and turned to look again at his fair neighbour but her uneasiness and confusion were greater than ever her brow was crimson every eye was turned towards her and she looked ready to cry i will leave the room if you allow me sir for i know that there is a cat in the room but my dear madam i'm quite sure there is sir i feel it i would rather go john thomas joseph can there be a cat in the room demanded the embarrassed host of the servants quite impossible sir i have not seen such a animal about the place since i come to anyway 
Well, look under the table at any rate. The lady says she feels it. Look in every corner of the room and let us try to convince her. My dear, my dear, remonstrated the annoyed bridegroom from a distant part of the table. What trouble you are giving. Indeed, I would rather leave the room, said the little bride, slipping from her chair. But, meanwhile, the servants ostentatiously bustled in their unwilling search for what they believed to be a phantom fancy of the young lady's brain, when, lo, one of the footmen took hold of a half-closed window-shutter, and from that aperture behind out sprang a large cat into the midst of the astonished circle, eliciting cries and exclamations from others than the finely organized bride, who clasped her hands rigidly and gasped with pallid lips. Such facts as this are curious, certainly, and remain a puzzle to philosophers. This habit of hiding itself in secret places is one of the most unpleasant characteristics of a cat. I know many instances of it, especially of a night alarm when we were children, ending in a strange cat being found in a clothes bag. Here, indeed, we have truth several degrees stranger than fiction, but this is not the only wonderful story the authoress has to tell. I will give you some others, very slightly abridged. A year or two ago, a man in the south of Ireland severely chastised his cat for some misdemeanor, immediately after which the animal stole away and was seen no more. A few days subsequently, as this man was starting to go from home, the cat met and stood before him in a narrow path, with rather a wicked aspect. Its owner slashed his handkerchief at her to frighten her out of the way, but the cat, undismayed, sprang at the hand and held it with so ferocious a gripe that it was impossible to make it open its jaws, and the creature's body had actually to be cut from the head, and the jaws afterwards to be severed, before the mangled hand could be extricated. The man died from the injuries. The jaws of a cat are comparatively strong, and worked by powerful muscles. It has thirty-four teeth, but they are for the most part very tiny teeth, like pin's points. What, I wonder, were the dimensions of this ferocious animal with the iron jaws, and how many courageous souls were engaged in its destruction? If this story is, however, rather hard to swallow, the next is not less so, says our authoress. I also know an Irish gentleman, who being an only son without any playmates, was allowed, when he was a child, to have a whole family of cats sleeping in the bed with him every night. One day he had beaten the father of the family for some offense, and when he was asleep at night, the revengeful beast seized him by the throat, and would probably have killed him had not instant help been at hand. The cat sprang from the window, and was never more seen, probably went away in a flash of blue fire. What do you think of these very strange stories? If they surprise you, however, what will you say to this one? Dr. C., an Italian gentleman still living in Florence, the initial is just a little unsatisfactory, who knew at least one of the parties, related to the authoress the following singular story. A certain country priest in Tuscany, who lived quite alone with his servants, naturally attached himself, in the want of better society, to a fine he-cat, which sat by his stove in winter, and always ate from his plate. One day, a brother priest was the good man's guest, and in the rare enjoyment of genial conversation, the cat was neglected. Resenting this, he attempted to help himself from his master's plate, instead of waiting for the special morsels which were usually placed on the margin for his use, and was requited with a sharp rap on the head for the liberty. 
this excited the animal's indignation still more and springing from the table with an angry cry he darted to the other side of the room the two priests thought no more of the cat until the cloth was about to be removed when the master of the house prepared a plateful of scraps for his forward favorite and called him by name to come and enjoy his share of the feast no joyful cat obeyed the familiar call his master observed him looking sulkily from the recess of the window and rose holding out the plate and calling to him in a caressing voice as he did not approach however the old gentleman put the platter aside saying he might please himself and sulk instead of dine if he preferred it and then resumed his conversation with his friend a little later the old gentleman showed symptoms of drowsiness so his visitor begged that he would not be in ceremony with him but lie down and take the nap which he knew he was accustomed to indulge in after dinner and he in the meantime would stroll in the garden for an hour this was agreed to the host stretched himself on a couch and threw his handkerchief over his face to protect him from the summer flies while the guest stepped through a french window which opened on a terrace and shrubbery an hour or somewhat more had passed when he returned and found his friend still recumbent he did not at first think of disturbing him but after a few minutes considering that he had slept very long he looked more observantly towards the couch and was struck by the perfect immobility of the figure and with something peculiar in the position of the head over which the handkerchief lay disordered approaching nearer he saw that it was stained with blood and hastily removing it saw to his unutterable horror that his poor friend's throat was gashed across and that life was already extinct he started back shocked and dismayed and for a few moments remained gazing on the dreadful spectacle almost paralyzed then came the speculation who could have done so cruel a deed an old man murdered sleeping a good man beloved by his parishioners and scarcely known beyond the narrow circle of his rural home it was his duty to investigate the mystery so he composed his countenance as well as he was able and going to the door of the room called for a servant the man who had waited at table presently appeared rubbing his eyes for he too had been asleep tell me who has been into this room while i was in the garden nobody your reverence no one ever disturbs the master during his siesta he then asked the servant where he had been and was told in the anteroom he next inquired whether any person had been in or out of the house or if he had heard any movement or voice in the room and also how many fellow-servants the man had he was told that he had heard no noise or voices and that he had two fellow-servants the cook and a little boy his reverence demanded that they should be brought in that he might question them they came and were cross-questioned as closely as possible but they declared that they had not been in that part of the house all day long and that nobody could possibly get into the house without their knowledge unless it was through the garden the priest had been walking all the time in view of the house and he felt convinced that the murderer could not have passed in or out on that side without his knowledge listen to me some person has been into that room since dinner and your master is cruelly murdered murdered cried the three domestics in tones of terror and amazement did your reverence say murdered he lies where i left him but his throat is gashed from ear to ear he is dead my poor old friend dead the poor master dead murdered in his own house they wrung their hands tore their hair and wept aloud 
silence i command you and consider that every one of us standing here is liable to the suspicion of complicity in this foul deed so look to it giuseppe was asleep but i sleep very lightly your reverence come in and see your master said the priest solemnly they crept in white with fear and stepping noiselessly they gazed on the shocking spectacle transfixed with horror then a cry of who can have done it burst from all lips who indeed repeated the cook the priest desired giuseppe to look around the premises and count the plate and ascertain if there had been a robbery or if any one was concealed about the house the man returned without throwing any new light upon the mystery but in his absence while surveying the room more carefully than he had previously done the priest's eye met those of the cat glowing like lurid flames as he sat crouching in the shade near a curtain the orbs had a fear malignant expression which startled him and at once recalled to his recollection the angry and sullen demeanour of the creature during dinner could it possibly be the cat that killed him demanded of the cook the awestruck priest who knows replied he the beast was surly to others but always seemed to love him fondly and then the wound seems as though it were made with a weapon it does certainly rejoined the priest yet i mistrust that brute and we will try to put it to the proof at any rate after many suggestions they agreed to pass cords around the neck and under the shoulders of the deceased and carried the ends outside of the room door which was exactly opposite the couch where he lay they then all quietly left the apartment almost closing the door and remained perfectly still one of the party was directed to keep his eye fixed on the cat the others after a short delay slowly pulled the cords which had the effect of partially raising the head of the corpse instantly at this apparent sign of life the savage cat sprang from its corner and with a low yell and a single bound fastened upon the mangled neck of its victim at once the sad mystery was solved the treacherous and grateful cowardly and revengeful murderer discovered and all that remained to be done was to summon help to destroy the wild beast and in due time to bury the good man in peace well to such stories as these i have no particular objection under certain circumstances they are well enough for instance to fill up the odd corners of a weekly newspaper in the dull season and are a pleasant relief to the enormous gooseberry but i have my doubts whether they should be given as facts for the instruction of youth though i am not much surprised that the editor should have admitted them into his pages when he speaks of them in another part of the magazine as delightful papers when children's minds are thus filled with absurd falsehoods it is not to be wondered at if when the child grows up into a man the man should express himself somewhat in the words of this instructor of youth who says i must confess on my own part an aversion to the feline race which with the best intentions i am unable entirely to conquer i have occasionally become rather fond of an individual cat but never encountered one unexpectedly without a feeling of repugnance and as i like or feel an interest in every other animal i regard this peculiarity as hereditary i suppose however that there are few of my fair readers who have not a feeling somewhat akin to repugnance towards snakes black beetles earwigs spiders rats and even poor little harmless mice yet ladies have been known to keep white mice and make pets of them after a time when the first timidity was overcome there was a captive once you may remember who tamed a spider 
a man about ten years ago who used to go about the streets got his living by pretending to swallow snakes he allowed them while holding tight on their tails to crawl halfway down his throat and back again he said they were nice clean animals and good company little boys at school often swallow frogs an earwig probably has fine social qualities which only one bringing out naturalists tell us they can make the best of mothers the black beetle has always been a maligned insect it is a sort of nigger among insects apparently born only to be poisoned drowned or smashed but someone ought decidedly to take the race in hand and see of what it is capable i have myself a horror of most of the creatures i have named but happen not to have been reared with an aversion for cats and i have a strong belief that if i tried hard which i am not going to do i might get upon friendly relations with the other animals named above which i suppose most of us are taught when children to dislike and as our fathers and mothers have entertained the same feeling perhaps as my authoress says we may regard this peculiarity as hereditary probably a good many ladies reading these lines will endorse my authoress's opinions for the most part these will be married ladies with large families and it will be found upon inquiry i feel certain that ladies who have many children will have a dislike for the feline race End of chapter two chapter three of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by P.J. Morgan The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross Chapter 3 Of Other Wicked Stories With a Few Words in Defense of the Accused I told you a while ago what good Mr. Mavor says of cats. La défiance que cet animal inspire, says another instructor of youth, Monsieur Pujol, in his Livre du Secondage, Et bien propre à corriger de dissimulation et de l'hypocrisie. I have nothing to say of poor Pujol, whose books and opinions are by this time well nigh forgotten. But what am I to think of two other authors, whose words should be law, but of the value of which I leave you to judge for yourself? I need not, I think, remind you that there is a natural history written by one Monsieur Buffon, containing a theory of the earth, a general history of man, of the brute creation, and of vegetables, minerals, etc of which Mr. Barr published an English translation in ten goodly volumes. Thus, in this work of worldwide celebrity, is the feline race discussed. I give the author's words as I find them. The cat is a faithless domestic, and only kept through necessity to oppose to another domestic, which incommodes us still more, and which we cannot drive away. For we pay no respect to those who, being fond of all beasts, keep cats for amusement. Though these animals are gentle and frolicsome when young, yet they even then possess an innate cunning and perverse disposition which age increases and which education only serves to conceal. They are naturally inclined to theft, and the best education only converts them into servile and flattering robbers, for they have the same address, subtlety, and inclination for mischief or rapine. Like all knaves, they know how to conceal their intentions, to watch, wait, and choose opportunities for seizing their prey to fly from punishment and to remain away until the danger is over and they can return with safety they readily conform to the habits of society but never acquire its manners for of attachment they have only the appearance as may be seen by the obliquity of their motions and duplicity of their looks they never look in the face those who treat them best and of whom they seem to be the most fond 
but either through fear or falsehood they approach him by windings to seek for those caresses they have no pleasure in, but only to flatter those from whom they receive them. Very different from that faithful animal the dog, whose sentiments are all directed to the person of his master, the cat appears only to feel for himself, only to love conditionally, only to partake of society that he may abuse it, and by this disposition he has more affinity to man than the dog, who is all sincerity. So much for M. Buffon. Though he is sadly mistaken on the subject of which he writes, these were probably his honest opinions. But what can be said for a writer in the Encyclopaedia Britannica who holds forth as follows, and is not only ignorant of what he talks about, but steals Buffon's absurd prejudices and passes them off as his own? In his opinion, the cat is a useful but deceitful domestic. Although when young it is playful and gay, it possesses at the same time an innate malice and perverse disposition, which increases as it grows up and which education learns it to conceal, but never to subdue. Constantly bent upon theft and rapine, though in a domestic state it is full of cunning and dissimulation, it conceals all its designs, seizes every opportunity of doing mischief, and then flies from punishment. It easily takes on the habits of society, but never its manners, for it has only the appearance of friendship and attachment. This disingenuity of character is betrayed by the obliquity of its movements and the ambiguity of its looks. In a word, the cat is totally destitute of friendship. Here, I think, are some pretty sentiments and some valuable information about the cat kind. Let us hope that the other contributors to the encyclopedia knew something more of what they wrote about than the gentleman above quoted. And these opinions are not uncommon. For instance, allow me to quote from an article in a popular miscellany. No, I cannot abide cats, says the writer. Pet cats, wild cats, tom cats, skib cats, Persian cats, angora cats, tortoiseshell cats, tabby cats, black cats, manx cats, brindled cats, mewing once, twice, or thrice, as the case may be. None of these cats delight me. They are associated in my mind with none but disagreeable objects and remembrances. Old maids, witchcraft, dreadful sabbaths, with old women flying up the chimney upon broomsticks to drink hell-broth with the evil one, charms, incantations, sorceries, sucking children's breaths, stopping out late on the tiles, caterwauling and mall-rowing in the night season, prowling about the streets at unseasonable hours, and a variety of other things too numerous and too unpleasant to mention. Upon the other hand, Puss has had her defenders, and Miss Isabel Hill writes thus, Poor Pinky, I can scarce dare a word in praise of one belonging to thy slandered sisterhood. Yet a few good examples embolden me to assert that I have rarely known any harm of cats who were given a fair chance, though I own I have seldom met with any that have enjoyed that advantage. Is it their fault that they are born nearly without brains, though with all their senses about them, and of a tender turn? That they want strength, both of body and instinct, are dependent and ill-educated? No, their errors are thrust upon them. They become selfish per force, cowards from their tenacious regard for that personal neatness which they so labour to preserve. Oh, that all females made such good use of their tongues! Cross from sheer melancholy, reflecting in their starved and persecuted maturity on the fondness lavished over the days in which they were pet useless toys, as soon as they can deserve and may require kind treatment, they are as ill-used as if they were constant wives, rather unfair on ladies of their excessive genius. Could every cat, like Whittington's, catch fortunes for her master as well as mice, we should hear no more said against the species. Suppose they only fawn on us because we house and feed them, they have no nobler proofs of friendship with which to thank us. And if their very gratitude for this self-interested hire be adduced as a crime, alas, poor pussies! Had Minette been a Thomas, a whiskered fur-collared philander, 
he would most probably have surmounted that unmanly weakness and received all favours as but his due i never see a mrs mouser rubbing her soft coat against me with round upturned eyes but i translate her purr into words like these i can't swim i can neither fetch and carry nor guard the house i can only love you mistress pray accept all i have to offer an anonymous writer says we may learn some useful lessons from cats as indeed from all animals agur in the book of proverbs refers to some and all through scripture we find animals used as types of human character cats may teach us patience and perseverance and earnest concentration of mind on a desired object as they watch for hours together by a mouse-hole or in ambush for a bird in their nicely calculated springs we are taught neither to come short through want of mercy or go beyond the mark in its excess in their delicate walking amidst the fragile articles on a table or mantelpiece is illustrated the tact and discrimination by which we should thread rather than force our way and in pursuit of our own ends avoid the injuring of others in their noiseless tread and stealthy movements we are reminded of the frequent importance of secrecy and caution prior to action while their promptitude at the right moment warns us on the other hand against the evils of irresolution and delay the curiosity with which they spy into all places and the thorough smelling which any new object invariably receives from them commends to us the pursuit of knowledge even under difficulties cats however will never smell the same thing twice over thereby showing a retentive as well as an acquiring faculty then to speak of what may be learned from their mere form and ordinary motions so full of beauty and gracefulness what cat was ever awkward or clumsy whether in play or in earnest cats are the very embodiment of elegance as your cat rubs her head against something you offer her which she either does not fancy or does not want she instructs you that there is a gracious mode of refusing a thing and as she sits up like a bear on her hind legs to ask for something which cats will often do for a long time together you may see the advantage of a winning and engaging way as well when you are seeking a favour as when you think fit to decline one if true courtesy and considerateness should prevent you not merely from positively hurting another but also from purposely clashing say with another's fancies peculiarities or predilections this too may be learned from the cat who does not like to be rubbed the wrong way who does like to be rubbed the wrong way and who objects to your treading on her tail nor is the soft foot with its skilfully sheathed and ever-sharp claws without a moral too for whilst there is nothing commendable in anything approaching to spite passion or revenge a character that is all softness is certainly defective the velvety paw is very well but it will be the better appreciated when it is known that it carries within it something that is not soft and which can make itself felt and sharply felt on occasion a cat rolled up into a ball or crouched with its paws folded underneath it seems an emblem of repose and contentment there is something soothing in the mere sight of it it may remind one of the placid countenance and calm repose with which the sphinx seems to look forth from the shadow of the pyramids on the changes and troubles of the world this leads to the remark that cats after all are very enigmatical creatures you never get to the bottom of cats you will never find any two well known to you that do not offer marked diversities in ways and dispositions and in general the combination they exhibit of activity and repose and the rapidity with which they pass from the one to the other their gentle aspects and fragile form united with strength and pliancy their sudden appearances and disappearances their tenacity of life and many escapes from dangers as many lives as a cat their silent and rapid movements their sometimes unaccountable gatherings and strange noises at night 
all contribute to invest them with a mysterious fascination which reaches its culminating point in the not very frequent case of a completely black cat instances are frequent i am happy to tell cat haters of illustrious persons who have been attached to the feline race and of cats who have merited such attachment mahomet would seem to have been very fond of cats for it is said that he once cut off the sleeve of his robe rather than disturb his favourite while sleeping on it petrarch was so fond of his cat that when it died he had it embalmed and placed in a niche in his apartment and you ought to read what rousseau has to say in favour of the feline race Monsieur Baumgarten tells us that he saw a hospital for cats at Damascus. It was a large house, walled round very carefully, and said to be full of patients. It was at Damascus that the incident above related occurred to Mahomet. His followers in this place ever afterwards paid a great respect to cats, and supported the hospital in question by public subscriptions with much liberality. When the Duke of Norfolk was committed to the Tower in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, a favourite cat made her way into the prison-room by getting down the chimney. The first day, says Lady Morgan in her delightful book, we had the honour of dining at the palace of the Archbishop of Toronto at Naples, he said to me, You must pardon my passion for cats, but I never exclude them from my dining-room, and you will find they make excellent company. Between the first and second course the door opened, and several enormously large and beautiful Angora cats were introduced by the names of Pantalone, desdemona otello etc they took their places on chairs near the table and were as silent as quiet as motionless and as well behaved as the most bon ton table in london could require on the bishop requesting one of the chaplains to help the signora desdemona the butler stepped up to his lordship and observed my lord la signora desdemona will prefer waiting for the roasts Gottfried Mind, the celebrated Swiss painter, was called the Cat Raphael from the excellence with which he painted that animal. This peculiar talent was discovered and awakened by chance. At the time when Frendenberger painted his picture of the peasant clearing wood, before his cottage with his wife sitting by and feeding her child out of a basin, round which a cat is prowling, Mind, his new pupil, stared very hard at the sketch of this last figure, and Frendenberger asked with a smile whether he thought he could draw a better. Mind offered to show what he could do, and did draw a cat, which Frendenberger liked so much that he asked his pupil to elaborate the sketch, and the master copied the scholar's work, for it is Mind's cat that is engraved in Frendenberger's plate. Prints of Mind's cats are now common. Mind did not look upon cats merely as subjects for art. His liking for them was very great. Once, when hydrophobia was raging in Bern, and eight hundred were destroyed in consequence of an order issued by the civic authorities, Mind was in great distress on account of their death. He had, however, successfully hidden his own favourite, and she escaped the slaughter. This cat was always with him when he worked, and he used to carry on a sort of conversation with her by gesture and signs. It is said that Minette sometimes occupied his lap, while two or three kittens perched on his shoulders, and he was often known to remain for an hour together in almost the same attitude for fear of disturbing them. Yet he was generally thought to be a passionate, sour-tempered man. It is said that Cardinal Wolsey used to accommodate his favourite cat with part of his regal seat when he gave an audience or received princely company. There is a funny story told of Barrett, the painter, another lover of cats. He had for pets a cat and a kitten, its progeny. A friend, seeing two holes in the bottom of his door, asked him for what purpose he made them there. Barrett said it was for the cats to go in and out. Why, replied his friend, would not one do for both? You silly man, answered the painter. How could the big cat get into the little hole? But, said his friend, 
Could not the little one go through the big hole? Dear me, cried Barrett. So she could. Well, I never thought of that. Monsieur Sonini had an Angora cat of which he writes, This animal was my principal amusement for several years. How many times have her tender caresses made me forget my troubles and consoled me in my misfortunes? My beautiful companion at length perished. After several days of suffering, during which I never forsook her, her eyes constantly fixed on me, were at length extinguished, and her loss rent my heart with sorrow. You have heard, of course, of Dr. Johnson's feline favorite, and how it fell ill, and how he, thinking the servants might neglect it, himself turned cat-nurse, and having found out that the invalid had a fancy for oysters, daily administered them to poor pussy until she had quite recovered. I like to picture to myself that good old grumpy doctor nursing pussy on his knee, and wasting who shall say how many precious moments which otherwise might have been devoted to his literary avocations. I dare say now, in that tavern parlour where the lexicographer held forth so ably after sunset, he made but scant allusion to his nursing feats, lest some mad wit might have twitted him upon the subject, for you may be sure that the wits of those days, as of ours, could have been mighty satirical on such a theme. Madame Helvetius had a cat that used to lie at its mistress's feet, scarcely ever leaving her for five minutes together. It would never take food from any other hand, and it would allow no one but its mistress to caress it. But it would obey her commands in everything, fetching objects she wanted in its mouth like a dog. During Madame Helvetius's last illness, the poor animal never quitted her chamber, and though it was removed after her death, it returned again next morning, and slowly and mournfully paced to and fro in the room, crying piteously all the time. Some days after its mistress's funeral, it was found stretched dead upon her grave, having, it would seem, died of grief. There is a well-authenticated story of a cat, which, having had a thorn taken out of her foot by a man-servant, remembered him, and welcomed him with delight when she saw him again after an absence of two years. As a strong instance of attachment, I can quote the case of a she-cat of my own, which always waited for me in the passage when I returned home of an evening and mounted upon my shoulder to ride upstairs. Returning home once after an absence of six weeks, this cat sat on the corner of the mantelpiece, close by the bed, all night, and as it would appear wide awake, keeping a sort of guard over me, for being very restless I lay awake a long while, and then awoke again several times after dozing off to find upon each occasion Miss Puss with wide open eyes purring loudly. I may add that although when we have gone away from home the cats have taken their meals and spent most of their time with the servants, Yet upon our return they have immediately resumed their old ways and cut the kitchen dead. By the report of a police case at Marlborough Street on the 28th of June last, it appeared that a husband, brutally ill-using his wife, flung her on the ground, and seizing her by the throat, endeavoured to strangle her. While however she lay thus, a favourite cat named Topsy suddenly sprang upon the man and fastened her claws and teeth in his face. He could not tear the cat away, and was obliged to implore the woman he had been ill-using to take the cat from him to save his life. The cat is reproached with treachery and cruelty, but Bigland argues that the artifices which it uses are the particular instincts which the all-wise creator has given it, in conformity with the purposes for which it was designed. Being destined to prey upon a lively and active animal like the mouse, which possesses so many means of escape, it is requisite that it should be artful, and indeed the cat, when well observed, exhibits the most evident proofs of a particular adaptation to a particular purpose, and the most striking example of a peculiar instinct suited to its destiny. Every animal has its own way of killing and eating its prey. The fox leaves the legs and hinder parts of a hare or rabbit, 
the weasel and stoat eat the brains and nibble about the head and suck the blood crows and magpies peck at the eyes the dog tears his prey to pieces indiscriminately the cat always turns the skin inside out like a glove mr buckland relates the case of a gamekeeper who bought up all the cats in the neighboring town cut off their heads and nailed them up as trophies of veritable captures in the woods in a gamekeeper's museum visited by the same writer were no less than fifty-three cats heads staring hideously down from the shelves there was a story attached to each head one cat was killed in such a wood another in such a hedgerow some in traps some shot some knocked on the head with a stick but what was most remarkable was the different expression of countenance observable in each individual head one had died fighting desperately to the last and giving up its nine lives inch by inch caught in a trap it had lingered the night through in dreadful agony the pain of its entrapped limb causing it to make furious efforts to free itself each effort but lending another torment to the wound in the morning the gamekeeper had released the poor exhausted creature for the dogs to worry out what little life was left in its body the head dried by the heat of two summers the wrinkled forehead the expanded eyelids the glary eyeballs the whiskers stretched to their full extent the spiteful lips exposing the double row of tiger-like teeth envenomed by agony told all this the hand of death had not been powerful enough to relax the muscles racked for so many hours of pain and terror another cat's head wore a very different expression she had neither been worried nor tortured creeping stealthily on the tips of her beautifully padded feet behind some overhanging hedge the hidden gamekeeper had suddenly shot her dead in death her face was calm no expression of fear ruffled her features she had been shot down and died instantly at the moment of anticipated triumph a third head belonged to a poor little puss that had died before it had attained the age of cathood her young life had been knocked out of her with a stick her head still retained the kitten's playful look and there was an appealing expression about it as though it had died quickly wondering in what it had done wrong i find a writer upon cats who speaks thus in their praise it has been said that the cat is one of those animals which has made the least return to man for his trouble by its services but it is certain that it renders very essential service to man and another says authors seem to delight in exaggerating the good qualities of the dog while they depreciate those of the cat the latter however is not less useful and certainly less mischievous than the former indeed it would be unfair not to state that pussy has had many able defenders who have argued her case in verse as well as prose for example in edmund moore's fable of the farmer the spaniel and the cat the spaniel when puss drew near to eat some of the fragments of a feast repelled her saying she does nothing to merit being fed etc i own with meekness puss replied superior merit on your side nor does my breast with envy swell to find it recompensed so well yet i in what my nature can contribute to the good of man whose claws destroy the pilfering mouse who drives the vermin from the house or watchful from the labouring swain from lurking rats secures the grain for this if he rewards bestow why should your heart with gall o'erflow why pine my happiness to see since there's enough for you and me thy words are just the farmer cried and spurned the spaniel from his side and again the same idea occurs in Gay's fable of the man, the cat, the dog, and the fly. The cat solicits aid from the man in the social state. Well, puss, says man, and what can you to benefit the public do? The cat replies, these teeth, these claws, with vigilance shall serve the cause. The mouse, destroyed by my pursuit, no longer shall your feasts pollute, nor rats from nightly ambuscade with wasteful teeth your stores invade. I grant, says man, to general use your parts and talents may conduce 
for rats and mice purloin our grain and threshers whirl the flail in vain thus shall the cat a foe to spoil protect the farmer's honest toil mr ruskin says there is in every animal's eye a dim image and gleam of humanity a flash of strange life through which their life looks at and up to our great mystery of command over them and claims the fellowship of the creature if not the soul poor pussy on the whole she has had but few champions in comparison to the number of her foes let us see what anecdotes we can find which will show her in a favourable light but my chapter is long enough and i will conclude it with the epitaph placed over a favourite french puss si repose pauvre mouton qui jamais ne fut plouton j'espère bien que le roi plouton lui donnera bon guide et coton end of chapter three recording by p j morgan chapter four of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by p j morgan the book of cats by charles henry ross chapter four of the manners and customs of cats let us see though before we try our anecdotes what is known of the cat's peculiarities i rather like this quaint description of the domestic pussy which occurs in an old heraldic book john boswell's works of armory published in fifteen ninety seven the field is of the sapphire on a chief pearl a maison crueve this beast is called a maison for that he is enemy to mice and rats he is sly and witty and seeth so sharply that he overcometh darkness of the night by the shining light of his eyne in shape of body he is like unto a leopard and hath a great mouth he doth delight that he enjoyeth his liberty and in his youth he is swift pliant and merry he maketh a rueful noise and a ghastful when he proffereth to fight with another he is a cruel beast when he is wild and falleth on his own feet from most high places and never is hurt therewith when he hath a fair skin he is as it were proud thereof and then he goeth much about to be seen it is commonly supposed that a cat scratch is venomous because a lacerated wound oftener festers than a smooth cut from a sharp knife it is erroneously said that cats feel a cutaneous irritation at the approach of rain and offer sensible evidence of uneasiness allusion may be found to this in thompson's seasons virgil has also made the subject a theme for poetic allusion the chinese look into their cat's eyes to know what o'clock it is and the playfulness of cats is said to indicate the coming of a storm i have noticed this often myself and have seen them rush about in a half-wild state just before windy weather i think it is when the wind is rising that they are most affected it is stated in a japanese book that the tip of a cat's nose is always cold except on the day corresponding with our midsummer day this is a question i cannot say i have gone into deeply i know however that cats always have a warm nose when they first awaken from sleep all cats are fond of warmth i knew one which used to open an oven door after the kitchen fire was out and creep into the oven one day the servant shut the door not noticing the cat was inside and lighted the fire for a long while she could not make out whence came the sounds of its crying and scratching but fortunately made the discovery in time to save its life a cat's love of the sunshine is well known and perhaps this story may not be unfamiliar to the reader one broiling hot summer's day charles james fox and the prince of wales were lounging up st james's street 
and Fox laid the prince a wager that he could see more cats than his royal highness during their promenade, although the prince might choose which side of the street he thought fit. On reaching Piccadilly it turned out that Fox had seen thirteen cats, and the prince none. The prince asked for an explanation of this apparent miracle. "'Your royal highness,' said Fox, "'chose, of course, the shady side of the way as most agreeable. I knew that the sunny side would be left for me, and that cats preferred the sunshine.' Cats usually, but not always, fall on their feet, because of the facility with which they balance themselves when springing from a height, which power of balancing is in some degree produced by the flexibility of the heel, the bones of which have no fewer than four joints. Cats alight softly on their feet, because in the middle of the foot is a large ball or pad in five parts, formed of an elastic substance, and at the base of each toe is a similar pad. No mechanism better calculated to break the force of a fall could be imagined. A cat, when falling with its head downwards, curls its body so that the back forms an arch while the legs remain extended. This so changes the position of the center of gravity that the body makes a half turn in the air and the feet become lowest. In the inside of a cat's head there is a sort of partition wall projecting from the sides, a good way inwards towards the center, so as to prevent the brain from suffering from concussion. There is a breed of tailless white cats in the Isle of Man and also in Devonshire. These are not the sort of animals with which, on shipboard, the stowaways are made acquainted. A great many cats in the Isle of Man are said to be deaf, thus, as deaf as a Manx cat. There is an idea that white cats with blue eyes are always deaf, but a correspondent of Notes and Queries says, I am myself possessed of a white cat, which at the advanced age of upwards of seventeen years still retains its hearing to great perfection, and is remarkably intelligent and devoted, more so than cats are usually given credit for. Its affection for persons is, indeed, more like that of a dog than of a cat. It is a half-bred Persian cat, and its eyes are perfectly blue, with round pupils, not elongated, as those of cats usually are. It occasionally suffers from irritation in the ears, but this has not at all resulted in deafness. Do you know why cats always wash themselves after a meal? A cat caught a sparrow and was about to devour it, but the sparrow said, No gentleman eats till he has first washed his face. The cat, struck with this remark, set the sparrow down and began to wash his face with his paw, but the sparrow flew away. This vexed Pussy extremely, and he said, As long as I live I will eat first and wash my face afterwards, which all cats do, even to this day. A French writer says the three animals that waste most time over their toilet are cats, flies, and women. The attitudes and motions of a cat are very graceful, because she is furnished with collarbones. She can, therefore, carry food to her mouth like a monkey— can clasp, can climb, and can strike sideways, and seat herself at a height upon a very narrow space. The lateral movements of the head in cats are not so extensive as in the owl, but are nevertheless considerable. A cat can look round pretty far behind it without moving its body, which might be apt to startle its prey. The spine of the cat is very full and loose, in order that all its movements in all possible directions and circumstances may be free and unrestrained. For this purpose, too, all the joints which connect its bones together are extremely loose and free. Thus, the cat is enabled to get through small apertures, to leap from great heights, and even to fall in an unfavorable posture with little or no injury to itself. Its ears are not so movable as those of some other animals, but are more so than in very many animals. The shape of the external ear, or rather cartilaginous portion, is admirably adapted to intercept sounds. The natural posture is forward and outward so as to catch sounds proceeding from the front and sides. The upper half, however, is movable, and by means of a thin layer of muscular fibers, it is made to curve backwards and receive sounds from the rear. 
although a cat cannot lick its face and head it nevertheless cleans these parts thoroughly in fact as we often observe a cat licks its right paw for a long time and then brushes down the corresponding side of the head and face and when this is accomplished it does the same with the other paw and corresponding side a may kitten makes a dirty cat is a piece of huntingdonshire folklore says mr cuthbert Bede, quoted to me in order to deter me from keeping a kitten that had been born in may dr turton says the cat has a more voluminous and expressive vocabulary than any other brute the short twitter of complacency and affection the purr of tranquillity and pleasure the mew of distress the growl of anger and the horrible wailing of pain for myself i seldom hear a catawalling without thinking of that droll picture in punch of the old lady sitting up in bed and pricking up her ears to the music of a mewing cat oh ah yes it's the waits says she with a delighted chuckle i love to listen to em it may be fancy but somehow they don't seem to play so sweetly as they did when i was a girl perhaps it is that i am getting old and don't hear quite so well as i used to do few even amongst pussy's most ardent admirers who possess the faculty of hearing and have heard the music of cats would desire the continuance of their sweet voices yet a concert was exhibited at paris wherein cats were the performers they were placed in rows and a monkey beat time to them as the cats mewed. And the historian of the facts relates that the diversity of the tones which they emitted produced a very ludicrous effect. This exhibition was announced to the Parisian public by the title of Concert Miolant. This would seem to prove that cats may be taught tricks, which is not generally believed, but is nevertheless the case. In pools, twists, and turns about the streets of London, mention is made of a poor half-naked boy strumming a violin, while another urchin with a whip makes two half-starved cats go through numerous feats of agility. De Roger says that in animals that graze and keep their heads for a long time in a dependent position, the danger from an excessive impetus in the blood flowing towards the head is much greater than in other animals, and we find that an extraordinary provision is made to obviate this danger. The arteries which supply the brain on their entrance into the basis of the skull suddenly divide into a great number of minute branches, forming a complicated network of vessels, an arrangement which, on the well-known principle of hydraulics, must greatly check the velocity of the blood conducted through them. That such is the real purpose of this structure, which has been called the ret mirabile, is evident from the branches afterwards uniting into larger trunks when they have entered the brain, through the substance of which they are then distributed, exactly as in other animals, where no such previous subdivision takes place. The ret mirabile is much developed in the sheep, but scarcely perceptible in the cat. Being an animal which hunts both by day and night, the structure of its visual organs is adjusted for both. The retina, or expansion of the optic nerve, is most sensitive to the stimulus of light. Hence, a well-marked ciliary muscle contracts the pupil to a mere vertical fissure during the day, while in the dark, the pupil dilates enormously and lets in as much light as possible. But even this would be insufficient, for cats have to look for their prey in holes, cellars, and other places where little or no light can penetrate. Hence, the cat is furnished with a bright, metal-like, lustrous membrane, called the tapetum, which lines part of the hollow globe of the eye, and sheds considerable light on the image of an object thrown on the retina. This membrane is, we are told, common to all vertebrated animals, but is especially beautiful and lustrous in nocturnal animals. The herbivora, such as the ox and sheep, have the tapetum of the finest enameled green color, provided probably to suit the nature of their food, which is green. The subject, however, of the various colors of the tapetum in different animals is not yet understood. The sensibility of the retina in cats is so great that neither the contractions of the pupil nor the closing of the eyelids would alone afford them sufficient protection from the action of the light. 
Hence, in common with most animals, the cat is furnished with a nictitating membrane, which is, in fact, a third eyelid, sliding over the transparent cornea beneath the common eyelids. This membrane is not altogether opaque, but translucent, allowing light to fall on the retina, and acting, as it were, like a shade. The nictitating membrane is often seen in the cat when she slowly opens her eyes from a calm and prolonged sleep. It is well developed in the eagle, and enables him to gaze steadfastly on the sun's unclouded disk. The illumination of a cat's eye in the dark arises from the external light collected on the eye and reflected from it. Although apparently dark, a room is penetrated by imperceptible rays of external light from lamps or other luminiferous bodies. When these rays reach the observer direct, he sees the lamps or luminiferous bodies themselves, but when he is out of their direct sight, the brightness of their illumination only becomes apparent through the rays being collected and reflected by some appropriate substance. The cornea of the eye of the cat, and of many other animals, has a great power of concentrating the rays and reflecting them through the pupil. Professor Bonn, at Leipzig, made experiments proving that when the external light is wholly excluded, none can be seen in the cat's eye. For the same reason, the animal, by a change of posture or other means, intercepting the rays, immediately deprives the observer of all light otherwise existing in or permeating the room. In this action, when the iris of the eye is completely open, the degree of brilliancy is the greatest, but when the iris is partly contracted, which it always is when the external light or the light in the room is increased, then the illumination is more obscure. The internal motions of the animals have also great influence over this luminous appearance, by the contraction and relaxation of the iris dependent upon them. When the animal is alarmed or first disturbed, it naturally dilates the pupil and the eye glares. When it is appeased or composed, the pupil contracts, and the light in the eye is no longer seen. A German savant says that at the end of each hair of a cat's whiskers is a sort of bulb of nervous substance which converts it into a most sensitive feeler. The whiskers are of the greatest use to her when hunting in the dark. The nervous bulbs at the ends of a lion's whiskers are as large as a small pea. But an English writer differs from him thus. Everyone must have observed what are usually called the whiskers on a cat's upper lip. The use of these in a state of nature is very important. They are organs of touch. They are attached to a bed of close glands under the skin, and each of these long and stiff hairs is connected with the nerves of the lip. The slightest contact of these whiskers with any surrounding object is thus felt most distinctly by the animal, although the hairs are of themselves insensible. They stand out on each side in the lion as well as in the common cat, so that from point to point they are equal in width to the animal's body. If we imagine, therefore, a lion stealing through a covert of wood in an imperfect light, we shall at once see the use of these long hairs. They indicate to him, through the nicest feeling, any obstacle which may present itself to the passage of the body. They prevent the rustle of boughs and leaves, which would give warning to his prey if he were to attempt to pass through too dense a bush. And this, in conjunction with the soft cushions of his feet, and the fur upon which he treads, the retractable claws never coming in contact with the ground, enable him to move towards his victim with a stillness even greater than that of the snake, who creeps along the grass, and does not perceive till he is coiled round his prey. Black cats especially are said to be highly charged with electricity, which, when the animal is irritated, is easily visible in the dark. Here are directions I have for producing the effect. Lay one hand upon the cat's throat and slightly press its shoulder bones. If the other hand be drawn gently along its back, electric shocks will be felt in the hand upon the cat's throat. If the tips of the ears be touched after the back has been rubbed, shocks of electricity may also be felt, or they may be obtained from the foot. Lay the animal upon your knees and apply the right hand to the back, the left forepaw resting on the palm of your left hand. Apply the thumb to the upper side of the paw so as to extend the claws 
and by this means bring your forefinger in contact with one of the bones of the leg where it joins the paw when from the knob or end of this bone the finger slightly pressing on it you may feel distinctly successive shocks similar to those obtained from the ears the reverend mr wood expresses an opinion that on account of the superabundance of electricity which is developed in the cat the animal is found very useful to paralyzed persons who instinctively encourage its approach and from the touch derive some benefit those who suffer from rheumatism often find the presence of a cat alleviate their sufferings the same gentleman writing of a favorite cat says that if a hair of her mistress's head were laid upon the animal's back it would writhe as though in agony and rolling on the floor would strive to free herself from the object of her fears the pointing of a finger at her side at a distance of half a foot would cause her fur to bristle up and throw her into a violent tremor it is difficult to account for the fondness of cats for fish as nature seems to have given them an appetite which with their great antipathy to water they can rarely gratify unassisted many instances have however been recorded of cats catching fish a mr moody of sesmond near newcastle upon tyne had a cat in eighteen twenty nine which had been in his possession for some years and caught fish with great assiduity and frequently brought them home alive besides minnows and eels she occasionally carried home pilchards one of which about six inches long was once found in her possession she also contrived to teach a neighbor's cat to fish and the two were sometimes seen together watching by a riverside for their prey at other times they were seen at opposite sides of the river not far from each other on the lookout for game a writer in the plymouth journal june eighteen twenty eight says there is now at the battery on the devil's point a cat which is an expert catcher of the finny tribe being in the constant habit of diving into the sea and bringing up the fish alive in her mouth and depositing them in the guard-room for the use of the sailors she is now seven years old and has long been a useful caterer it is supposed that her pursuit of the water-rats first taught her to venture into the water to which it is well known puss has a natural aversion she is now as fond of the water as a newfoundland dog and takes her regular peregrinations along the rocks at its edge looking out for her game ready to die for it at a moment's notice talking of the cat's fondness for fish i should however mention that if a plate of meat and a plate of fish either raw or uncooked be placed before the generality of cats they will be found almost always to choose the meat it is usually supposed that a tortoise-shell tom is an impossibility the animal is certainly rare as is also a queen anne's farthing but it is not such a rarity as we are led to believe on the contrary specimens are frequently offered for sale at the zoological gardens it is another great mistake to think that cats have fleas the insect infesting a half-grown cat does not leap like a flea the she-cat goes with young from fifty-five to fifty-eight days and generally has four or five kittens at a litter when born they are blind and deaf like puppies they get their sight in about nine days and are about eighteen months before reaching full growth those who wish their cats to catch mice i should advise not to neglect the cat's food a starved cat makes a very bad mouser being too eager and hungry for the work it tries to pounce upon its prey before the proper time comes a good mouser does not eat the mouse i have a black cat which is very fat but a wonderful huntsman and surprisingly nimble at the chase he is also as proud of his achievements as a human sportsman and brings me every head of game he catches sometimes if i have been out when he has caught his mouse he has gone all over the house in search of me and at last has taken his seat by the fireside or out in the garden and nursed the trophy of his prowess until i returned mewing piteously if any one attempted to take it away but once having laid it at my feet and had his head scratched in return his interest in the matter seemed to cease and he went away without again attempting to touch it it was clear that he had made me a present of the game and as we sometimes think when we make anyone a present of something to eat 
it would be more delicate for us to go away immediately, lest it might be supposed we desired to be asked to stop and partake of it. Tom thus departed, no doubt with a similar idea. No experiment, says an intelligent writer, can be more beautiful than that of setting a kitten for the first time before a looking-glass. The animal appears surprised and pleased with the reflection, and makes several attempts to touch its new acquaintance, and at length, finding its efforts fruitless, it looks behind the glass, and appears highly astonished at the absence of the figure. It again views itself, and tries to touch the image with its foot, suddenly looking at intervals behind the glass. It then becomes more accurate in its observations, and begins, as it were, to make experiments by stretching out its paw in different directions, and when it finds that these motions are answered in every respect by the figure in the glass, it seems at length to be convinced of the real nature of the image. End of chapter 4 Recording by P. J. Morgan Chapter 5 of the Book of Cats This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter 5. Of Whittington's Cat and Another Cat That Visited Strange Countries. As no work about cats would be complete without the story of Dick Whittington, from the first moment I had made up my mind to write this book, I had also made up my mind to look up the best authorities upon the subject, to write Whittington's Cat's Life, and to give her a chapter all to herself. Having come to this conclusion, the question naturally arose, where were the authorities? I made search, I read deeply, but I gathered small matter on which I could place reliance, and I was half inclined to abandon my resolve, when, happening to have ten minutes to spend, waiting for an omnibus at a street corner in the east end of London, I made a discovery in a shop window, by the result of which I intend that you shall benefit almost as much as I have myself for this discovery was nothing less than the very identical tale-book that I bought when I was a child, only it was a penny now instead of two pence as in the days of my extreme youth. Yes, the very identical tale of Whittington and his cat, with a splendid illustrated pink wrapper and seven magnificent engravings, hand-coloured blue, red, yellow, and pink on each plate, with here and there a dash of green laid boldly on, irrespective of outline, and now and again reaching as far as the type. Here, in the well-remembered verses, was Richard's history related. Dick Whittington had often heard the curious story told, that far-famed London's brilliant streets were paved with sheets of gold. Sometimes by wagon, erst on foot, poor Dick he came to town, but found the streets, instead of gold, were muddy, thick, and brown. You will observe that the poet sacrifices everything for the rhyme, and I do not blame him when I contemplate the noble result. In search of work he wandered round, till his heart was sick and sore. Then cold and hungry laid him down, besides a merchant's door. The merchant kindly took him in, and gave him food to eat. But the plainest of plain cooks—do you notice the poet's wit and humor?—him cruelly did treat. There is a picture here of the cook beating Whittington with two ladles. No longer could he stay, so towards the famous Highgate Hill poor Dick he ran away. Four miles he ran, then wearied much, he sat him on a stone, and heard the merry bells of Bow speak to him in this tone, Turn again, Whittington, thrice Lord Mayor of London. The poet's line at this point have been beautifully illustrated by a picture of Whittington sitting on the stone aforesaid, labelled four miles to London in an attitude of attention, whilst the merry church of Bow is to be seen on the other side of a wooden fence apparently fifty yards off. 
Then, taking heart, he wandered home, but meeting on the road a boy who had a cat to sell, he took to his abode. I think now that Tooked shows real genius. How else could you have got over the difficulty? She drove away the rats and mice. She was his only friend. This is true pathos. But when the merchant went abroad, he puss did with him send. This part wants thinking over. It means Whittington sent the cat with his master. Please, however, read on. It was the only thing he had. Each servant something sent. The cook became more cruel still after her master went. Meanwhile Puss sailed across the seas, unto the Moorish court, and to the palace of the king, the merchant Pussy brought. For that poor king no rest enjoyed, all through the rats and mice. They swept the food from off his board. Puss killed them in a thrice. And I should rather think she did, too, if the artist may be believed who depicts her, simultaneously seizing one rat with her teeth, and two others with each of her forepaws. The king then gave him heaps of gold for an animal so rare. The merchant brought it all to Dick. Oh, how the boy did stare! And he is represented staring tremendously at a box, apparently four feet by two and a half, and two and a quarter high, marked R.W., and chock full of guineas. The kindly bells had told him true, in saying turn again, for Whittington was thrice Lord Mayor in great King Henry's reign. The poem here concludes with a beautiful picture of a gentleman and a lady sitting on chairs of state. I am not quite certain whether this is intended to represent King Henry and his queen, or Lord and Lady Whittington. As far as the portrait goes, I should say that the gentleman was Charles I. In 1857 an advertisement appeared in several newspapers of a person who was willing to buy any number of live cats for exportation. They were probably wanted for New Zealand, but it is not every emigrating puss that is as lucky as Dick Whittington's which, of course, by the way, never existed at all. As a contrast to the successful career of the cat described above, let me tell you in almost the same words in which it is amusingly told, in a magazine article, the story of a cat who went some strange countries for to see. During the bold campaign of Mr. Williams, the missionary in Polynesia, a favorite cat was taken on shore by one of the teacher's wives at their first visit to the island of Rorotonga, but Tom, not liking the aspect of his new acquaintance, fled to the mountains. Under the influence of the apostles of the new religion, a priest named Tiaki had destroyed his idol. His house was situated at a distance from the settlement, and at midnight, while he was lying asleep on his mat, his wife, who was sitting awake by his side, musing upon the strange events of the day, beheld with consternation two fires glittering in the doorway, and heard with surprise a mysterious and plaintive voice petrified with fear she awoke her husband and began to upbraid him with his folly for burning his god who she declared was now come to be avenged of them get up and pray she cried the husband arose and on opening his eyes beheld the same glaring lights and heard the same ominous sound he commenced with all possible vehemence to vociferate the alphabet as a prayer to the powers above to deliver them from the vengeance of satan the cat, on hearing the incantation, was as much alarmed as the priest and his wife, so he escaped once more into the wilderness, leaving the repentant priestly pair in ecstasies at the efficacy of their exorcism. The nocturnal apparition of a cat in the flesh had nearly reinstated an overthrown idol. Subsequently, Puss, in his perambulations, perhaps in hopes of finding a native fur-clad helpmate, went to another distant district, and, as a marrel or temple stood in a retired spot, and was shaded by the rich foliage of ancient trees, 
Tommy, pleased with the situation, and wishing to frequent good society, took up his abode with the wooden gods. A few days after, the priest came, accompanied by a number of worshippers, to present some offering to the pretended deities, and on opening the door Tom greeted them with a respectful mew. Unaccustomed to such salutations, the priest, instead of returning the welcome with reciprocal politeness, rushed out of the sanctuary, shouting to his companions, "'Here's a monster from the deep! A monster from the deep!' The whole party of devotees hastened home, collected several hundreds of their brethren, put on their war-caps, brought their spears, clubs, and slings, blackened themselves with charcoal, and, thus equipped, came shouting on to attack the enemy. Tom, affrighted at the formidable array, sprang towards the open door, and, darting through the terror-stricken warriors, sent them scampering in all directions. In the evening, while the brave conspirators were entertaining themselves, and a numerous company, with a war-dance to recruit their spirits, poor Tom, wishing to see the sport, and bearing no malice in his heart, stole in amongst them to take a peep. Again the dusky heroes seized their weapons and gave chase to the unfortunate cat, but the monster of the deep was too nimble for them. Some hours afterwards, when all was quiet, Tom unwisely endeavoured to renew his domiciliary relations with man. In the dead of night he entered a house, crept beneath the coverlet under which a whole native family were lying, and fell asleep. His purring awoke the man, in the hospitality of whose nightcloth he had taken refuge, and who, supposing that some other monster had come to disturb his household, closed the doorways, awoke the inmates, and procured lights to search for the intruder. Poor Tom, fatigued with the two previous engagements of the day, lay quietly asleep, when the warriors, attacking him with their clubs and spears, thought themselves models of bravery in putting an end to him. But cats, though thus misunderstood at first, seem in the end to have proved a welcome and valuable introduction to the country. One of Mr. Williams's means of proselytism was the exercise of a useful handicraft. He turned blacksmith, but he found unusual difficulties in the way of his working a forge. Rarotonga was devastated by a plague of rats, which congregated at night in his blacksmith shop, and devoured every particle of leather, so that, in the morning, nothing remained of his bellows but the bare boards. The rats, however, were not permitted to have everything their own way. The missionaries imported a singular cargo, consisting of pigs, cocoa-nuts, and cats. The cats proved a real blessing to the island, but even they did not destroy so many rats as the pigs, which were exceedingly voracious and took greedily to the rodent diet. By the way, I must not close this chapter without one little scrap. Mr. Spectator number 5, March 6, 1711, says, I am credibly informed that there was once a design of casting into an opera the story of Whittington and his cat, and that in order to do it there had been got together a great quantity of mice, but Mr. Rich, the proprietor of the playhouse, very prudently considered that it would be impossible for the cat to kill them all. End of chapter 5「The Book of Cats」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter 6. Of Various Kinds of Cats, Ancient and Modern. Now, although this is the Book of Cats, do you know I am more than half afraid that if I give you too much about cats in it, you will go away dissatisfied? 
Some years ago there was a great rage for mechanics institutions and instructive lectures on things generally, and one half the world was for jumping on to the platform and improving the mind of the other half in gases and ologies, and in those days there was one particular sort of lecture which might be roughly described as hard words and an explosion, with which the frequenter of all institutes was perfectly familiar. And you may remember, too, how we did not so much care about the words, but thought that the stuff out of the bottle that went off with a bang was the best fun out. Carried away by the popularity of these oratorical and chemical displays, the heads of schools were wont to encourage lecturing on a small scale among their pupils, only suppressing the explosive part of the entertainment as too dangerous, and young gentlemen told other young gentlemen what they knew rather better than the young gentlemen telling them respecting the ology of which they treated. In like fashion, I am afraid, I may be only telling you what you already know, or what you might have known but have not cared about learning. The fact is, all that this chapter contains is to be elsewhere found at greater length. I have no new theories of my own upon the subject, and indeed would not presume to argue the question of the domestic cat's origin with those who have so ably treated the subject in books long since written. To tell the truth, I was not myself very much interested about the matter when I began to read the arguments on either side. Will you be? I am inclined to think not. However, here is a brief statement of the case, which is easily skipped, if not approved of. Monsieur Rappel, who discovered in the wild regions west of the Nile a cat about one-third smaller than the European cat, and having a longer tail, is of the opinion that the animal was descended from the domestic cat of the ancient Egyptians, and that the Egyptian and our domestic cat are identical. Temenc is of the same opinion, but Professor Owen objects to this theory, because the first deciduous molar tooth of the Egyptian cat has a relatively thicker crown, and is supported by three roots, whilst the corresponding tooth of the domestic and wild cats of Europe has a thinner crown, and only two roots. A writer on the subject in 1836 says there is no doubt but that the wild cat of European forests is the tame cat of European houses, that the wild cat at some period has been domesticated, and that the tame cat would become wild if turned into the woods. Mr. Bell, however, with regard to the belief that the common wild cat is the father of the tame, says that the general conformation of the two animals is considerably different, especially in the length and form of the tail. The fur, too, of the wild cat is thicker and longer. Sir William Jardine thinks that, since the introduction of our house-cat to this country, there may have been an accidental cross with the wild native species, by which the difference in form between the wild and tame cat may be accounted for. The domestic cat, says he, is the only one of this race which has been generally used in the economy of man. Some of the other small species have shown that they might be applied to similar purposes, and we have seen that the general disposition of this family will not prevent their training. Much pains would have been necessary to effect this, and none of the European nations were likely to have attempted it. The scarcity of cats in Europe in its earliest ages, is also well known, and in the tenth and eleventh centuries a good mouser brought a high price. Another author, quoting the above, says, Although our opinion coincides with that of Rupel, we think that we are indebted to the superstition of the ancient Egyptians for having domesticated the species mentioned by Rupel. We have no doubt that since its introduction to this country, and more particularly to the north of Scotland, there have been occasional crosses with our native species, and that the result of these crosses have been kept in our houses. We have seen many cats very closely resembling the wild cat, and one or two which could scarcely be distinguished from it. 
there is perhaps no other animal that so soon loses its cultivation and returns apparently to a state completely wild the tasting of some wild and living food may tempt them to seek it again and to leave their civilized homes then they prowl about in the same manner as their prey crouching in the long grass and brushwood and hiding themselves from all publicity no game destroyer however is more easily caught than the cat in summer when rabbit paunches will not keep on account of the weather a little valerian root is used as bait the cats come to rub themselves on it finding some unaccountable pleasure in so doing the valerian root is of a whitish colour and it has a very strong disagreeable smell it is used as a medicine in nervous disorders and its good effects against headaches low spirits and trembling of the limbs are all well known a story is told of a little boy home for the holidays who played an old lady this trick he put some valerian root under the hearth-rug which set the cat scratching and rubbing her back on it and performing a hundred antics till the old lady getting frightened thought puss had gone mad the boy then quietly took away the valerian cat grew calm again and the old lady was much astonished it is a cruel custom in some parts of the country to cut off the ears of cats and remove the hairs all round the exposed aperture of the ear to prevent the animal from poaching in the woods it is thought that by so doing the wet off the bushes and grass may get into the internal cavity of the ear and by the pain cause the cat to desist from the chase cats so mutilated however often choose fine days for their poaching expeditions a cat caught in a trap is a dangerous customer to let loose again if the door be opened incautiously the cat will probably fly at the catcher's face the moment she sees the light the only safe way of getting the cat out of the trap is to place a sack over the door end of the trap then rattle the other end with a stick the animal runs at once into the sack wild cats not only eat birds but seek eagerly after their eggs of which they are passionately fond regarding the wild cat pennant says it may be called the british tiger it is the fiercest and most destructive beast we have making dreadful havoc among our poultry lambs and birds it inhabits the most mountainous and wooded parts of these islands living mostly in trees and feeding only at night it multiplies as fast as our common cats a wild cat is said to have been killed in cumberland my authority gives no date which measured above five feet in length from the nose to the end of the tail mr timms relates how in eighteen fifty he saw at number one seventy five oxford street a beautifully marked tabby cat weighing twenty-five and three-quarter pounds and measuring twenty-seven inches round the body and thirty-seven inches from the tip of the tail to the end of the nose height to top of shoulders eleven and a half inches he was then seven years old the tame cat's tail ends in a point the wild cat's in a tuft the head of the wild cat is triangular and strongly marked the ears triangular large long and pointed at the village of barnborough in yorkshire there is a tradition extant of a serious conflict that once took place between a man and a wild cat the inhabitants say that the fight began in an adjacent wood and that the man and cat fought from thence to the porch of the church where each died of the wounds received a rude painting in the church commemorates the sanguinary event and the rud colour of some of the stones are of course said to be blood-stains which all the soap and water in the world would not remove in the reign of richard the second wild cats were reckoned among the beasts of the chase and there was an edict that no man should use more costly apparel than that made of lambs or cat skins in egypt cats were considered sacred to the goddess bubastus the egyptian diana her priestesses were vowed to celibacy they passed a great portion of their time attending on the cats of the temple mrs loudon suggests that hence perhaps may have ridden the idea that a fondness for cats is a sign of old maidism 
Apollo created the lion to terrify his sister Diana, and she turned his fearful beast into ridicule by mimicking it in the form of cats. Cats were dedicated to Diana not only when she bore her proper name, but when she was called Hecate. Witches who worshipped Hecate had always had a favorite cat. A very great number of cats, mummies discovered in Egypt, afford ample proof of the esteem in which pussy was held in the Thebes streets three thousand years ago. If one died a natural death, it was mourned for with merry ceremonies, among others the entire household, where the death took place, shaved off their eyebrows. If killed, the murderer was given up to the mob to buffet him to death. Cats were held sacred when alive, and when they died were embalmed and deposited in the niches of the catacombs. An insult offered by a Roman to a cat caused an insurrection among the Egyptians when nothing else could excite them. Cambyses gained Pelusis, which had previously successfully resisted all attacks, by the following stratagem. He gave to each of his soldiers employed in the attack a live cat instead of a buckler, and the Egyptians, rather than hurt the objects of their veneration, suffered themselves to be vanquished without striking a blow. Herodotus tells us that on every occasion of a fire in Egypt the strangest prodigy occurs with the cats. The inhabitants allow the fire to rage as long as it pleases, while they stand about at intervals and watch these animals, which, slipping by the men or else leaping over them, rush headlong into the flames. In some of the curious Egyptian pictures at the British Museum you may see the representation of cats being trained to catch birds. Cats are frequently trained in California to catch a species of burrowing pouched rat called a gopher, a destructive animal infesting fields and gardens. Cats so trained are very valuable. We are told that there was once a cape in the island of Cyprus which was called Cat Cape. A monastery stood here, the monks of which were compelled by their vows to keep a great number of cats to wage war against the snakes with which the island was swarming at the sound of a certain bell the cats came trooping home to their meals and then rushed out again to the chase when however the turks conquered the lands they destroyed both the cats and their home in the middle ages animals formed as prominent a part in the worship of the time as in the old religions of egypt the cat was a very important personage in religious festivals at aix in provence on the festival of corpus christi the finest tom-cat of the country wrapped in swaddling clothes like a child was exhibited in a magnificent shrine to public admiration every knee was bent every hand strewed flowers or poured incense and grimalkin was treated in all respect as the god of the day but on the festival of st john poor tom's fate was reversed a number of the tabby tribe were put into a wicker basket and thrown alive into the midst of an immense fire kindled in the public square by the bishop and his clergy hymns and anthems were sung and processions were made by the priest and people in honour of the sacrifice in the reign of howell the good who died in nine forty eight a law was made in wales fixing the price of the cat which was then of great scarcity a kitten before it got its sight was to cost one penny until a warranty was given of its having caught a mouse two pence after this important event four pence and a very high price too the times considered the cat, however, was required to be perfect in its senses of seeing and hearing, should be a good mouser, have its claws uninjured, and, if a lady pussy, be a good mamma. If, after it was sold, it was found wanting in any of these particulars, the seller was to forfeit a third of the purchase money. If any one stole or killed the cat that was guarding the prince's granary, the criminal forfeited a milch ewe in her fleece and lamb, or as much wheat as was poured upon a cat, suspended by its tail, would bury the animal to the top of its tail. In Abyssinia, cats are so valuable that a marriageable girl who is likely to come in for a cat is looked upon as quite an heiress. 
the resemblance between the tiger and the cat is so striking that little children first taken to the zoological gardens almost always call the tigers great cats and in their native woods tigers purr the domestic species require no description but one or two of the varieties may be mentioned the cat of angora is a very beautiful variety with silvery hair of fine silken texture generally longest in the neck but also long in the tail some are yellowish and others olive approaching the colour of the lion but they are all delicate creatures and of gentle dispositions mr wood while staying in paris made the acquaintance of an angora which ate two plates of almond biscuits at a sitting this breed of cats has singular tastes i know one that took very kindly to gin and water and was rather partial to curry he also ate peas greens and broad beans in moderation most cats are fond of asparagus the persian cat is a variety with hair very long and very silky perhaps more so than the cat of angora it is however differently coloured being of a fine uniform grey on the upper part with the texture of the fur as soft as silk and the lustre glossy the colour fades off on the lower parts of the sides and passes into white or nearly so on the belly this is probably one of the most beautiful varieties and it is said to be exceedingly gentle in its manners the chinese cat has the fur beautifully glossed but it is very different from either of those which have been mentioned it is variegated with black and yellow and unlike most of the race has the ears pendulous bosman writing about the ears says it is worthy of observation that there is in animals evident signs of ancestry of their slavery long ears are produced by time and civilization and all wild animals have straight round ears the tortoise-shell or spanish cat is one of the prettiest varieties of those which have the fur of moderate length and without any particular silvery gloss the colours are very pure black white and reddish-orange and in this country at least males thus marked are said to be rare though they are quite common in egypt and the south of europe this variety has other qualities to recommend it besides the beauty of its colours tortoise-shell cats are very elegant though delicate in their form and are at the same time very active and among the most attached and grateful of the whole race bluish-grey is not a common colour this species are styled chartreuse cats and are esteemed rarities the manx cat is perhaps the most singular its limbs are gaunt its fur close-set its eyes staring and restless and it has no tail that is to say there is only a sort of knob as though its tail has been amputated a black manx cat says a modern writer with its staring eyes and its stump of a tail is a most measly-looking beast which would find a more appropriate resting-place at kirk alloway or the black bay than at the fireside of a respectable household so it might fitly be the quadrupedal form in which the ancient sorcerers were wont to clothe themselves in their nocturnal excursions i read in an article by mr lord that there is a variety of tailless cats found in various parts of the world and he suggests that this deficiency may be due to an accident originally but perpetuated by interbreeding i am not quite of the same opinion it reminds one of the old saying it runs in the blood like wooden legs i recollect the case of a young gentleman who devoted his leisure evenings to cutting off cats tails in the neighbourhood in which he lived he hung them up in bunches to dry and had rare sport while it lasted in making the collection only some one who was a cat owner did not see the fun of it and put an end to the joke some young men think it a manly sport to kill or hunt down cats and by the way do you remember sir robert peel's memorable speech about the volunteers thus reported in hansards at hythe the first prize was carried off by a genuine cockney upon being asked how he had acquired his extraordinary skill and precision oh said he as he reported 
in the columns of the court journal i live in london and have had considerable practice in shooting at the cats of my brompton neighbours it was not perhaps of much consequence in the depth of winter continued sir r peel but no man could tell what a scene london would present in the height of the season everybody would be shooting at his neighbour's cat there would be the stoker of the railway rifles potting at the funnels of the north-western and we should have the finsbury filibusters fluking over cripplegate he trusted however that before that time a stop would be put to the volunteer movement etc etc cats do certainly seem to enjoy themselves on moonlight nights anyhow they make noise enough the cat was believed by the ancients to stand in some relation to the moon for plutarch says that the cat was the symbol of the moon on account of her different colours her busy ways at night and her giving birth to twenty-eight young ones during the course of her life which is exactly the number of the phases of the moon the ancients identified bubastus with the greek artemis or diana and each was regarded as the goddess of the moon bubastus was generally represented as a woman with a cat's head it might occur to some that puss is derived from the egyptian name pasht but perhaps it is better to acquiesce in the derivation from the latin pusus a little boy or pusa a little girl by others this term is thought to be a corruption of pers the french of cat is shot the german katze the italian gato the spanish gato and dutch and danish cat the welsh cath the latin catus the french of the puss is minette you have heard the story i suppose of the person who being told to decline the noun cat when he came to the vocative said o oh, cat on which he was reminded that if he spoke to a cat he would say puss mr bookton says that the only language in which the name of the cat is significant is the zend where the word gatu almost identical to the spanish gato means a place a word particularly significant in reference to this animal whose attachment is peculiar to place and not the person so strikingly indicated by the dog in some parts of lancashire a tom is still called a gib or gibbic cat the g being pronounced hard not jib as found in most dictionaries according to nary's gib the contraction of gilbert was the name formerly applied to a cat as tom is now and that tibert as given in reynard the fox was the old french for gilbert chaucer in his romance of the rose translates the berle cat by gib our cat shakespeare applies the words gibba to an old worn-out animal the term gib-face means the lower lip of a horse in mechanics the pieces of iron employed to clasp together the pieces of wood or metal of a frame which is to be keyed previous to inserting the keys are called gibs anyone curious upon the subject of gib-cats may find the subject treated at length in the etymologicon End of chapter 6chapter seven of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by ellen preckle the book of cats by charles henry ross chapter seven of some clever cats this domestic animal as dr johnson puts it quote, that catches mice unquote, can do many other things when it has a fair opportunity of distinguishing itself it is difficult but by no means impossible to teach a cat tricks i myself had a favourite cat lately dead which performed a variety of amusing feats though i must own that it was extremely coquettish and nine times out of ten refused to exhibit before a visitor invited specially to witness the little comedy many cats without teaching learn droll tricks 
Dr. Smelly tells of a cat that had learned to lift the latch of a door, and other tales have been related of cats that have been taught to ring a bell by hanging to the bell rope, and this anecdote is related by the illustrious Sam Slick of Slickville. It occurred several times that his servant entered the library without having been summoned by his master, and in all cases the domestic was quite sure he had heard the bell. Great wonderment was caused by this, and the servant began to suspect that the house was haunted. It was at length noticed that on all these mysterious occasions the cat entered with the servant. She was therefore watched, and it was soon perceived that whenever she found the library door closed against her, she jumped on to the window-sill and thence sprang at the bell. This feat was exhibited to several of the clockmaker's friends, for the cat, when shut out of the room, would at once resort to this mode of obtaining admission. My third story is a time-honoured one that almost every person who has written about cats has related. There was, once upon a time, a monastery, a cat, and a dinner-bell. Every day, at a certain hour, the bell was rung, and the monks and the cat had their meal together. There, however, came a time when during the bell ringing the cat happened to be locked in a room at the other end of the building. Some hours afterwards she was released and ran straight to the refectory to find, alas, nothing but bare tables to welcome her. Presently the monks were astonished by a loud summons from the dinner-bell. Had the cook in his absence of mind prepared another dinner? Some of them hurried to the spot where they found the cat swinging on the bell-rope. She had learnt from experience that there never was any dinner without a bell ringing, and by force of reasoning, no doubt, had come to the conclusion that the dinner would be sure to come if she only rang loud enough. But that story is not half so wonderful as another, about an Angora cat belonging to a Carthusian monastery in Paris. This ingenious animal discovered that when a certain bell rang, the cook left the kitchen to answer it, leaving the monk's dinners portioned out in plates unprotected. The plan the cat adopted was to ring the bell, the handle of which hung outside the kitchen by the side of a window, to leap through the window and back again when she had secured one of the portions. This little manoeuvre she carried on for some weeks before the perpetrator of the robbery was discovered, and there is no saying during this lapse of time how many innocent persons were unjustly suspected. Who shall say, indeed, but that the head of the establishment did not, as in the great jackdaw case, call for his candle, his bell, and his book, and in holy anger, in pious grief, solemnly cursed that rascally thief, as, you remember, the cardinal cursed the jackdaw. He cursed him at board, he cursed him in bed, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He cursed him in eating, he cursed him in drinking, he cursed him in coughing, in sneezing, in winking. He cursed him in sitting, in standing, in lying. He cursed him in walking, in riding, in flying. He cursed him in living, he cursed him in dying. Never was heard such a terrible curse. But what gave rise? to no little surprise. Nobody seemed one penny the worse. When, however, they found out that Pussy was the wrongdoer, and, unlike the jackdaw, had grown fat upon her misdeeds, they did not hang her, as you might suppose, though I have no doubt that course was suggested. On the contrary, they allowed her to pursue her nefarious career, and charged visitors a small fee to be allowed to see her do it. Out of evil sometimes may come good, but one would hardly think that the best way of making a person's fortune was to rob him. Cats have been frequently known to do their best to protect the property of their masters as well as dogs. A man who was imprisoned for a burglary in America stated after his conviction that he and two others broke into the house of a gentleman near Harlem. While they were in the act of plundering it, a large black cat flew at one of the robbers and fixed her claws on each side of his face. 
he added that he never saw a man so frightened in his life and that in his alarm he made such an outcry that they had to beat a precipitate retreat to avoid detection a lady in liverpool had a favourite cat she never returned home after a short absence without being joyfully received by it one sunday however on returning from church she was surprised to find that pussy did not receive her as usual and its continued absence made her a little uneasy the servants were all appealed to but none could account for the circumstance the lady therefore made a strict search for her feline friend and descending to the lower story was surprised to hear cries of puss answered by the mewing of a cat the sounds proceeded from the wine cellar which had been properly locked and keys placed in safe custody as the cat was in the parlour when the lady left for church it was unnecessary to consult a wise man to ascertain that the servants had clandestine means of getting into the wine cellar and that they had forgotten when they themselves returned to request pussy also to withdraw the contents of the cellar from that time forward did not disappear as quickly as they had been doing for some time previously a woman was murdered at lyons and when the body was found weltering in blood a large white cat was seen mounted on the cornice of a cupboard he sat motionless his eyes fixed on the corpse and his attitude and looks expressing horror and affright next morning he was still found there and when the room was filled by the officers of justice neither the clattering of the soldiers arms nor the loud conversation frightened him away as soon however as the suspected persons were brought in his eyes glared with fury and his hair bristled he darted into the middle of the room where he stopped for a moment to gaze on them and then fled precipitately the faces of the assassins showed for the first time signs of guilt they were afterward brought to trial condemned and before execution confessed in september eighteen fifty the mistress of a public-house in the commercial road london going late at night into the tap-room found her cat in a state of great excitement it would not suffer itself to be stroked but ran wildly to and fro between its mistress and the chimney-piece mewing loudly the landlady alarmed summoned assistance and presently a robber was discovered up the chimney upon his trial it was proved that he had robbed several public-houses by remaining last in the tap-room and concealing himself in a similar manner an old maiden lady rich and miserly had in the latter years of her life placed all her affections upon a cat she called minnie for which she had made a fine bed-place in the wainscot over a closet in the parlour where she kept the animal's provisions the food in question was stowed away in a drawer and under the drawer which served as minnie's safe was another very artfully concealed and closed with a spring to the latter the cat had often seen its mistress pay lengthened visits when the old lady died her heirs came to live in the house and minnie being no longer fed with the same regularity was often hungry and would then go and scratch at the drawer where its food had been kept the drawer being at length opened some pieces of meat were found within in a mummified state these having been given to the cat failed to console her and she scratched harder than ever at the secret drawer underneath and minnie's new masters in course of time understanding what she meant broke it open and found twenty small canvas bags of guineas snugly packed up within my authority does not say how minnie fared after this little discovery let us hope she was allowed her old sleeping-place and got her food with tolerable regularity but there's no knowing cats are very fond of creeping into out-of-the-way holes and corners and sometimes pay dearly for so doing once when repairing the organ in westminster abbey a dried cat was found in one of the large recumbent wooden pipes which had been out of tune for some time in one of the rooms at the foreign office some years ago there was for a long time a very disagreeable smell which was supposed to arise from the drains at length some heavy volumes being taken down from a shelf the body of a dried cat was found behind them the unfortunate animal had been shut up by accident and starved to death a prisoner like the heroine of the oak chest 
Mrs. Loudon, in her book of domestic pets, tells several amusing stories. Her mother, the writer says, had a servant who disliked cats very much, and in particular a large black cat, which she was in the habit of beating whenever she could do so unobserved. The cat disliked and feared the girl exceedingly. However, one day, when her enemy was carrying some dishes downstairs into the kitchen, and had both her hands full, the cat flew at her and scratched her hands and face severely. A strange cat had two kittens in a stable belonging to the house, and one day, pitying its wretched condition, Mrs. Loudon ordered her some milk. A large tomcat attached to the establishment watched the proceeding very attentively, and while the cat was lapping went into the stable, brought out one of the kittens in his mouth, and placed it beside the saucer, and then fetched the other, looking up into the lady's face and mewing when he had done so, as much as to say, you have fed the mother, so you may as well feed the children, which was done, and it should be added, for the credit of Tom's character, that he never attempted to touch the milk himself. But the best story is this. Mrs. Loudon had a cat which had unfortunately hurt its leg. During the whole time the leg was bad, that lady constantly gave it milk, but at last she found out that though the cat had become quite well, whenever it saw her it used to walk lame and hold up its paw as though it were painful to put it on the ground. A favorite cat, much petted by her mistress, was one day struck by a servant. She resented the injury so much that she refused to eat anything which he gave her, Day after day he handed her dinner to her, but she sat in sulky indignation, though she eagerly ate the food as soon as it was offered to her by any other person. Her resentment continued undiminished for upward of six weeks. The same cat, having been offended by the housemaid, watched three days before she found a favorable opportunity for retaliation. The housemaid was on her knees washing the passage, when the cat went up to her and scratched her arm to show her that no one should ill-use her with impunity. It is, however, but fair to record her good qualities as well as her bad ones. If her resentment was strong, her attachment was equally so, and she took a singular mode of showing it. All the tidbits she could steal from the pantry, and all the dainty mice she could catch, she invariably brought and laid at her mistress's feet. She has been known to bring a mouse to her door in the middle of the night, and mew till it was opened, when she would present it to her mistress. After doing this, she was quiet and contented. Just before the earthquake at Messina, a merchant of that town noticed that his cats were scratching at the door of his room in a state of great excitement. He opened the door for them, and they flew downstairs and began to scratch more violently still at the street door. Filled with wonder, the master let them out and followed them through the town, out of the gates, and into the fields beyond. But even then they seemed half mad with fright, and scratched and tore at the grass. Very shortly the first shock of the earthquake was felt, and many houses, the merchants among them, came thundering in ruins to the ground. A family in Calendar had in their possession a favorite tom-cat, which had, upon several occasions, exhibited more than ordinary sagacity. One day Tom made off with a piece of beef, and the servant followed him cautiously, with the intention of catching and administering to him a little wholesome correction. To her amazement she saw the cat go to a corner of the yard where she knew a rat-hole existed, and lay the beef down by the side of it. Leaving the beef there, he hid himself a short distance off, and watched until a rat made its appearance. Tom's tail then began to wag, and just as the rat was moving away with the bait, he sprang upon it and killed it. It one day occurred to the Monsieur de la Croix that he ought to try an experiment upon a cat with an air-pump. The necessity for her torture was not, however, so apparent to the intended victim of science as to the scientific experimenter. Therefore, when she found the air growing scarce, and discovered how it was being exhausted, she stopped up the valve with her paw. Then Monsieur de la Croix let the air run back, and Pussy took away her paw. 
but as soon as he began to pump she again stopped up the hole this baffled the man of science and there is no knowing what valuable discovery might have been made had not his feline friend been so very unaccommodating dr careri in his voyage round the world in sixteen ninety five says that a person in order to punish a mischievous monkey placed upon the fire a cocoa-nut and then hid himself to see how the monkey would take it from the fire without burning his paws the cunning creature looked about and seeing a cat by the fireside held her head in his mouth and with her paws took off the nut which he then threw into water to cool and ate it cats have always been famous for the wonderful manner in which they have found their way back to their old home when they have been taken from it and for this reason alone have often been accused of loving only the house and not its inmates it is more probable though i should think that the animal returns to the place because its associations there have been happy and in the confusion and strangeness of the new house it cannot comprehend that its old friends have come with it for instance i have known a cat when taken away from a house return to it and going from room to room mew pitifully in search of the former inmates when taken away a second time the new place having in the meantime been set straight it found nothing to frighten it there and returned no more to its old house i knew a person who was in the habit of moving about a great deal and hiring furnished houses who had a cat called sandy on account of his colour which he found in the first instance in a sort of half-wild state on hampstead heath mostly living up a tree it had been left behind by the people who had last occupied the house and locked out by the landlady it was about nine or ten years old and goodness knows how many dwelling places it may have had with its new friends i know of five or six changes and am told that it always made itself perfectly at home in half an hour after entering the new house it was taken from place to place in a hamper and the lid being raised would put out its head and sniff the air in the drollest manner getting out very cautiously it would then make a tour of the premises and inspect the furniture at the end of about half an hour it washed its face and seemed settled a lady residing in glasgow had a handsome cat sent to her from edinburgh it was conveyed to her in a close basket in a carriage the animal was carefully watched for two months but having produced a pair of young ones at the end of that time she was left to her own discretion which she very soon employed in disappearing with both her kittens the lady at glasgow wrote to her friend at edinburgh deploring her loss and the cat was supposed to have formed some new attachment about a fortnight however after her disappearance from glasgow her well-known mew was heard at the street door of her edinburgh mistress and there she was with both her kittens they in the best state but she herself very thin it is clear that she could carry only one kitten at a time the distance from glasgow to edinburgh is forty-four miles so that if she brought one kitten part of the way and then went back for the other and thus conveyed them alternately she must have travelled one hundred twenty miles at the least she also must have journeyed only during the night and must have resorted to many other precautions for the safety of her young mr lord relates a story of a cat living with some friends of his in a house on an island the family changed residence and the cat was sewn up in a hamper and taken round to the other side of the island in a boat the island was sparsely inhabited timbered and there were but few paths cut to traverse it by and yet the cat found its way during the night back again to its old residence there could have been no scent of footprints neither was there any road or path to guide it another cat was conveyed from its home in jamaica to a place five miles distant and during the time of its transport was sewn up closely in a bag between the two places were two rivers one of them about eighty feet broad deep and running strong the other wider and more rapid the cat must have swum these rivers as there were no bridges but in spite of all obstacles she made her way back to the house from which she had been taken 
In 1819 a favorite tabby belonging to a shipmaster was left on shore by accident while his vessel sailed from the harbor of Aberdour, Fifeshire, which is about half a mile from the village. The vessel was a month absent, and on her return to the astonishment of the shipmaster, Puss came on board with a fine stout kitten in her mouth, apparently about three weeks old, and went directly down into the cabin. Two others of her young ones were afterwards caught, quite wild, in a neighboring wood, where she must have remained with them until the return of the ship. The shipmaster did not allow her again to go on shore, otherwise it is probable she would have brought all her family on board. It was very remarkable, because vessels were daily going in and out of the harbor, none of which she ever thought of visiting till the one she had left returned. In a parish in Norfolk, not six miles from the town of Bungay, lived a clergyman, who, having a cat, sentenced it to transportation for life, because it had committed certain depredations on his larder. But the worthy gentleman found it far easier to pronounce the sentence than to carry it into execution. Poor Puss was first taken to Bungay, but hardly had got there when she escaped and was soon at home again. Her morals, however, had in no way improved, and a felonious abstraction of butcher's meat immediately occurred. This time the master determined to send the hardened culprit away to a distance, which, as he expressed it, quote, she would not walk in a hurry, unquote. He accordingly gave her, generous man, to a person living at Fakenham, a distance of at least forty miles. The man called for her in the morning, and carried her off in a bag that she might not know by which road he went. Vain hope! She knew well enough the way home, as he found to his cost, for directly the house-door was opened the next morning, she rushed out, and he saw no more of her. The night after a faint mewing was heard outside the minister's dwelling, but not being so rare an occurrence, no attention was paid to it. However, on opening the door next morning, there lay the very cat, which he thought was forty miles away, her feet all cut and blistered from the hardness of the road, and her silky fur all clotted and matted together with dust and dirt. She had her reward. However her thievish propensities might annoy him, the worthy vicar resolved never again to send her away from the house she loved so well, and she exerted herself so nobly to regain. The Reverend Mr. Wood furnishes some curious particulars of two commercial cats of his acquaintance, which he very comically describes. "'I will tell you,' says he, "'something about our mincing lane cats. Their home was in the cellar, and their habits and surroundings, as you may imagine from the locality, were decidedly commercial.' We had one cunning old black fellow, whose wisdom was acquired by sad experience. In early youth he must have been very careless. He was then always getting in the way of the men and the wine-cases, and frequently were the disasters he suffered through coming into collision with moving bodies. His ribs had often been fractured, and when nature repaired them she must have handed them over to the care of her prentice-hand, for the work was done in rather a rough and knotty manner. This battered and suffering pussy was at last assisted by a younger hero, which, profiting by the teachings of his senior, managed to avoid the scrapes which had tortured the one who was self-educated. These two cats, junior and senior, appeared to swear, cats will swear, eternal friendship at first sight. An interchange of good offices was at once established. Senior taught junior to avoid men's feet and wine cases in motion, and pointed out the favorite hunting grounds while Junior offered to his mentor the aid of his activity and physical prowess. Senior had a cultivated and epicurean taste for mice. Though he was too old to catch them, he therefore entered into a solemn league and covenant with the Junior to this effect. It was agreed between the two contracting powers that Junior should devote his energies to catching mice for the benefit of Senior, who, in consideration of such service, was to relinquish his claim to a certain daily allowance of cat's meat in favor of Junior. This courteous compact was actually and seriously carried out. 
it was an amusing and touching spectacle to behold young pussy gravely laying at the feet of his elder the contents of his game-bag on the other hand senior true to his bargain licking his jaws and watching junior steadily consuming a double allowance of cat's meat senior had the rare talent of being able to carry a bottle of champagne from one end of the cellar to the other perhaps a distance of a hundred fifty feet the performance was managed in this wise you gently and lovingly approached the cat as if you did not mean to perpetrate anything wicked having gained his confidence by fondly stroking his back you suddenly seized his tail and by that member raised the animal bodily from the ground his four feet sprawling in the air ready to catch hold of any object within reach you then quickly brought the bottle of wine to the seizing point pussy clutched the object with a kind of despairing grip by means of the aforesaid tail you carefully carried pussy bottle and all from one part of the cellar to the other pussy however soon became disgusted with this manoeuvre and whenever he saw a friend with a bottle of champagne looming he used to beat a precipitate retreat the reverend gentleman before quoted had at one time in his possession a marvellously clever little cat which he called prit and concerning which he relates a host of anecdotes from them are called the following prit knew but one fear and had but few hates the booming sound of thunder smote her with terror and she most cordially hated grinding organs and singular costumes at the sound of a thunderclap poor prit would fly to her mistress for succour trembling in every limb if the dreaded sound occurred in the night or early morning prit would leap on the bed and crawl under the clothes as far as the very foot if the thunder came on by day prit would climb on her mistress's knees put her paws round her neck and hide her face between them with deliberation she disliked music of all kinds but bore a special antipathy to barrel organs probably because the costume of the organ grinder was as unpleasing to her eyes as his doleful sounds were to her ears but her indignation reached the highest bounds at the sight of a greenwich pensioner accoutred in those grotesque happiness with which the crippled defenders of their country are forced to invest their battered frames it was the first time that so uncouth an apparition had presented itself to her eyes and her anger seemed only equalled by her astonishment she got on the window-sill and there chafed and growled with a sound resembling the miniature roar of a lion when thus excited she used to present a strange appearance owing to a crest or ridge of hair which then erected itself on her back and extended from the top of her head to the root of her tail which latter member was marvellously expanded gentle as she was in her ordinary demeanour prit was a terrible cat when she saw cause and was undaunted by size or numbers she had a curious habit of catching mice by the very tips of their tails and of carrying the poor little animals about the house dangling miserably from her jaws apparently her object in doing so was to present her prey uninjured to her mistress who she evidently supposed would enjoy a game with the mouse as well as herself for like human beings she judged the characters of others by her own this strange custom of tail-bearing was carried into the privacy of her own family and caused rather ludicrous results when prit became a mother and desired to transport her kittens from one place to another she followed her acquired habit of porterage and tried to carry her kittens about by the tips of their tails as might be supposed they objected to this mode of conveyance and sticking their claws in the carpet held firmly to the ground mewing piteously while their mother was tugging at their tails it was absolutely necessary to release the kittens from their painful position and to teach prett how a kitten ought to be carried after a while she seemed to comprehend the state of things and ever afterward carried her offspring by the nape of the neck at one time when she was yet in her kittenhood another kitten lived in the same house and very much annoyed prett by coming into the room and eating the meat that had been laid out for herself 
However, Pret soon got over the difficulty by going to the plate as soon as it was placed at her accustomed spot, picking out all the large pieces of meat and hiding them under the table. Then she sat down quietly, placing herself sentry over her hidden treasure, while the intruding cat entered the room, walked up to the plate, and finished the little scraps of meat that Pret had thought fit to leave. After the obnoxious individual had left the room, Pritt bought her concealed treasures from their hiding-place and consumed them with deliberation. Clever as Pritt was, she sometimes displayed a most unexpected simplicity of character. After the fashion of the cat tribe, she delighted in covering up the remainder of her food with any substance that seemed most convenient. She was accustomed, after taking her meals, to fetch a piece of paper and lay it over the saucer, or to put her paw in her mistress's pocket and extract her handkerchief for the same purpose. This little performance showed some depth of reasoning in the creature, but she would sometimes act in a manner totally opposed to rational actions. Paper or handkerchief failing, she has been often seen, after partly finishing her meal, to fetch one of her kittens and to lay it over the plate for the purpose of covering up the remaining food. When kitten, paper, and handkerchief were all wanting, she did her best to scratch up the carpet and lay the fragments over the plate. She has been known in her anxiety to find a covering for the superabundant food, to drag a tablecloth from its proper locality, and to cause a sad demolition of the superincumbent fragile ware. Please to remember that I have the above upon Mr. Wood's authority, not my own. Regarding the attachment of cats to places, the following remarks of the late Reverend Caesar Otway in his lecture on the intellectuality of domestic animals before the Royal Zoological Society of Ireland some years ago deserves attention. Of cats, he says, time does not allow me to say much, but this I must affirm, that they are misrepresented and often the victims of prejudice. It is strictly maintained that they have little or no affection for persons, and that their partialities are confined to places. I have known many instances of the reverse. When leaving, about fifteen years ago, a glebe house to remove into Dublin, the cat that was a favorite with me and my children was left behind in our hurry. On seeing strange faces come into the house, she instantly left it, and took up her abode in the top of a large cabbage stalk, whose head had been cut off, but which retained a sufficient number of leaves to protect poor puss from the weather. In this position she remained, and nothing could induce her to leave it, until I sent a special messenger to bring her to my house in town. At present I have a cat that follows my housekeeper up and down like a dog. Every morning she comes up at daybreak, in winter, to the door of the room in which the maid-servants sleep, and there she mews until they get up. I think I ought to conclude my chapter of Clever Cats with this story, which, though old, is funny. There was a lady of Potsdam living with her little children, one of whom, while at play, ran a splinter into her foot, causing her to scream violently. The elder sister was asleep at the time, but awakened by the child's cries, and while just in the act of getting up to quiet it, observed a favorite cat, with whom the children were wont to play, and which was of a remarkably gentle disposition, leave its seat by the fire, go to the crying baby, and give her a smart blow on the cheek with one of her paws, after which Puss walked back with the greatest composure and gravity to her place, as if satisfied with her own conduct, and with the hope of being able to go on with her nap undisturbed. End of chapter 7《Chapter Eight of the Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter Eight of Some Amiable Cats and Cats That Have Been Good Mothers. 
To lead a cat and dog life means a good deal of scratching and biting. But dogs and cats have been known to get on very amiably before now. There was a cat which had formed a very warm friendship with a large Newfoundland dog. She continually caressed him, advanced in all haste when he came home, with her tail erect, and rubbed her head against him, purring with delight. When he lay before the kitchen fire, she used him as a bed, pulling up and settling his hair with her claws to make it comfortable. As soon as she had arranged it to her liking, she lay down upon him and fell asleep. The dog bore this combing of his locks with patient placidity, turning his head towards her during the operation, and sometimes gently licked her. Pincher and Puss were sworn friends. Puss had a young family with whom Pincher was on visiting terms. The nursery was at the top of the house. One day there was a storm. Puss was upstairs with the babies, and Pincher was in the parlor. Pincher evidently was disturbed by the thunder. Presently Puss came downstairs mewing, went straight to Pincher, rubbed her cheek against his, and touched him gently with her paw, and then walked to the door, and looking back, mewed as though asking him to go with her. But Pincher himself was sorely afraid, and could render no assistance. Puss grew desperate, and having renewed her application with increased energy, but without success, at last left the room, mewing piteously, while Pincher sat, with a guilty face, evidently knowing his conduct was selfish. A lady, who had watched the scene, went out to look after the cat, when the animal, mewing, led the way to a bedroom on the first floor, from under a wardrobe in which a small voice was heard crying. Puss had brought one of her babies downstairs, and was racked with anxiety respecting its welfare while she fetched the others. It was as clear as possible she wanted Pincher to lend a paw, that is to say, look after this isolated infant while she brought down the rest. The lady took up the kitten in her arms and accompanied Puss upstairs, then moved the little bed from the window, through which the lightning had been flashing so vividly as to alarm Puss for the safety of her family. She remained with the cat until the storm had subsided and all was calm. On the following morning, the lady was much surprised to find Puss waiting for her outside her bedroom door, and she went with her downstairs to breakfast, sat by her side, and caressed her in every possible way. Puss had always been in the habit of going down with the lady of the house, but on this occasion she had resisted all her mistress's coaxing to leave the other lady's door, and would not go away until she made her appearance. She remained till breakfast was over, then went upstairs to her family. She had never done this before, and never did it again. She had shown her gratitude for the lady's care of her little ones, and her duty was done. A gentleman residing in Sussex had a cat which showed the greatest attachment for a young blackbird, which was given to her by a stable boy for food a day or two after she had been deprived of her kittens. She tended it with the greatest care, they became inseparable companions, and no mother could show a greater fondness for her offspring than she did for the bird. This incongruity of attachment in animals will generally be found to arise either from the feelings of natural affection, which the mother is possessed of, or else from the love of sociability and dislike of being alone, which is possessed, more or less, by every created being. A horse and cat were great friends and the latter generally slept in the manger. 
when the horse was about to be fed, he always took up the cat gently by the skin of the neck and dropped her into the next stall that she might not be in his way while he was feeding. At other times he was pleased to have her near him. Mr. Bingley tells of a friend of his who had a cat and dog that were always fighting. At last the dog conquered, and the cat was driven away. But the servant, whose sweetheart the dog disturbed, poisoned him, and his body was carried lifeless into the courtyard. The cat, from a neighboring roof, was observed to watch the motions of several persons who went up to look at him, and when all had retired, he descended and crept cautiously towards the body, then patted it with his paw. Apparently satisfied that the dog's day was over, Puss re-entered the house and washed his face before the fire. The Reverend Gilbert White, in his amusing book, tells of a boy who, having taken three little young squirrels in their nest, or dray, put these small creatures under the care of a cat that had lately lost her kittens, and found that she nursed and suckled them with the same assiduity and affection as if they were her own offspring. This circumstance, to some extent, corroborates the stories told of deserted children being nurtured by female beasts of prey who had lost their young, of the truth of which some authors have seriously vouched. Many people went to see the little squirrels suckled by the cat, and the foster-mother became jealous of her charge, and fearing for their safety, hid them over the ceiling where one died. This circumstance proves her affection for the fondlings, and that she supposed them to be her young. In like fashion, hens, when they have hatched ducklings, are as attached to them as though they were their own chickens. The first public exhibition of a happy family in England was once started at Coventry, about thirty-two years ago, and began with cats, rats, and pigeons in one cage. The proprietor of a happy family gave Mr. Henry Mayhew some amusing particulars on the subject. Among other things, he said that Mr. Monkey was very fond of the cat, probably for warmth. He would cuddle her for an hour at a time, but if Miss Pussy would not lie still to suit his comfort, he would hug her round the neck and try to pull her down. If then she became vexed, he would be afraid to face her, but stealing slyly behind would give her tail end a nip with his teeth. The cat and monkey were the best of friends as long as Miss Pussy would lie still to be cuddled and suit his convenience. The monkey would be Mr. Master in a happy family. For that reason, the proprietor would not allow either of his cats to kitten in the cage, because Mr. Monkey would be sure to want to know all about it, and then it would be open war. For if he went to touch Miss Pussy or her babies, there would be a fight. Now a monkey is always very fond of anything young such as a kitten, and he and Miss Pussy would want to nurse the children. The monkey liked very much to get hold of a kitten, and he would nurse it in his arms like a baby. The cats and the birds were good friends indeed, and they would perch on her back and even on her head and peck at her fur. A strange cat was introduced into the cage, and the moment she made her entry, she looked round in a scared way and made a dart upon the animal nearest her, namely the owl. The monkey immediately ran behind and bit her tail, and the other cat's hair swelled up, and they seemed on the point of flying at the stranger. The rats fled in terror, and the little birds fluttered on their perches with fear. A priest of Lucerne, I don't know how many hundred years ago, 
taught a dog, cat, mouse, and sparrow to eat out of the same plate. There is also a somewhat unsatisfactory legend of a maiden lady who induced twenty-two different animals to live together upon friendly terms. Lemery shut up a cat and several mice together in a cage. The mice in time got to be very friendly and plucked and nibbled at their feline friend. When any of them grew troublesome, she would gently box their ears. A German magazine tells us of an M. Hecart who tamed a wild cat and placed a tame sparrow under its protection. Another cat attacked the sparrow, which was, at the most critical moment, rescued by its protector. During the sparrow's subsequent illness, the cat watched over it with great tenderness. The same authority gives an instance of a cat trained like a watchdog to keep guard over a yard containing a hare, and some sparrows, blackbirds, and partridges. Captain Marriott, in his amusing way, relates this antidote. A little black spaniel had five puppies, which were considered too many for her to bring up. As, however, the breed was much in request, her mistress was unwilling that any of them should be destroyed, and asked the cook whether she thought it would be possible to bring a portion of them up by hand before the kitchen fire. In reply, the cook observed that the cat had that day littered, and that perhaps two puppies might be substituted. The cat made no objection, took to them kindly, and gradually all the kittens were taken away, and the cat nursed the two puppies only. Now the first curiosity was that the two puppies nursed by the cat were, in a fortnight, as active, forward, and playful as kittens would have been. They had the use of their legs, basked and gambled about, while the other three, nursed by their mother, were whining and rolling about like fat slugs. The cat gave them her tail to play with, and they were always in motion. They soon ate meat, and long before the others they were fit to be removed. This was done, and the cat became very inconsolable. She prowled about the house, and on the second day of tribulation fell in with the little spaniel who was nursing the other puppies. Oh, says Puss, putting up her back, it is you who have stolen my children. No, replied the spaniel with a snarl, they are my own flesh and blood. That won't do, said the cat. I'll take my oath, before any justice of the peace, that you have my two babies. Thereupon issue was joined, that is to say, there was a desperate combat, which ended in the defeat of the spaniel, and the cat walking off proudly with one of the puppies which she took to her own bed. Having deposited this one, she returned, fought again, gained another victory, and bore off another puppy. Now it is very singular that she should have only taken two, the exact number she had been deprived of. A lady had a tortoiseshell cat and a black and white one. A few years ago, the latter was observed to carry her kitten, when two or three days old, to her companion, who brought it up with her own kitten, though of a different age, with all the tenderness of a mother. This was done time after time for several years. But last year it was reversed, the black and white cat taking her turn to discharge the duties of wet nurse to the kitten of the other. It is probable that a deficiency of milk was the cause of the cats not suckling their young. I find in the leisure hour this story. 
A lady of the writer's acquaintance was once walking amid the scenery of the Isle of Wight, when she observed a little kitten curled up on a mossy bank, in all the security of a midday nap. It was a beautiful little creature, and the lady gently approached in order to stroke it, when suddenly down swooped a hawk, pounced upon the sleeping kitten, and completely hid it from her sight. It was a kestrel. Our friend was greatly shocked, and tried to rescue the little victim, but the kestrel stood at bay and refused to move. There he stood on the bank, firmly facing her, and all her efforts to drive him from his prey failed. The lady hurried on to a fisherman's cottage which was near at hand, and told of the little tragedy with the eloquence of real feeling. But the fisher-folk were not so disconcerted, and laughing said, "'It is always so.' that hawk always comes down if anybody goes near the kitten he has taken to the kitten and he stays near it at hand to watch whenever it goes to sleep the case was so remarkable that the lady inquired further into its history and learned that the kitten's mother had died and that the fisherman's family had missed the little nursling after some time they observed a kestrel hawk loitering about the cottage they used to throw him scraps of meat and they noticed that he always carried off a portion of every meal, dragging even heavy bones away out of sight. His movements were watched, and they saw that he carried the stores to the roof of a cottage. A ladder was placed, someone ascended, and there, nestling in a hole in the thatch, lay the lost kitten, thriving prosperously under the tender care of its strange foster-father. The foundling was brought down, and restored to civilized life, but the bandit protector was not disposed to resign his charge, and ever kept at hand to fly to the rescue whenever dangerous ladies threatened it with a caress. The following instance of maternal courage and affection is recorded in the naturalist's cabinet. A cat that had a numerous brood of kittens encouraged her little ones to frolic one summer day in the sunshine at a stable door. A hawk sailing by saw them. Swift as lightning, it darted down on one of the kittens and would have carried it off, but the mother, seeing its danger, sprang upon the common enemy, which, to defend itself, let fall the prize. The battle that followed was terrible, for the hawk, by the power of his wings, the sharpness of his talons, and the keenness of his beak, had for a while the advantage, cruelly lacerating the poor cat and it actually deprived her of one eye in the conflict. But Puss, no way daunted by this accident, strove with all her cunning and agility for her little ones, till she had broken the wing of her adversary. In this state she got him more within the power of her claws, the hawk still defending himself apparently with additional vigor, and the fight continued with equal fury on the side of the Grimalkin, to the great entertainment of many spectators. At length, victory seemed to favor the nearly exhausted mother, and she availed herself of the advantage, for by an instantaneous exertion she laid the hawk motionless beneath her feet, and, as if exulting in the victory, tore off the head of the vanquished tyrant. Disregarding the loss of her eye, she immediately ran to the bleeding kitten, licked the wounds inflicted by the hawk's talons on its tender sides, purring while she caressed her liberated offspring, with the same maternal affection as if no danger had assailed them or their affectionate parent. A lady writer says, Soon after I came to Middle Hill, 
a small tortoise-shell cat met my children on the road and followed them home. They, of course, when they saw her, petted and stroked her, and showed their inclination to become friends. She is one of the smallest and most active of full-grown cats I ever saw. From the first, she gave evidences of being of a wild and predatory disposition, and made sad havoc among the rabbits, squirrels, and birds. I have several times seen her carrying along a rabbit half as big as herself. Many would exclaim that, for so nefarious a deed, she ought to have been shot. But I confess to having the feelings of the unsophisticated Arab, the descendant of Ishmael, and as she had tasted of my salt and taken refuge under my roof, besides being the pet of my children, I could not bring myself to order her destruction. Before this we had discovered her lawful owner, a poor cottager, and had sent her back. But each time that she was sent away, she returned to our porch. So we made her, by purchase, legitimately ours. She seemed to be aware of the transaction, and from that time became perfectly at home and adopted civilized habits, though she still continued very frequently to indulge in a rabbit hunt. I had added a fine dog to my establishment to act as a watchman over the wood yard and stables. She and he were at first on fair terms, a sort of armed neutrality. In process of time, however, she became the mother of a litter of kittens. With the exception of one, they shared the fate of other kittens. When she discovered the loss of her hopeful family, she wandered about looking for them in a very melancholy way, till, encountering the dog Carlo, it seemed suddenly to strike her that he had been guilty of that act of barbarous spoilation. With backup, she approached and flew at him with the greatest fury, till blood dropped from his nose, and though ten times her size, he fairly turned tail and fled. Her surviving kitten was the very picture of herself, and inheriting also all her predatory habits. When it grew up, I was obliged to give it away. It left the house in the neighboring town to which I sent it, however, and was afterwards seen domesticated in a stable yard. Pussy and Carlo now became friends again. At least they never interfered with each other. Pussy, however, to her cost, still continued her hunting expeditions. The rabbits had committed great depredations in the garden, and the gardener had procured two rabbit traps. One had been set a considerable distance from the house, and fixed securely in the ground. One morning, the nurse heard a plaintive mewing at the nursery window. She opened it, and in crawled poor Pussy, dragging the heavy iron rabbit trap, in the teeth of which her forefoot was caught. I was called in and assisted to release her. Her paw swelled, and for some days she could not move out of the basket in which she was placed before the fire. Though suffering intense pain, she must have perceived that the only way to release herself was to dig up the trap, and then she must have dragged her heavy clog up many steep paths to the room where she knew her kindest friends, nurse, and the children, for whom she had the greatest affection, were to be found. Carlo was caught before in the same trap and he bit at it and everything around, and severely injured the gardener who went to release him, biting his arm and legs, and tearing his trousers to shreds. Thus, Pussy, under precisely the same circumstances, showed by far the greatest amount of sagacity and cool courage. She, however, not many weeks afterwards, 
came in one day with her foot sadly lacerated, having again got caught in a trap. So although she could reason, she did not appear to have learned wisdom from the experience. She was for long a cripple. Perhaps this last misfortune may have taught her prudence. Poor thing! She went limping about the garden, in vain endeavoring, and even in the frosty weather, to catch birds. I know of a young man who was accustomed to leave home on a Monday morning and return on the Saturday, and who had a cat that used to come home a few moments after him and watch him wash and dress himself, and then sleep on his clothes until the following Monday, when soon after the young man went away, the cat would go too, and not return all the week. I also know of a cat that once rushed into a house and took her seat between the master and mistress while they were at tea. From that time she took up her abode with them, and every afternoon a hamper in which she slept was heard to creak in a cellar below, and she would come up and partake of their afternoon meal. You have all heard of dog-stealers selling a dog and afterwards stealing it from the purchaser so as to sell it again to some other person. But I have had a story told me, upon good authority, of a certain dishonest owner of a very curiously marked French cat who made quite a nice little income by selling his feline property to the ladies in his neighborhood. You see, Pussy had no notion of what an unprincipled ruffian he was, nor what was the nature of the contract between him and her other owners. She loved him very much, and fretted in her new home, waiting impatiently for an opportunity, and at last, finding the door open, returned to her robber-master, rejoicing. He, worthy creature, also rejoiced at sight of her, and hugged her to his manly breast. Then he gave her some nice warm milk and a large slice of meat. Next day he sold her again, if he got a chance. This little game went on very comfortably for some months, and might have gone on longer had it not been for an awkward mistake. An old lady, who had been one of the purchasers of the cat, changed her residence and our ingenious friend, unaware of the circumstance, called upon her again and tried to resell her the animal. Thereupon, some unpleasantness occurred, and I believe the cat merchant got into trouble. End of chapter 8 Recording by Maria Chapter 9 of the Book of Cats This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Maynard The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross Chapter 9 Of Puss in Proverbs, in the Dark Ages, and in the Company of Wicked Old Women These are some of the best-known proverbs about cats. Care will kill a cat, one says, and yet cats are said to have nine lives. Let us hope that poor pussy will never be put to a worse death. A muffled cat is no good mouser. That cat is out of kind, that sweet milk will not lap. You can have no more of a cat than her skin. This proverb seems to refer to the unfitness of her flesh for food. Formerly the fur of the cat was used in trimming coats and cloaks. The catgut used for rackets and for the fine strings of violins is made from the dried intestines of the cat, the larger strings being from the intestines of sheep and lambs. Fain would the catfish eat, but she is loath to wet her feet. The cat sees not the mouse ever. 
when the cat winketh little wots the mouse what the cat thinketh though the cat winks a while yet sure she is not blind well might the cat wink when both her eyes were out how can the cat help it if the maid be a fool which means how can it help breaking or stealing that which is left in its way that that comes of a cat will catch mice a cat may look at a king an old cat laps as much as a young kitten when the cat is away the mice will play when candles are out all cats are gray otherwise joan is as good as my lady in the dark the cat knows whose lips she licks cry you mercy killed my cat this is spoken to those who play one a trick and then try to escape punishment by begging pardon by biting and scratching cats and dogs come together i'll keep no more cats than will catch mice or no more in a family than will earn their living who shall hang the bell about the cat's neck the mice at a consultation how to secure themselves from the cat resolved upon hanging a bell about her neck to give warning when she approached but when this was resolved on they were as far off as ever for who was to do it john skelton says but they are loath to mell and loath to hang the bell about the cat's neck fro dread to have a check a cat has nine lives and a woman has nine cats lives cats eat what hussies spare cats hide their claws the wandering cat gets many a rap the cat is hungry when a crust contents her he lives under the sign of the cat's foot that is to say he is henpecked his wife scratches him here are some french proverbs chat échaudé craint l'eau froide a burnt child dreads the fire ne réveillons pas les chats qui dorment let sleeping dogs alone la nuit tout chat sans gris molière says vous êtes vous mis dans la tête que léonard de pourceaugnac soit un homme a acheté chat en poche to buy a pig at a poke ce n'est pas à moi que l'on vendra un chat pour une lièvre don't think you can catch an old bird with chaff elle est friande comme une chatte she's as dainty as a cat payer un chat et un rat to pay in driblets appeler un chat un chat call a spade a spade avoir un chat dans la gorge something sticking in the throat shakespeare says letting i dare not wait upon i would like the poor cat is the adage again let hercules himself do what he may the cat will mew and dog will have his day the wisdom of our forefather teaches us that if a cat be carried in a bag from its old home to a new house let the distance be several miles it will be certain to return again but if it be carried backward into the new house this will not be the case a cat's eyes wax and wane as the moon waxes and wane and the course of the sun is followed by the apples of its eyes the brain of a cat may be used as a love spell if taken in small doses if a man swallow two or three cat's hairs it will cause him to faint as a cure for epilepsy take three drops of blood from under a cat's tail in water the horse ridden by a man who has got any cat's hair on his clothing will perspire violently and soon become exhausted if the wind blows over a cat riding in a vehicle upon the horse drawing it it will weary the horse very much to preserve your eyesight burn the head of a black cat to ashes and have a little of the dust blown into your eyes three times a day to cure a whitlow 
put the finger affected a quarter of an hour every day into a cat's ear. The fat of the wild cat, Axunja cati silvestris, is good for curing epilepsy and lameness. The skin of the wild cat worn as coverings will give strength to the limbs. Now about dreams. If anyone dreams that he hath encountered a cat or killed one, he will commit a thief to prison and prosecute him to the death, for the cat signifies a common thief. If he dreams that he eats cat's flesh, he will have the goods of the thief that robbed him. If he dreams that he hath the skin, then he will have all the thief's goods. If anyone dreams he fought with a cat that scratched him sorely, that denotes some sickness or affliction. If any shall dream that a woman became the mother of a cat instead of a well-shaped baby, it is a bad hieroglyphic and betokens no good to the dreamer. Stephen states that in some counties of England it used to be thought a good bit of fun to close up a cat in a cask with a quantity of soot, and suspend the cask on a line. Then he who could knock out the bottom of the cask, as he ran under it, and was nimble enough to escape its falling contents, was thought to be very clever. After the first part had been performed, the cat was hunted to death, which finished this diverting pastime. They were full of their fun once upon a time in Merry England. In an old-fashioned treatise upon rat-catching, I find mentioned a means of alluring of very material efficacy, which is the use of oil of rhodium, which, like the marum lyriacum in the case of cats, has a very extraordinary fascinating power on these animals. Among the Sympathetic Secrets in Occult Philosophy, published in the Conjurer's Magazine in 1791, I find a recipe to draw cats together and fascinate them, which is as follows. In the new moon, gather the herb neep, and dry it in the heat of the sun when it is temperately hot. Gather vervain in the hour of mercury, and only expose it to the air while the sun is under the earth. Hang these together in a net, in a convenient place, and when one of them has scented it, her cry will soon call those about her that are within hearing, and they will rant and run about, leaping and capering to get at the net, which must be hung or placed, so that they cannot easily accomplish it, for they will certainly tear it to pieces. Near Bristol there is a field that goes by the appellation of the Field of Cats, from a large number of these animals being drawn together there by this contrivance. One of the frauds of witchcraft was the witch pretending to transform herself into a cat, and this led to the cat being tormented by the ignorant vulgar. In 1618, Margaret and Philip Flower were executed at Lincoln. Their mother was also accused, dying in gold before, probably of fright added to old age and infirmity. It was asserted that they had procured the death of the Lord Henry Moss, eldest son of the Earl of Rutland, by procuring his right-hand glove, which, after being rubbed on the back of their imp, named Rutterkin, and which lived with them in the form of a cat, was plunged into boiling water, pricked with a knife, and buried in a dunghill, so that, as that rotted, the liver of the young man might rot also, which was affirmed to have come to pass." Those were dreadful times for the ill-looking old ladies, and the more so if they were unfortunate enough to have an affection for the feline race. A wrinkled hag of wicked fame, beside a little smoky flame, sat hovering, pinched with age and frost, her shriveled hands with veins embossed.
upon her knees her weight sustains while palsy shook her crazy brains she mumbles forth her backward prayer an untamed scold of fourscore year about her swarmed a numerous brood of cats who lank with hunger mewed teased with their cries her collar grew and thus she sputtered hence ye crew fool that i was to entertain such imps such fiends a hellish train had ye been never housed and nursed i for a witch had ne'er been cursed to you i owe that crowd of boys worry me with eternal noise straws laid across my pace retard the horseshoes nailed each threshold's guard the stunted broom the wenches hide for fear that i should up and ride the belief in witchcraft is a very ancient and deep-rooted one from the earliest times we can trace records of supposed acts of witchcraft and their punishment pope innocent the eighth in fourteen eighty four issued a bull empowering the inquisition to search for witches and burn them from the time of this superstitious act the executions for witchcraft increased the pope had given sanction to the belief in this demoniacal power and had asserted their possession of it in fourteen eighty five forty-one poor women were burnt as witches in germany an inquisitor in piedmont burnt a hundred more and was proceeding so fast with others daily that the people rose en masse and chased him out of the country about the same time five hundred witches were executed at geneva in the course of three months among the many who counterfeited possession by the devil for the purpose of attracting pity or obtaining money were agnes bridges and rachel pinder who had counterfeited to be possessed by the devil and vomited pins and rags but were detected and stood before the preacher at st paul's cross and acknowledged their hypocritical counterfeiting this happened in fifteen seventy four in fifteen years from fifteen eighty to fifteen ninety five remigius burnt nine hundred reputed witches in lorraine in germany they tortured and burnt them daily until many unfortunates destroyed themselves for fear of a death by torment and others fled the country ludovicus paramo states that the inquisition within the space of one hundred fifty years had burnt thirty thousand of these reputed witches the superstition continued on the increase and reached its culmination in the puritanic time of the commonwealth when persons more cunning and wicked than the rest gained a subsistence by discovering witches by pretended marks and trials they used and denouncing them to death the chief of these persons was matthew hopkins witch-finder general as he termed himself he was a native of Manningtree in Essex, and he devoted his pretended powers so zealously in the service of his country that in 1644 sixteen witches discovered by him were burnt at Yarmouth. Fifteen were condemned at Chelmsford, and hanged in that town and at Manningtree. Many more at Bury St. Edmunds in 1645 and 1646, amounting to nearly forty in all at the several places of execution, and as many more in the country as made up threescore in this work he was aided by one john stern and a woman who with the rest pretended to have a secret means of testing witchcraft nor was their zeal unrewarded by the weak and superstitious parliament mr hopkins in a book published in sixteen forty seven owns that he had twenty shillings for each town he visited to discover witches and owns that he punished many testing them by a water ordeal to see if they would sink or swim he says that he swam many and watched them for four nights together keeping them standing or walking till their feet were blistered the reason as he says was to prevent their couching down 
for indeed when they be suffered to couch immediately come their familiars in the room and scareth the watchers and hearteneth encourageth the witch this swimming experiment which was deemed a full proof of guilt if any one subjected to it did not sink but floated on the surface of the water was one of the ordeals especially recommended by our king james i who in a work upon the subject among other things assigned this somewhat ridiculous reason for its pretended infallibility that as such persons had renounced their baptism by water so the water refuses to receive them consequently those who were accused of diabolical practices were tied neck and heels together and tossed into a pond if they floated or swam they were guilty and therefore taken out and hanged or burnt if they were innocent they were drowned of this method of trial by water ordeal scott observes that a woman above the age of fifty years and being bound both hand and foot her clothes being upon her and being laid softly upon the water sinketh not a long time some say not at all and dr hutchinson confirms this by saying not one in ten even sink in that position of their bodies its utter fallacy was shown when the witch-finders themselves were thus tested and the last quoted writer says that if the books written against witchcraft were tested by the same ordeal they would in no degree come off more safely one of the most cruel cases was that of mr lowes a clergyman who had reached the patriarchal age of eighty he was one of those unfortunate ministers of the gospel whose livings were sequestered by the parliament and who was suspected as malignant because he preserved his loyalty and homilies of the church it would have been well for him had this been the only suspicion but he was accused of witchcraft and it was asserted that he had sunk ships at sea by the power he possessed and witnesses were found who swore to see him doing it he was seized and tested they watched him and kept him awake at night and ran him backwards and forwards about the room until he was out of breath then they rested him a little and then ran him again and thus they did for several days and nights together until he was weary of life and was scarce sensible of what he said or did they swam him twice or thrice although that was no true rule to try him by for they sent in unsuspected people at the same time and they swam as well as he yet was the unfortunate old clergyman condemned to death and executed in the book written some years after this by mr gall he mentions their mode of discovering witches which was principally by marks or signs upon their bodies which were in reality but moles scorbutic spots or warts which frequently grow large and pendulous in old age and were absurdly declared to be teats to suckle imps thus of one joan willamot in sixteen nineteen it was sworn that she had two imps one in the form of a kitten and another in that of a mole and they leapt on her shoulder and the kitten sucked under her right ear on her neck and the mole on the left side in the like place and at another time a spirit was seen sucking her under the left ear in the likeness of a little white dog see the wonderful discovery of the witchcrafts of margaret and philip flower sixteen nineteen another test was to place the suspected witch in the middle of a room upon a stool or table cross-legged or in some other uneasy posture and if she were refractory she was tied too by cords and kept without meat or sleep for a space of four and twenty hours all this time she was strictly watched because it was believed that in the course of that time her imp would come to suck her for whom some hole or ingress was provided the watchers swept the room frequently so that nothing might escape them and should a fly or spider be found that had the activity to elude them they were assured that these were the imps 
in sixteen forty five one was hanged at cambridge who kept a tame frog which was sworn to be her imp and one at gloucester in sixteen forty nine who was convicted for having suckled a sow in the form of a little black creature in a trial of witches at bury st edmunds sixteen sixty four a witness deposed to having caught one of these imps in a blanket waiting for her child who slept in it and was bewitched that it was in the form of a toad and was caught and thrown into the fire where it made a great and horrible noise and after a space there was a flashing in the fire like gunpowder making a noise like the discharge of a pistol and thereupon the toad was no more seen nor heard all of which was the simple natural result of this cruel proceeding but which was received by judge and jury at that time of the poor toad being an imp hutchinson in his essay on witchcraft says it was very requisite that these witch-finders should take care to go to no towns but where they might do what they would without being controlled by sticklers but if the times had not been as they were they would have found but few towns where they might be suffered to use the trial of the stool which was as bad as most tortures do but imagine a poor old creature under all the weakness and infirmities of old age set like a fool in the middle of a room with a rabble of ten towns about her home then her legs tied across that all the weight of her body might rest upon her seat by that means after some hours the circulation of the blood would be stopped and her sitting would be as painful as the wooden horse then must she continue in pain four-and-twenty hours without either sleep or meat and since this was their ungodly way of trial what wonder was it if when they were weary of their lives they confessed the many tales that would please them and many times they knew not what hopkins favorite and ultimate method of proof was by swimming as before narrated they tied together the thumbs and toes of the suspected person about whose waist was fastened a cord the ends of which were held on the banks of the river by two men whose power it was to strain or slacken it if they floated they were witches after a considerable course of wicked accusation on the part of hopkins and his accomplices testing all by these modes of trial and ending in the cruel deaths of many wretched old persons a reaction against him took place probably at the instigation of some whose friends had been condemned innocently or of those who were too wise to believe in his tests and disgusted with his cold wickedness his own famous and conclusive evidence the experiment of swimming was tried upon himself and this wretch who had sacrificed so many by the same test was found to be guilty too he was deservedly condemned and suffered death himself as a wizard dr harsnet archbishop of york in his declaration of popish impostures says out of those is shaped us the true idea of a witch an old weather-beaten crone having her chin and knees meeting for age walking like a bow leaning on a staff hollow-eyed untoothed furrowed on her face having her lips trembling with palsy going mumbling in the streets one that hath forgotten her paternoster and yet hath a shrewd tongue to call a drab a drab if she had learned of an old wife in a chimney end pax max fax for a spell or can say sir john grantham's curse for a muller's eels 
all ye that have stolen the miller's eels laudate dominin decolis and they that have consented thereto benedicamus domino why then beware look at you my neighbours if any of you have a sheep sick of the giddies or a hog of the mumps or a horse of the staggers or a knavish boy of the school or an idle girl of the wheel or a young drab of the sullens and hath not fat enough for her porridge or butter enough for her bread and she hath a little help of the epilepsy or cramp to teach her to roll her eyes wry her mouth gnash her teeth startle with her body hold her arms and hands stiff etc and then when an old mother knobs hath by chance call her idle young housewife or bid the devil scratch her then no doubt but mother knobs is the witch and the young girl is owl blasted etc they that have their brains baited and their fancies distempered with the imaginations and apprehensions of witches conjurers and fairies and all that lymphatical chimera i find to be marshalled in one of these five ranks children fools women cowards sick or black melancholic discomposed wits many hundreds of poor old women and many a cat were sacrificed to the zealous master hopkins for cats and kittens were frequently said to be imps who had taken that form however he was not the only scoundrel who made witch-finding a trade in sykes local recorder mention is made of a scotchman who pretended great powers of discovering witchcraft and was engaged by the townsmen of newcastle to practise there and one man and fifteen women were hanged by him but he ultimately shared as hopkins did the cruel fate he had awarded to so many others when the witch-finder had done in newcastle and received his wages he went into northumberland to try women there and got three pounds apiece but henry doyle esq laid hold on him and required bond of him to answer at the sessions he escaped into scotland where he was made prisoner indicted arraigned and condemned for such like villainy exercised in scotland and confessed at the gallows that he had been the death of above two hundred and twenty women in england and scotland here is an account of the death of a famous witch's famous cat ye rats in triumph elevate your ears exult ye mice for fate's abhorred shears of dick's nine lives have slit the cat's guts nine henceforth he muse midst choirs of cats divine so sings mr huddesford in a monody on the death of dick an academical cat with this motto me cat inter omnis it outshines all horace book one ode twelve he brings his cat dick from the flood and consequently through rutterkin a cat who was quote, catter cousin to the great 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 grandmother of grimalkin and first cat in the catterite of an old woman who was tried for bewitching a cat of the countess of rutland in the beginning of the sixteenth century Close quotes. The monodist connects him with cats of great renown in the annals of witchcraft, a science whereto they have been allied as closely as poor old women, one of whom, it appears, on the authority of an old pamphlet entitled Muse from Scotland, etc., printed in the year 1591, quote, confessed that she took a cat and christened it, etc., and that in the night following the said cat was conveyed into the midst of the sea by all these witches sailing in their riddles or sives, so left the said cat right before the town of Lythe in Scotland. This done there did arise such a tempest at sea as a greater hath not been seen since. 
again it is confessed that the said christened cat was the cause of the king's majesty's ship at his coming forth of denmark had a contrary wind to the rest of the ships then being in his company which thing was most strange and true as the king's majesty acknowledgeth for when the rest of the ships had a fair and good wind then was the wind contrary and altogether against his majesty etc all sorts of cats according to huddesford lamented the death of his favorite whom he calls premier cat upon the catalogue and who preferring sprats to all other fish had swallowed down a score without remorse and three fat mice slew for a second course but while the third his grinders died with gore sudden those grinders closed to grind no more and dire to tell commissioned by old nick a catalepsy made an end of dick calumnious cats who circulate faux pas and reputations maul with murderous claws shrill cats whom fierce domestic bras delight cross cats who nothing want but teeth to bite starch cats of puritanic aspect sad and learned cats who talk their husbands mad confounded cats who cough and croak and cry and maudlin cats who drink eternal eye fastidious cats who pine for costly cates and jealous cats who catechize their mates cat prudes who when they're asked the question squall and never give answer categorical uncleanly cats who never pare their nails cat gossips full of canterbury tales cat grandams vexed with asthmas and catars and superstitious cats who curse their stars cats of each class craft calling in degree mourn dick's calamitous catastrophe yet while i chant the cause of richard's end ye sympathizing cats your tears suspend then shed enough to float a dozen whales and use for pocket handkerchiefs your tails ah though thy bust adorn no sculptured shrine though vase thy relics rare to fame consign no reverend characters thy rank express nor hail thee dick d d nor f r s though no funereal cypress shade thy tomb for the wreaths of paradise shall bloom there while grimalkin's mew her richard greets a thousand cats shall purr on purple seats even now i see descending from his throne thy venerable cat o whittington the kindred excellence of richard hale and wave with joy his gratulating tail there shall the worthies of the whiskered race elysian mice over floors of sapphire chase midst beds of aromatic marum stray or raptured rove beside the milky way kittens than eastern houris fairer seen whose bright eyes glisten with immortal green shall smooth for tabby swains their yielding fur and to their amorous muse assenting purr there like alcmena's shall grimalkin's son in bliss repose his mousing labours done fate envy curse time tide and traps defy and caterwaul to all eternity to conclude this chapter an incident which took place only a few days ago in essex at a village within forty miles of london and which came under the personal knowledge of the writer may be adduced to show that however witchcraft may have been laughed away and laughter has been more effectual to rid the world of it than rope or stake there are still to be found individuals who believe in the evil powers of hook-nosed crones black cats and broomsticks in a squalid hut lived a miserable dame whose only claims to a demoniacal connection were her excessive age and her sombre cat whether the neighbors thought the cat was more of a witch than the woman or whether they had a wholesome dread of the punishment inflicted upon murderers it was upon the animal the bewitched ones determined to wreak their vengeance and then it was that the true satanic nature of poor puss appeared 
Traps were set to catch her, but she would not be caught. Ropes were purchased to hang her, but she would not bow her head to the noose. And finally, a blunderbuss was loaded to shoot her, loaded to the very muzzle. By conjurations and enchantments, when that gun was fired, it knocked the holder backwards and never injured the black cat. Another man tried, with the same result, and yet another. It was evident the gun was bewitched, so Pussy's murder was given up for the time, and with the exception of the tip of her tail, lost in one of the traps, passed the remainder of her life happy and unmutilated. End of chapter 9《Chapter Ten of the Book of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ellen Preckle. The Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross. Chapter Ten. Of a certain voracious cat, some goblin cats, magical cats, and cats of Kilkenny. Of all the great big stories that have been told of cats, that which describes the origin of cat's head apples is surely the greatest, biggest one. The legend runs thus. The widow Tompkins had a back room on the second floor. Her name was on a neat brass plate on one side of the door. Companion she had only one, a beautiful tomcat, who was a famous mouser, the dickens for a rat. His color was a tabby, and his skin as soft as silk, and she would lap him every day while he lapped the milk. One day she was disturbed from sleep with double rat-tat-tat, and she went in such a hurry that she quite forgot her cat. Poor Thomas, soon as daylight came, walked up and down the floor, and heard the dog's meat woman cry, Cat's meat at the door. With hunger he got fairly wild, though formerly so tame. Another day passed slowly, another just the same. With hunger he so hungry was, it did so strong assail, that although very loath, he was obliged to eat his tail. This whetted quite his appetite, and though his stump was sore, the next day he was tempted, sad, to eat a little more. To make his life the longer, then, he made his body shorter, and one after the other attacked each hinder quarter. He walked about on two forelegs, alas, without beholders, till more and more, by hunger pressed, he dined on both his shoulders. Next day he found the cannibal to eating more a check, although he tried and did reach all he could reach of his neck. But as he could not bite his ear, all mournfully he cried. Towards the door he turned his eyes, cocked up his nose, and died. The widow did at last return, and oh, how she did stare! She guessed the tale as soon as she saw Tom's head lying there. Quite grief sincerely heartfelt, as she owned his fate a harden. She buried it beneath an apple tree, just down her garden. So mark what strange effects from little causes will appear. The fruit of this said tree was changed, and strangely too next year. The neighbors say, tis truth, for their folks who go to chapels. This cat's head was the sole first cause of all the cat's head apples. The Cat and the Conjurer 
Gottfried Heller in Die Leute von Seldweiler tells a droll story. This is an abridgment of a popular author's version of it, published some years ago. One day, once upon a time, or thereabouts, the witch-finder of a certain Swiss town, himself secretly a wizard, was taking his afternoon's walk, when he came across a tomcat, looking very thin and miserable. This cat had once been the chief favorite of a rich old lady, who had trained him up in luxurious living. Now she was dead, and Tom's happy days were over. He was as shaggy and meagre as he had formerly been sleek and plump. Now you must know that cat's grease was, in those days, an invaluable ingredient for certain magical preparations, provided the cat to whom it belonged willingly made a donation of it. This proviso rendered good efficient cat's grease an exceedingly rare commodity, for though there might be no great difficulty in finding a fat cat, to find one willing to part with its fat was, of course, difficult enough. Here, however, was an animal in desperate circumstances, who might be accessible to reason. Therefore, says the magician, how much will you take for your fat? Why, I haven't got any, replied Tom, who, to tell the truth, was as thin as a hurdle. You may have, though, if you say the word, said the magician, and I'll tell you how. You see, he knew from experience that Tom was a cat who was capable of making flesh, for he had known him as round as a dumpling, so he made this bargain. He offered Tom a whole month's luxurious living, on condition that at the expiration of that time he should voluntarily lay down his life and yield up all the fat he had acquired during the four weeks. Of course Tom agreed, and the contract was signed on the spot. The apartment provided for Tom's lodging was fitted up as an artificial landscape. A little wood was perched on top of a little mountain which rose from the banks of a little lake. On the branches of the trees were perched dainty birds, all roasted and emitting a most savory odor. From the cavities of the mountains peered forth sundry baked mice, all seasoned with delicious stuffing and exquisitely larded with bacon. The lake consisted of the newest milk, with a small fish or two at the bottom. Thus, to the enjoyment of the epicure was added the excitement of imaginary sportsmanship. Tom ate his fill and more, and soon became as fat as the magician could wish. But before long, he became thoughtful. The month had nearly expired. At the end he was to die if fat enough. Ah, a bright thought. He would get thin again. With a wondrous strength of mind he refrained from eating the luxuries provided, took plenty of exercise on the housetops, and kept himself in excellent health, but much thinner than suited the wizard's fancy. Before long this gentleman remonstrated with Tom, pointing out to him very plainly that he was bound by all the laws of honor to get fat by the month's end. To this Tom had little to urge of any moment and the magician informed him that he would kill him at the appointed period, let him be in what condition he might. Tom, therefore, would gain nothing by being thin, and it was hoped that his good taste, unchecked by other considerations, would induce him to make up for lost time. Time rolled on, Tom behaved worse than ever, and when the fatal day arrived, he looked in worse condition than ever, a dissipated, abandoned, shaggy scamp without an ounce on his bones. The wizard could not stand this, so he thrust Tom into an empty coop and fed him by violence. 
In course of time the wizard was satisfied and began to sharpen his knife, but no sooner did Tom perceive this act than he began to utter such singular expressions of contrition that his proprietor paused to ask him to explain them. The cat, in wild terms, alluded to a certain sum of ten thousand florins lying at the bottom of a well, and the wizard wanted to know more about them. It appeared, then, that Tom's late mistress had thrown the sum he named to the bottom of a well, and informed her cat that should he find a perfectly beautiful and penniless maiden, whom a perfectly honest man was inclined to wed in spite of her poverty, then he should empty the contents of the well as a marriage portion. Of course this tale was false. The money existed where Tom had described, but it had been ill-gotten gold, with a curse upon it. But the wizard nibbled at the bait, put a chain round Tom's neck, and went to have a look at the treasure. There it was, sure enough, shining under the water. "'Are you quite sure that there are exactly ten thousand florins?' asked the magician. "'I've never been down to see,' replied Tom. "'I was obliged to take the old lady's word for it.' "'But where shall I find a wife?' asked the wizard. "'I'll find you one,' said Tom. "'Will you?' "'To be sure. Tear up that contract, though, to begin with.' The wizard, not without grumbling, drew from his pocket the fatal paper which Tom no sooner perceived than he had pounced on it and swallowed it whole, making at the same time the reflection that he had never before tasted so delicious a morsel in his life. In the neighborhood dwelt an old woman who was a witch, one of the ugliest old women you ever saw, who every night flew up the chimney on a broomstick and played Meg's diversions by the light of the moon. This lady had an owl who was a bird of loose principles, and had been an associate of Tom's in his gay days. This bright couple consulted together how they should persuade the ancient maiden to marry the old man. She never will, said the owl. Then we must make her, but how? We must catch her first, and take her prisoner, and that is to be done easily enough with a net, spun by a man of sixty years old, who has never set eyes on the face of a woman. Where are we to find him? just round the corner he has been blind from his birth when the net had been procured they set it in the chimney and presently caught the old lady and after much trouble they starved her into compliance then by magical art she put on an appearance of youth and beauty and the wizard married her in an ecstasy of delight but was he not in a fury when evening approaching she resumed her pristine ugliness and was he not disgusted at his bride in spite of the treasure she had brought him as for Tom, like many bad people, he lived happily ever afterward. Here is an abridgment of the famous tale of Puss in Boots. A miller died, leaving his youngest son nothing but a cat. The poor young fellow complained bitterly of his fate, but the cat bade him be of good cheer and procure a pair of boots and a bag. The youth contrived to do so. The first attempt Puss made was to go into a warren in which there was a great number of rabbits. He put some bran and parsley into his bag, and then, stretching himself out at full length as if he were dead, he waited for some young rabbits, who as yet knew nothing of the cunning tricks of the world, to come and get into the bag. Scarcely had he laid down before he succeeded as well as could be wished. A giddy young rabbit crept into the bag, and the cat immediately drew the strings and killed it without mercy. Puss, proud of his prey, hastened directly to the palace, where he asked to speak to the king. On being shown into the apartment of his majesty, he made a low bow, and said, I have brought you, sire, this rabbit, from the warren of my lord the Marquis of Carabas. 
who commanded me to present it to your majesty with the assurance of his respects one day the cat having heard that the king intended to take a ride that morning by the river's side with his daughter who was the most beautiful princess in the world he said to his master take off your clothes and bathe yourself in the river just in the place i shall show you and leave the rest to me the marquis did exactly as he was desired without being able to guess at what the cat intended while he was bathing the king passed by and puss directly called out as loudly as he could bawl help help my lord marquis of carabas is in danger of being drowned the king hearing the cries and recognizing the cat ordered his attendants to go directly to the assistance of my lord marquis of carabas and the cunning cat having hid his master's clothes under a large stone the king commanded the officers of his wardrobe to fetch him the handsomest suit it contained the king's daughter was mightily taken with his appearance and the marquis of carabas had no sooner cast upon her two or three respectful glances than she became violently in love with him the cat enchanted to see how well his scheme was likely to succeed ran before to a meadow that was reaping and said to the reapers good people if you do not tell the king who will soon pass this way that the meadow you are reaping belongs to my lord marquis of carabas you shall be chopped as small as mincemeat the king did not fail to ask the reapers to whom the meadow belonged to my lord marquis of carabas said they all at once for the threats of the cat had terribly frightened them puss at length arrived at a stately castle that belonged to an ogre whom he first persuaded to assume the form of a mouse and then cleverly gobbled him up before he could get back to his proper shape again the king's party soon after arrived the cat said the castle was his master's and the king was so much charmed with the amiable qualities and noble fortune of the marquis of carabas and the young princess too had fallen so violently in love with him that when the king had partaken of a collation he said to the marquis it will be your own fault my lord marquis of carabas if you do not soon become my son-in-law the marquis received the intelligence with a thousand respectful acknowledgments accepted the honour conferred upon him and married the princess that very day the cat became a great lord and never after pursued rats except for his own amusement i think too that the famous story of the white cat should also find a place in this little volume there once was a king the legend says who was growing old and it was told to him that his three sons wished to govern the kingdom the old king who did not wish to give up his power just yet thought the best way to prevent his sons from taking his throne was to send them out to seek for adventures so he called them all around him and said my sons go away and travel for a year and he of you who brings me the most beautiful little dog shall have the kingdom and be king after me then the three princes started on the journey but it is of the youngest of the three that i now have to tell he travelled for many days and at last found himself one evening at the door of a splendid castle but not a man or woman was to be seen a number of hands with no bodies to them appeared two hands took off the prince's cloak two others seated him in a chair another pair brought a brush to brush his hair and several pairs waited on him at supper then some more hands came and put him to bed in a fine chamber where he slept all night but still no one appeared the next morning the hands brought him into a splendid hall where there sat on a throne a large white cat who made him sit beside her and expressed herself glad to see him 
next day the prince and the white cat went out hunting together the cat was mounted on a fine-spirited monkey and seemed very fond of the prince who on his part was delighted with her wit and cleverness instead of dogs cats hunted for them these creatures ran with great agility after rats and mice and birds catching and killing a great number of them and sometimes the white cat's monkey would climb a tree with the white cat on his back after a bird a mouse or a squirrel this pleasant life went on for a long time every day the white cat became more fond of the prince while on his part the prince could not help loving the poor cat who was so kind and attentive to him at last the time drew near when the prince was to return home and he had not thought of looking for a little dog but the cat gave him a casket and told him to open this before the king and all would be well so the prince journeyed home taking with him an ugly mongrel cur when the brothers saw this they laughed secretly to each other and thought themselves quite secure so far as their younger brother was concerned they had with infinite pains procured each of them a very rare and beautiful little dog and each thought himself quite sure to get the prize when the day came on which the dogs were to be shown each of the two elder princes produced a beautiful little dog on a silk velvet cushion no one could judge which was the prettier the youngest now opened his casket and found a walnut he cracked this walnut and out of the walnut sprang a little tiny dog of exquisite beauty still the old king would not give up his kingdom he told the young princes they must bring him home a piece of cambric so fine it could be threaded through the eye of a needle and so they went away in search of such a piece of cambric again the youngest prince passed a year with the white cat and again the cat gave him a walnut when the time came for him to return home the three princes were summoned before their father who produced a needle the first and second princes brought a piece of cambric which could almost but not quite go through the needle's eye the youngest prince broke open his walnut shell he found inside it a small nutshell and then a cherry stone and then a grain of wheat and then a grain of millet and in this grain of millet a piece of cambric four hundred yards long which passed easily through the eye of the needle but the old king said he who brings the most beautiful lady shall have the kingdom the prince went back to the white cat and told her what his father had said she replied cut off my head and my tail at last he consented instantly the cat was transformed into a beautiful princess for she had been condemned by a wicked fairy to appear as a cat till a young prince should cut off her head and tail the prince and princess went to the old king's court and she was far more beautiful than the ladies brought by the other two princes but she did not want the kingdom for she had four of her own already one of these she gave to each of the elder brothers of the young prince and over the other two she ruled with her husband for the young prince married her and they lived happily together all their lives in mr morey's fairy tales there's a funny passage i wonder said a sparrow what the eagles are about that they don't fly away with the cats and now i think of it a civil question cannot give offence so the sparrow finished her breakfast went to the eagle and said may it please your royalty i see you and your race fly away with the birds and the lambs that do no harm but there is not a creature so malignant as a cat she prowls about our nests eats up our young and bites off our heads she feeds so daintily that she must herself be good eating she is lighter to carry than a bird and you would get a famous grip on her loose fur why do you not feed upon cat ah said the eagle there is sense in your question 
I had the worms to hear this morning, asking me why I did not breakfast upon sparrows. Do I see a morsel of worm skin on your beak, my child? The sparrow cleaned his bill upon his bosom, and said, I should like to see the worm who came with that inquiry. Come forward, worm, the eagle said. But when the worm appeared, the sparrow snapped him up and ate him. Then he went on with his argument against the cats. Everybody has heard of the Kilkenny cats, and how they fought in a saw-pit with such ferocious determination that when the battle was over nothing was remaining of either combatant except his tail. Of course we none of us suppose the tale is true, but some writers think that the account of the mutual destruction of the contending cats was an allegory designed to typify the utter ruin to which centuries of litigation and embroilment on the subject of conflicting rights and privileges tended to reduce the respective exchequers of the rival municipality bodies of Kilkenny and Irishtown separate corporations existing within the liberties of one city, and the boundaries of the respective jurisdiction of which had never been marked out or defined by an authority to which either was willing to bow the desperate struggles for supremacy of these parish worthies began a d thirteen seventy seven and they fought as only vestrymen can fight a little over three hundred years by the end of which time there was as you may suppose very little left of them but their tails for of course there was a disinterested third person to whom the affairs were referred for arbitration in the old way that the cats appealed to the monkey upon the great cheese question, who swallowed his huge mouthful. In the end it would appear that all the property of either side was mortgaged, and by-laws were passed by each party that their respective officers should be content with the dignity of their station, and forego all hope of salary, till the suit at law with the other pretended corporation should be terminated. Let this be as it may, one thing is certain. Kilkenny cats are quite as amiable nowadays as the cats of any other city in Great Britain. But there is another story of a great cat fight in the same neighborhood. One night in the summertime, all the cats in the city and county of Kilkenny were absent from their homes, and next morning a plain near the city was strewn with thousands of slain cats, and it was reported that almost all the cats in Ireland had joined in the fight as was shown by the collars of some of the dead bearing the names of places in all quarters of the island the cause of the quarrel is not stated but there are yet men alive who know persons since dead who actually inspected the field at least so they say time out of mind the cat has figured largely in our nursery annals from the days of hey diddle diddle and the house that jack built to the present moment there is some waggishness, by the way, in Mr. Blanchard's version of the second-mentioned rhyme, printed as sort of an argument in the book of the Drury Lane pantomime. Anon with velvet foot and Tarquin strides, subtle Grimalkin to his quarry glides. Grimalkin grim that slew the fierce rodent, whose tooth insidious Johann's sackcloth rent. Lo, how the deep-mouthed canine foes assault, that vest the avenger of the stolen malt stored in the hallowed precincts of that hall that rose complete at jack's creative call here stalks the impetuous cow with crumpled horn thereon the exacerbating hound was torn who bade the feline slaughter-beast that slew the rat predacious whose keen fangs ran through the textile fibres that involved the grain that lay in hands in violet domain
the cat is one of the principal of the dramatis personae in mr darcy thompson's droll nursery nonsense and some of the most ingenious pictures charles bennett ever drew are to be found in his nine lives of a cat there is some good fun for little folks in a small book called tales from catland with some masterly pictures from the graceful pencil of mr harrison weir and there is another work called cat and dog which i would recommend to all young readers of some other children's books in which pussy takes a prominent part it behooves not the writer of this volume to say very much for obvious reasons i may however remark that though a great admirer of the feline race the artist who illustrated the works in question and this has very limited notion concerning the way in which a cat should be drawn and has found after all his trouble that under his hand pussy transferred to wood is very wooden indeed it is some consolation to that artist however to reflect that hogarth's cats are anything but good ones by the way i always wonder when i look at that picture of the actress's dressing-room in the barn whether poor strollers were ever driven to such an expedient as that of cutting a cat's tail for the blood and if so how was it used in george cruikshank's bottle do you remember in the first scene how happily the cat and kittens are playing on the hearth and how in the next the kitten has disappeared and the cat a poor half-starved wretch is sniffing wistfully at an empty plate upon the table the change in pussy's fortune is a clever touch but of all cat pictures one of the same artist's illustrations to the brother may hughes greatest plague of life is that to be remembered i mean the one called the cat did it in the chapter about mrs burgess's tom there are a score and more of wonderful cat stories in the munchener bilderbogen and in other german books and who of those have seen them can forget granville's extraordinary animals so like cats and yet so human there were some pictures that charles bennett drew showing the gradual change of a human face into that of a beast in which it was astonishing to note how easily and with what a few lines the transformation could be effected i might make this book a great deal longer and more wearisome perhaps if i gave even the briefest outline of all the stories i have come upon during my long search but i believe that those to be found in these pages are among the best extant End of chapter 10。chapter 11 of the book of cats。this is a librivox recording。all librivox recordings are in the public domain。for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org。recording by ellen preckel。the book of cats by charles henry ross。chapter 11 。of pussy poorly and some curiosities of the cat's meat trade。so sickly cats neglect their fur attire。and sit and mope beside the kitchen fire. Bombastes Furioso. A writer on cats, when speaking of the necessity of administering physic in certain cases, says that the bare thought of so doing is sufficient to daunt at least nine-tenths of the lady cat-owners of the kingdom, and gives these directions to assist the timid fair one in her arduous task. Have ready a large cloth, and wrap the patient therein, whisping the cloth round and round her body, so that every part of her except the head is well enveloped, any one may then hold it between their knees while you complete the operation put on a pair of stout gloves and then with a firm hand open the animal's mouth wide poor pussy from the formidable nature of these preparations one would almost fancy that it was a full-grown tigress about to be doctored 
and its iron mouth required a firm hand to wrench apart the jaws. To such inexperienced ladies as could require these directions, the writer's further advice not to pour down the cat's throat too much at a time comes very seasonably, but I am not too sure that Pussy will not have choked for all that. When properly managed, says he, a sick cat may be made to take pills or any other drug without risk of a severe scratching on your part, and danger of a dislocated neck on the part of suffering grimalkin. I can readily understand that there is small fear of the cat's claws penetrating through five or six folds of stout calico, but about the safety of its neck I have my doubts. One, indeed, feels almost inclined to add, as a further safeguard for the trembling doctor, a suit of chain-mail or a diver's dress, such as the man wears who braves the dangers of the tank at the polytechnic. Seriously speaking, a lady who is kind to her domestic pets will have no trouble in giving them medicine. When they are kittens they should be taught to lie upon their backs, and in this attitude, with the head raised, the physic is easily enough administered. A sick cat, too, does not fly from those for whom it has an affection. On the contrary, I have always known cats to come for sympathy to those who nurse and feed them. Administer the physic with a teaspoon, if liquid, and be most careful when the dose has been given, to gently wash from the cat's face or breast any drop of the stuff that may have fallen there, so that she may not find the nasty taste lingering about her when she goes to clean herself, as otherwise she has the unpleasantness of the physic long after the doses have been discontinued. These are some of the complaints from which cats suffer, and the best methods to be adopted for their cure. A cat is sometimes affected by a sort of distemper which attacks it between the first and third month of its life. The cat or kitten, when thus suffering, refuses its food, seems to be sensitive of cold, and creeps close to the fire or hides itself in any warm corner. A mild aperient, small doses of brimstone, for instance, should be administered. Whilst ill, feed the cat upon light biscuit spread with butter. A little manna is a good thing if the cat will eat it, and the animal should be kept warm and quiet. If, however, you see the sick cat frequently vomiting, the vomit being a bright yellow frothy liquid, be very careful of the animal should she be a pet, for then the distemper is taking an ugly turn and requires special attention. Probably before long the sickness will change to diarrhea, which in the end will turn to dysentery if prompt measures be not taken. When the vomiting first comes on, give the cat half a teaspoon of common salt in about two teaspoons full of water, as an emetic for the purpose of clearing the stomach. Then, to stop the sickness, give half a spoonful of melted beef marrow free from skin. If this is not found sufficient, the dose may be repeated. Cats just reaching their full growth are liable to have fits. Male cats almost always have, at this time, a slight attack of delirium. When coming on, it may easily be known by an uneasy restlessness and a wildness of the eyes. In bad cases, the cat, when seized with delirium, will rush about with staring eyes, sometimes fly at the window, but more often fly from your presence and hide itself in the darkest place it can find. If it have a regular fit, with frothing at the mouth, quivering limbs, etc., as in a human being so attacked, Lady Cust recommends that one of the ears be slightly slit with a sharp pair of scissors and the thin part of the ear. You must then have some warm water ready and hold the ear in it, gently rubbing and encouraging the blood to flow. A few drops even will afford relief. During the attack the cat does not feel, nor does it resist in the least, therefore the most timid lady might perform this little operation without fear, but where the symptoms are not so violent, a gentle aperient may do all that is required. A good alternative for them is half a teaspoonful of common salt in two teaspoonsful of water as mentioned above, though in this case it will not cause vomiting. Female cats, Lady Cust says, are less subject to fits of delirium, and never have them after they have once nursed young ones, unless frightened into them, which all cats easily are. 
In this, however, I think she is mistaken, for I have had a cat so affected when nursing her second litter of kittens. Another cat of mine was seized with delirium, rushed suddenly out of the kitchen, and disappeared mysteriously for three days. At the end of that time, the servant going to light the fire under the copper, the animal crawled forth from the copper hole, very thin and weak, but otherwise seemingly cured of its strange complaint. All cats are subject to diarrhoea, and the signs of their so suffering are to be found in dull eyes, staring coat, and neglected toilette, and the animal is very likely to die of the complaint unless the proper remedies be applied. As soon as it is discovered, give the cat some lukewarm new milk, and a piece of fresh mutton suet, the suet the size of a walnut, to a teacup full of milk, melted and mixed in it. If the patient be too ill to lap, administer the mixture a teaspoonful every two hours. Take care not to give it too much as to make it sick. If there is no bile, you should give the cat, full-grown, a grain and a half of the grey powder used in such cases. If the diarrhoea still continue, Lady Cust suggests that a teaspoonful of chalk mixture used by human beings be tried with seven or eight drops of tincture of rhubarb and four or five of laudanum, every few hours until the complaint ceases. Cats will continue ill, her ladyship says, for a few days, their eyes even fixed, but still with watching and care they may be cured. A teaspoonful at a time of pure meat gravy should be given now and then, but not until nearly two hours after medicine to keep up the strength until appetite returns. There is a disease resembling the chicken-pox, which appears in the shape of eruptions upon a cat's head and throat. It is, in these cases, advisable to rub the bad places with flour of brimstone mixed with fresh hog's lard without salt. The cat will lick some of this ointment off and swallow it, which operation will assist the cure. Much of the necessity for physic is, however, avoided when the cat is able to get some grass to eat, without which, I believe, it can never be in good health. I have a tomcat which seems to be particularly partial to ribbon grass, but this, I should say, is quite an epicurean taste of his. According to Lady Cust, who is the greatest, indeed the only, authority on such matters, the hair swallowed by the cat in licking itself is conveyed into the stomach and intestines, where it remains in balls or long rolls, causing dullness and loss of appetite is digested easily by adhering to the long grass, or, if the mass is too large, as is often the case in the molting season, especially with Angora cats, it will be seen throwing up long rolls of hair with grass, perfectly exclusive of any other substance. But again the cat itself seems to know that grass is very needful for the preservation of its health. The food and prey it eats often disorder the stomach. On such occasions it eats a little grass, which, however, goes no further than the commencement of the esophagus. This is irritated by the jagged and saw-like margins of the blades of grass, and this irritation is, by a reflex action, communicated to the stomach, which, by a spasmodic action, rejects its vitiated secretion. It is very cruel and injurious to the mother to destroy the whole litter of kittens at once, unless it has some feline friend or relation to relieve it of its milk. One of its grown-up children or its husband will generally do so, without much persuasion. If deprived of this resource, however, the frequent destruction of the kittens will, in all probability, cause cancers, and in the end kill the cat. If the mother die, and the kittens be left orphans, they may easily be reared by hand. Feed them with new milk, sweetened with brown sugar. Plain milk is too astringent. To imitate the cat's lick, wipe the kittens with a nearly dry sponge and soap and water. A good way to feed them is to use a well-saturated fine sponge which the kittens will suck. The most common way, however, is to pour the milk gently down the throat from a pointed spoon. I knew a lady who fed a pet kitten from her mouth, and it grew up extraordinarily affectionate and sagacious. But I have seen many cases where a cat has conceived a strong affection toward a person who has never fed it, and scarcely ever noticed it. I lately heard on good authority of a case of a lady, 
one of whose cats came every morning to her bedroom door at six o'clock precisely, making so much noise mewing that it would awaken everyone in the house if she did not hasten to get up, open the door, and shake hands with it. After which ceremony it went quietly away. But as a rule these animals do not tax their master's good nature to such an extent. A pat on the head now and then, a kind word now and again, nothing more is required. Mr. Kingston says, I was calling on a delightful and most clever kind old lady, who showed me a very beautiful tabby cat, coiled up on a chair before the fire. Seventeen years ago, said she, that cat's mother had a litter. They were all ordered to be drowned, with the exception of one. The servant brought me that one. It was a tortoise shell. No, I said, that will always be looking dirty. I will choose another. So I put my hand into the basket, and drew forth this tabby. The tabby has stuck by me ever since, when she came to have a family she disappeared, but the rain did not, for it came pouring down through the ceiling, and it was discovered that Dame Tabby had made a lying-in hospital for herself in the thatched roof of our house. The damage she did cost us several pounds, so we asked a bachelor friend, who had a good cook fond of cats, to take care of Tabby the next time she gave signs of having a family, as we knew that she would be well fed. We sent her in a basket, well covered up, and she was carefully shut into a room, where she soon was able to exhibit a progeny of young mewlings. More than the usual number were allowed to survive, and it was thought that she would remain quietly where she was. But at the first opportunity she made her escape, and down she came all the length of the village, and I heard her mewing at my bedroom door early in the morning to be let in. When I had stroked her back and spoken kindly to her, off she went to look after her nurslings. From that day every morning down she came regularly to see me, and would not go away till she had been spoken to and caressed. Having satisfied herself that I was alive and well, back she would go again. She never failed to pay me that one visit in the mornings, and never came twice in the day, till she had weaned her kittens, and then every day she came back, and nothing would induce her to go away again. I had not the heart to force her back. From that day to this she has always slept at the door of my room. Never was there more evident affection exhibited in the feline race. With respect to a cat's food, I think it should not have too much meat, and I should prefer feeding it on scraps that have come from the table to buying cat's meat. If their taste be consulted upon the subject, almost all cats are passionately fond of lights, particularly as they grow old, and one elderly red-haired gentleman in particular, with whom I had once the honour of being acquainted, was in the habit of watching the pot whilst the lights boiled, with lively interest, sniffing the steam when the saucepan lid was raised, and licking his lips in anticipation of joys to come, when he could gorge himself to his heart's content. He was a very old gentleman, and enjoyed the privileges of age. He had unlimited lights supplied to him, and it was his habit to eat as much as he could possibly swallow, and then lie down within sight of the plate, and catch uneasy snatches of sleep, waiting until he could go on again with his orgy, but racked meanwhile by horrid fears lest anyone else should get at his food, and only dozing off, as the saying is, one eye at a time. This same red cat one day, when the servants were out and I was alone in the garden, came to me mewing in a strange sort of way, looking, as I thought, very anxious, and running backwards and forwards between me and the house. At last I followed him as he seemed to wish me to do. I accompanied him to the street door, where I found the butcher's boy waiting with the lights. In giving a cat the scrapings of dirty plates, it is as well, if you value the animal's life, to remove the fish bones, should there be any among the leavings. Very frequently, as most cats bolt their food, they get a bone sticking in their mouth or throat, of which they are unable to relieve themselves, and suffer much pain without their owners guessing at the cause of their discomfiture. A lady in a house I was staying at had a cat that got what was afterwards supposed to be a fish bone sticking in its mouth far at the back, in such a way that it was unable to close its jaws. 
for two or three days it remained in this state refusing all food and looking in a woeful plight indeed we afterwards supposed that it could not even lap but at the time although we made several examinations of the sufferer we could not discover what ailed it at last some one suggested seeking the aid of a veterinary surgeon whose dignity seemed just a little bit ruffled by being called in for a cat and who when he did come did not bring his instruments with him nevertheless he found out what was wrong and forcing open the cat's jaws put in his finger to loosen what he called a fishbone being rather fearful of getting a bite he was somewhat hasty and the bone jerked out flew into the air as he released his hold on the cat's head whereupon the cat caught the bone as it fell and instantly swallowed it leaving us until this day in the dark as to the size and nature of the bone and indeed rather doubtful whether it was a bone at all in cases where the cat is accidentally crippled or should be so ill that it were better to put it out of its misery at once the best plan is to send for a chemist who for a small sum would administer the poison upon your own premises i have known cases where man-servants entrusted to take the animals to the chemist's shop have thrown it down in the street or killed it with unnecessary torture themselves and pocketed the money they should have paid for the poisoning to administer the poison yourself is by no means a wise course as probably you may give too much or too little and in either case defeat your object i know for a fact that two medical students once barbarously practising experiments with poison on an unhappy cat twice poisoned the animal as they supposed and once actually buried it of course not very deeply after which it recovered again and crawled into the house rather to their alarm as you may suppose on the second occasion it happened in the dead of night those unable to procure the assistance of a doctor or chemist can easily drown a cat by putting it in a pail of water and pressing another pail down upon it care being taken of course to handle the cat gently so as not to alarm it before the last moment concerning the cat's meat trade mr henry mayhew gives many curious particulars of which the following are some of the most amusing the cat's meat carriers frequently sell as much as ten pennyworth to one person and there has been a customer to the extent of sixteen pennyworth this person, a black woman, used to get out on the roof of the house and throw it to the cats on the tiles, by which conduct she brought so many stray cats round about the neighbourhood that the parties in the vicinity complained of the nuisance. The noise of about a hundred strange cats, a little before feeding time about ten in the morning, was tremendous, and when the meat was thrown to them the fighting and confusion was beyond description. There was also a woman in Isington who used to have fourteen pounds of meat a day, the person who supplied her was often paid two and three pounds at a time she had often as many as thirty cats at a time every stray cat that came she would take in and support the carriers give a great deal of credit indeed they take but little ready money on some days they do not come home with more than two shillings one with a middling walk pays for his meat seven shillings six pence per day for this he has a half a hundred weight this produces him as much as eleven shillings sixpence so that his profit is four shillings which i am assured is about a fair average of the earnings of the trade one carrier is said to have amassed one thousand pounds at the business he usually sold from one and a half to two centimweight every morning so that his profits were generally from sixteen shilling to a pound per day but the trade is much worse now there are so many at it they say that there is barely a living for any a carrier assured mr mayhew he seldom went less than thirty and frequently forty miles through the streets every day the best districts are among the houses of tradesmen mechanics and labourers the coachmen in the mews at the back of the squares are very good customers the work lays thicker there said one carrier old maids are bad though very plentiful customers they cheapen the carriers down so that they can scarcely live at the business they will pay one halfpenny and owe another and forget that after a day or two 
the cat's meat dealers generally complain of their losses from bad debts their customers require credit frequently to the extent of one pound one party owes me fifteen shillings now said a carrier and many ten shillings in fact very few people pay ready money for the meat the best days for cat's meat business are mondays tuesdays and saturdays a double quantity of meat is sold on the saturday and on that day and monday and tuesday the weekly customers generally pay the supply of food for cats and dogs is far greater than may be generally thought why sir said one of the dealers can you tell me how many peoples in london on mr mayhew's replying upwards of two millions i don't know nothing whatever said the man about millions but i think there's a cat to every ten people ay and more than that and so sir you can reckon mr mayhew told him this gave a total of two hundred thousand cats in london but the number of inhabited houses in the metropolis was one hundred thousand more than this and though there was not a cat to every house still as many lodgers as well as householders kept cats he added that he thought the total number of cats in london might be taken at the same number as the inhabited houses or three hundred thousand in all there is not near half so many dogs as cats i must know for they all knows me and i serves about two hundred cats and seventy dogs mine's a middling trade but some does far better some cats has a hape-earth a day some every other day very few can afford a penn-earth but times is inferior dogs is better pay when you've a connection among em a cat's meat carrier who supplied me with information says the same writer was more comfortably situated than any of the poorer classes that i have yet seen he lived in the front room of a second floor in an open and respectable quarter of the town and his lodgings were the perfection of comfort and cleanliness in an humble sphere it was late in the evening when i reached the house i found the carrier and his family preparing the supper in a large morocco leather easy-chair sat the cat's meat carrier himself his blue apron and black shiny hat had disappeared and he wore a dress coat and a black satin waistcoat instead his wife who was a remarkably pretty woman and of very attractive manners wore a dolly varden cap placed jauntily on the back of her head and a drab merino dress the room was cosily carpeted and in one corner stood a mahogany crib with cane-work sides in which one of the children was asleep on the table was a clean white tablecloth and the room was savoury with the steaks and mashed potatoes that were cooking on the fire indeed i have never yet seen greater comfort in the abodes of the poor the cleanliness and wholesomeness of the apartment were the more striking from the unpleasant associations connected with the calling it is believed by one who has been engaged in the business for twenty-five years that there are from nine hundred to one thousand horses averaging two centum weight of meat each little and big boiled down every week so that the quantity of cats and dogs meat used throughout london is about two hundred thousand pounds per week and this sold at the rate of two and a half pence per pound gives two thousand pounds a week for the money spent in cats and dogs meat or upwards of one hundred thousand pounds a year which is at the rate of one hundred pounds worth sold annually by each carrier the profits of the carriers may be estimated at about fifty pounds each per annum the capital required to start in this business varies from one pound to two pounds the stock money needed is between five shillings and ten shillings the barrow and basket weights and scales knife and steel or blackstone cost about two pounds when new and from fifteen shillings to four shillings second hand mr mayhew also states the london dogs and cats meat carriers to number at least one thousand the slaughtermen he says are said to reap large fortunes very rapidly many of them retire after a few years and take large farms one after twelve years business retired with several thousand pounds and now has three large farms the carriers are men women and boys very few women do as well at it as the men the carriers are generally sad drunkards 
out of five hundred it is said three hundred at least spend a pound a head a week in drink one party in the trade told me that he knew a carrier who would spend ten shillings in liquor at one sitting the profit the carriers make upon the meat is at present only a penny per pound in the summer time the profit per pound is reduced to a halfpenny owing to the meat being dearer on account of its scarcity the following are as well as i can remember the words of an old song to the tune of cherry ripe that were sung in some play cat's meat cat's meat meat i cry on a skewer come and buy from hyde park corner to wapping wall all the year i cat's meat ball cat's meat cat's meat meat i cry on a skewer come and buy End of chapter 11chapter twelve part one of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by ellen preckle the book of cats by charles henley ross part one of chapter twelve of wild cats cat charming etc without entering into any very lengthened details i will here make room for a few natural history notes collected from various sources the cat belongs to the same family as the lion tiger panther leopard puma serval ocelot and lynx the tribe is perhaps one of the best defined in zoology all its members having characteristics of structure and habit not to be confounded with those of other animals the rounded head and pointed ears the long lithe body covered with fine silky hair and often beautifully marked the silent stealthy step occasioned by treading only on the fleshy ball of the foot the sharp retractile claws the large lustrous eyes capable from the expansive power of the pupil of seeing in the dark the whiskered lip the trenchant carnivorous teeth and the tongue covered with recurved horny prickles are common to all in their habits and manners of life they are equally akin they inhabit the forest and the brake sleeping away the greater parts of their time and only visiting the glade and open plain when pressed by hunger they are for the most part nocturnal in their habits being guided to their prey by their peculiar power of vision by their scent and by their hearing which is superior to that of most other animals naturally they are strictly carnivorous not hunting down their prey by a protracted chase like the wolf and dog but by lying in wait or by moving stealthily with their supple joints and cushioned feet till within spring of their victims on which they dart with a growl as if the muscular effort of the moment were painful even to themselves whether the attack be that of a tiger on a buffalo or that of a cat on a helpless mouse the mode of action is the same a bound with the whole body from the distance of many yards a violent strike with the forefoot a clutch with the claws which are thrust from their sheaths and a half tearing half sucking motion of the jaws as if the animal gloated in ecstasy over the blood of its victim this mode of life has gained for these animals the common epithets of cruel savage and bloodthirsty and has caused them to be looked upon by the uninformed as monsters in creation when its natural instincts shall die out then also will the tiger cease to exist and were the whole world peopled and cultivated equally with our own island the feline family would be limited to a single genus namely the humble cat 
but as things are at present constituted the valleys and plains of the tropics are clothed with an extensive vegetation supporting numerous herbivorous animals which could only be kept within the due limits by the existence of carnivora such as the lion tiger leopard and panther the distribution of the feline animals is governed by those conditions to which we have alluded and thus the puma inhabits the north american prairie the jaguar the savannas of south america the lion the arid plains of africa and asia the tiger and panther the tropical jungles of the old world the minor species as the ocelot and lynx have a wider range in both worlds while the domestic cat associates with man in almost every region with the exception of the latter none of the other genera have been tamed or domesticated so they are strictly wild beasts against which man wages a ceaseless war of extirpation it is true that in the east one species of leopard is trained for hunting but this only very sparingly and even then he does not follow the game by scent but is carried by the hunters and only let loose when he is within a few bounds of the animal it must not be inferred however that they are untamable for every creature is capable more or less of being trained by man provided it receives due attention and we have sufficient evidence in the wonderful feats performed by the lions and tigers of mr carter and van amberg that the feline are by no means destitute of intelligent docility the truth is there is no inducement to tame them and thus the cat the most diminutive of the family and the only one of direct utility to civilize is likely to continue as it ever has been the sole domesticated member the wild cat is more plentiful in the wooded districts of germany prussia and hungary than in any other part of europe it is found also in the north of asia and in nepal besides the true wild cat there are other species of felis which on account of their resemblance to the tiger are called tiger cats they are found in all parts of the world with the exception of europe the largest of this family is the rimau dahan an inhabitant of sumatra when full grown it measures over seven feet from nose to the tip of its tail which appendage however monopolizes three foot six of the whole it is nearly two feet high at the shoulders its colour is light grey striped and spotted with jet black one of the first specimens of this tiger-cat seen in england was brought here by sir stamford raffles who procured two of them from the banks of the benkulin river both specimens writes this gentleman while in a state of confinement were remarkable for good temper and playfulness no domestic kitten could be more so they were always courting intercourse with persons passing by and in the expression of their countenance which was always open and smiling showed the greatest delight when noticed throwing themselves on their backs and delighting in being tickled and rubbed on board the ship there was a small dog who used to play round the cage and with the animals and it was amusing to observe the playfulness and tenderness with which the latter came in contact with their inferior-sized companion when fed with a fowl that died they seized the prey and after sucking the head and tearing it a little amused themselves for hours throwing it about and jumping after it in the manner that a cat plays with a mouse before it is quite dead this species of cat never seems to look on man or children as his prey and the natives assert that when wild it lives chiefly on poultry birds and small deer the colour of the wild cat is more uniform than that of the domestic species on a ground colour of pale reddish yellow are dark streaks extending over the body and limbs forming pretty much the sort of pattern exhibited on the tiger's robe from the back of the neck to the spine a line of very dark spots extends to the tail which is short and bushy 
and has a black tip. The feet and insides of the legs are yellowish-gray. In the female, which is smaller than the male, the colors are not as distinct. The medium size of a full-grown male wildcat is as follows. Length of head and body, one foot ten inches. Length of head, three and a half inches. Length of ears, two and one-eighth inches. Length of tail, eleven inches. The wildcat affects rocky and densely wooden districts, living in holes or in hollow trees. According to Mr. St. John, a wild cat will sometimes take up its residence at no great distance from a house, and entering the hen-houses and outbuildings, carry off fowls, or even lambs, in the most audacious manner. Like other vermin, the wild cat haunts the shores of lakes and rivers, and it is thus, therefore, easy to know where to lay a trap for it. Having caught and killed one of the colony, the rest of them are sure to be taken, if the body of their slain relative be left in some place not far from their usual hunting-ground, and surrounded with traps, as every wild cat which passes within a considerable distance of the place will to a certainty come to it. America has several tiger-cats, foremost amongst which may be mentioned the ocelot. Two of these animals were kept at the Tower of London, at the time when that ancient fortress counted a menagerie among its other attractions, and of one of these Mr. Bennet gives the following description. Body when full-grown, nearly three feet in length. Tail rather more than one foot. Medium height about eighteen inches. Ground color of fur gray mingled with a slight tinge of fawn, elegantly marked with numerous longitudinal bands. The dorsal one continuous and entirely black. The lateral, six or seven on each side, consisting for the most part of a series of elongated spots with black margins, sometimes completely distinct, sometimes running together. The center of each spot is a deeper fawn than the ground color external to it. This deeper tinge is also conspicuous on the head and neck, and on the outside of the limbs, all of which parts are irregularly marked with full black lines and spots of various sizes. From the top of the head between the ears there pass backwards toward the shoulder two or more, frequently four, uninterrupted diverging bands, which enclose a narrow fawn-color space, with a black margin. Between these there is a single longitudinal, somewhat interrupted, narrow black line, occupying the center of the neck above. Ears, short and rounded, externally margined with black, surrounding a large central whitish spot. Under parts of the body, whitish, spotted with black, and the tail, which is of the same ground color as the body, also covered with black spots. This animal is a native of Mexico and Paraguay. Its home is the gloomiest depths of the forest, where all day long it lies quiet, but as night advances comes out to prey on birds and small quadrupeds. It is said to be a particularly cunning creature, and sometimes when other stratagems to replenish his larder have failed, to stretch himself all along the bough of a tree and sham death. The monkeys of the neighborhood have no greater enemy than the ocelot, therefore it is only natural that when they find him dead they would be much rejoiced, and call together their friends and relations to see the pretty sight. The treacherous ocelot is, however, meanwhile, keeping sharp watch through a tiny chink of his eyelids, and when the rejoicing is at its highest, he jumps, and before the monkey revelers can recover from their fright, at least a couple will feel the fatal weight of his paw. There are several ocelots, the painted, the grey, and the common among others. In captivity few animals are more surly and spiteful until they grow thoroughly well acquainted with their keepers, or others who court their notice. There is, however, one weapon keener than the sharpest sword, more potent than the Armstrong gun, more powerful than all the gunpowder and bullets ever made, 
and yet so simple, that the boy yet in pinafores may direct it. To this weapon the suspicious tiger-cat succumbs, and the name of this weapon is kindness. So armed the Reverend J. G. Wood conquered a body of ocelots exhibited at the menagerie. He says, several of these animals, when I first made their acquaintance, were rather crabbed in disposition, snarled at the sound of a strange step, growled angrily at my approach, and behaved altogether in a very unusual manner, in spite of many amicable overtures. After a while I discovered that these creatures were continually and vainly attempting the capture of certain flies which buzzed about the cage. So I captured a few large blue-bottle flies, and poked them through a small aperture in the cage, so that the ocelot's paw might not be able to reach my hand. At first the ocelots declined to make any advance in return for the gift, but they soon became bolder, and at last freely took the flies as fast as they were caught. The ice was now broken, and in a very short time we were excellent friends, the angry snarl being exchanged for a complacent, composed demeanour. The climax to their change of character was reached by giving them a few leaves of grass, for which they were, as I thought they would be, more anxious than for the flies. They tore the green blades out of my hand, and enjoyed the unaccustomed dainty undisturbed. After this they were quite at their ease, and came to the front of the cage whenever I passed. The Colo-Colo is another tiger-cat. It is an inhabitant of Guiana, and though not more than a third the size of the Rimao Dahan, it is a most formidable enemy to the smaller animals of the forests which it inhabits. It is related by Mr. Wood that a specimen of this creature was shot on the banks of a river in Guiana by an officer of rifles who stuffed it and placed the skin to dry on the awning of his boat. As the vessel dropped down the river, it passed under overhanging boughs of large trees, on which rested numerous monkeys. Generally, when a boat passed along a river, the monkeys, which inhabit the trees that border its banks, displayed great curiosity, and ran along the boughs so as to obtain a closer view of the strange visitant. Before the Colo-Colo had been killed, the passage of the boat had been attended, as usual, by the inquisitive monkeys. But when the stuffed skin was exhibited on the awning, the monkeys were horribly alarmed, and instead of approaching the vessel as they had done before, trooped off with prodigious yells of terror and rage. From this universal fear which the sight of the animal occasioned to the monkey, it may be conjectured that the Colo-Colo is in the habit of procuring its food at the expense of the monkey tribes. Of the tiger-cat in Africa, the serval may be taken as the type. It is about two feet long, exclusive of the tail, which measures nine inches, and is a foot in height at the shoulders. Its upper parts are clear yellow, and its underparts white. Its entire body is spotted with black. Among the Dutch settlers it is known as bashkat, or bushcat. It's an inoffensive creature, not easily irritated, and behaving generally like our own familiar grimalkin. The wild cat of Ireland would seem to be quite as savage a fellow as his Scotch cousin. In Maxwell's Wild Sports of the West is a story of one of these animals, which was killed after a severe battle. It was of a dirty gray color, double the size of the common house cat, and with formidable teeth and claws. It was a female, and was tracked to its burrow under a rock, and caught with a rabbit net. So flimsy an affair, however, was scorned by the fierce brute, which speedily rent a hole with its teeth and claws. It was about to run off when the lad who had set the snare seized it by the neck. It was finally dispatched by a blow of an iron spade. The lad, however, was so terribly wounded as to necessitate his removal to a hospital, where he for some time remained in peril of lockjaw. The following narrative is furnished by Mr. St. John. 
Once, when grouse shooting, I came suddenly in the rough and rocky part of the ground upon a family of two old and three half-grown wildcats. In the hanging birch wood that bordered some of the highland streams and rocks, the wildcat is still not uncommon, and I have heard their wild and unearthly cries echo afar in the quiet night as they answer and call to each other. I do not know a more harsh and unpleasant cry than the cry of the wild cat, or one more likely to be the origin of superstitious fears in the mind of an ignorant highlander. These animals have great skill in finding their prey, and the damage they do to the game must be very great owing to the quantity of food which they require. When caught in a trap, they fly without hesitation at any person who approaches them, not waiting to be assailed. I have heard many stories of their attacking and severely wounding a man when their retreat has been cut off. Indeed, a wild cat once flew at me in a most determined manner. I was fishing in a river in Sutherlandshire, and in passing from one pool to another had to climb over some rocky and broken ground. In doing so I sank through some rotten moss and heather up to my knees, almost upon a wild cat who was concealed under it. I was quite as much startled as the animal herself could be when I saw the wild-looking beast rush out so unexpectedly from between my legs, with every hair on her body standing on end, making her look twice as large as she really was. I had three small sky-terriers with me, who immediately gave chase and pursued her till she took refuge in a corner of a rock, where, perched in a kind of recess, out of reach of her enemies, she stood with her hair bristled out and spitting and growling like a common cat. Having no weapon with me, I laid down my rod, cut a good-sized stick, and proceeded to dislodge her. As soon as I came within six or seven feet of the place, she sprang right at my face, over the dogs' heads. Had I not struck her in mid-air as she leaped at me, I should probably have got some severe wound. As it was, she fell with her back half-broken among the dogs, who with my assistance dispatched her. I never saw an animal fight so desperately, or one so difficult to kill. If a tame cat has nine lives— a wild cat must have a dozen. That a long course of domestic drill is insufficient to win a cat from its native savagery is proved by the following scrap, lately culled from the Swansea Herald. A fight of more than ordinary interest took place on the bank of the canal near Kildwelly Quay a few days ago. A domestic cat, making her usual walk in search of prey along the embankment, was attacked by an otter of no small dimensions, and was in an instant tossed into the middle of the canal, and there had to fight, not for the belt, but for her life, in an uncongenial element. But very soon they were observed by some sailors and shippers, employed not far from the scene of contest, who hastened to witness the strange occurrence. Either from fear of the men or its formidable antagonist, the otter relinquished its hold, and poor Puss safely landed, amidst hearty cheers and congratulations. But Puss, not being content with the laurels she had won in the first contest, went out again on the following day, and, strange to say, the old combatants met again, and the otter, with undiminished pluck, attacked the cat on land. The contest became very severe, but ultimately the otter was glad to regain its watery refuge, and leave Puss the victor the second time, without suffering very considerably from an encounter with such a formidable foe. A writer on the subject of wild cats says when a domesticated creature is no longer found in the wild state anywhere like the camel and the llama or when a reasonable skepticism may be entertained respecting the species assumed to be its savage ancestor as is the case with the dog and the fowl the steps of all our reasonings march straight into a blind alley from which there is no issue 
except by turning back. I believe that there never was such an animal as a really wild pussy. The supposition involves an absurdity. Whose legs could she rub in a state of nature? On whose arrival could she set up her back and arch her tail, and daintily tread on the same little spot? From what carpet, Kidderminster or Brussels, could she gently pull the threads with her claws? In what dairy could she skim the cream? From what larder could she steal cold roast pheasant? And if she did not do these things, or some of them, would she be a genuine puss? No, no. I believe that Adam and Eve had a nice little tortoise-shell to purr between them as they sat chatting on a sunny bank, and that a choice pair of tabbies slumbered with half-shut eyes and their feet turned under them before the fire which was the centre of Noah's family circle on board the ark. Apropos of cat-charming or cat-taming, here are two anecdotes from Mr. Beaton's book. I have, said the writer, a vivid recollection of once charming a cat to within an inch of getting myself thoroughly well thrashed. There lived in our neighbourhood a kind-hearted old gentleman who was good enough to take a fancy to my ungrateful self, and would frequently invite me, he was a bachelor, to dine with him. The dining part of the business I had not the least objection to, but after dinner, when we had chatted till he fell into a doze, it became, to a boy nine years old, rather tedious. It was on one such occasion that I behaved so disgracefully. The old gentleman was nodding, with his slippered feet crossed lazily before the fire, and a fat tortoise-shell cat, his property, laying along the rug, placidly asleep, too. Had I been a good boy, I should have sat still and turned the leaves of Fox's Book of Martyrs till my friend awoke. But I was not a good boy. I felt myself like a martyr doomed to the dreadful torture of sitting still. I felt in my pocket for a top spring I had there, and for a minute or so amused myself by bobbing the button at the end of the string, on the nose of the tortoise-shell cat, till I had aroused that lazy animal to a state of extreme irritability. This sport, after a while, grew tame, so I shifted the string and allowed it to dangle within an inch of my host's feet. Really, it was done with scarce a thought, but the result was rather astonishing. The cat, who all the time kept her eyes on the tormenting string, no sooner saw it at a distance convenient to spring at than she made a bound, and, missing the cord, fiercely embraced one of the slippered members with ten of her talons. For the moment I was too frightened to weigh the possible consequences of laughing, and laughed outright, which, with the sudden bound the old gentleman gave, so alarmed the tortoise-shell cat that she flew toward the door like a mad cat. I doubt, however, whether its utmost agility would have saved it from the tongs with which its outraged master pursued it, had I not ashamedly explained the matter and begged forgiveness. I have certainly in my time made the acquaintance of some queerish cats, when quite a little boy there was attached to our house a quaint black-and-white cat, whose sole recommendation was that he was a magnificent mouser. Nay, to such lengths he would carry his passion for hunting as regularly to haunt a ditch that existed in the neighbourhood for the purpose of pursuing and capturing water-rats, which class of vermin he dispatched in a manner at once secured the death of the rat and himself immunity from the rat's teeth. Seizing the animal by the back of the neck, the cat, by a sudden wriggle, threw himself on his back, and at once transferred the custody of the rat from his mouth to his forepaws, holding it neatly behind the shoulders, while with his hind talons he cruelly assailed the unlucky animal's loins and ribs, till it ceased to struggle. 
I have stated that the cat in question was attached to our house, and that certainly was the extent of his intimacy, for he was attached to nobody residing there. Myself he particularly disliked, and although he never considered it beneath his dignity to steal any article of food from me, would never accept my overtures of friendship. I have reason to believe that this special dislike to me arose out of a pair of boots possessed by me in that period. They were creaking boots and fastened with laces. Whether it was that their loud creaking as I moved about the room in them reminded him of the squeak of rats, or whether, not being a particularly tidy boy, the before-mentioned laces were sometimes allowed to trail rats tail-wise, aggravatingly heightened the illusion, I can't say. I only know that as sure as I happened to allow my small feet to swing loosely while seated at breakfast or dinner, so surely would the black and white cat, if he were in the room, make a sudden dash at the hated boots, giving my leg a severe wrench in his endeavour to fling himself on his back, for the purpose of tearing the life out of them, after his own peculiar mode. My enemy was, however, finally subdued, and in a rather curious way. Someone brought me one of those difficult musical instruments known as a mouth-organ, and delighted with my new possession I was torturing it as I sat on a seat in the garden. Suddenly there appeared in a tree just above my head my foe, the black-and-white cat, with his tail waving from side to side, his eyes staring, and his mouth twitching in an odd sort of way. I must confess that I was rather alarmed, and in my nervous condition I might be excused if I construed the expression of the cat's countenance to intimate, Here you are, then, with another hideous noise, a noise that is even more suggestive of rat-squeaking than your abominable boots. However, I've caught you by yourself this time, so look out for your eyes. I did not, however, cease playing my organ. My enemy's green eyes seemed to fascinate me, and my tremulous breath continued to wail on the organ-pipes. Slowly the black-and-white cat descended the tree, and presently leaped at my feet with a bound that thrilled through me, and expelled a scream-like note from my instrument. But to my astonishment my enemy did not attack me. On the contrary, he approached the offending boots humbly, and caressed them with his head. Still I continued to play, and after every inch of my bluchers had received homage from the cat's hitherto terrible muzzle, he sprang on the seat beside me, and purred and gently mewed, and finally crept onto my shoulders and lovingly smelt at the mouth-organ as I played it. From that day hostility ceased between us. He would sit on my shoulders for half an hour together and sing, after his fashion, while I played, and I had only to strike up to lure him from any part of the premises where he might happen to be. There used to come to our house a young man who played the trombone, and having heard the story insisted that there was nothing in it, that all cats like music, and that savage as was our cat to strangers, he would be bound to conquer him with a single blast of his favorite instrument. Next time he came armed with the terrible-looking trombone, which our cat no sooner saw than, as I had predicted, for I knew his nature better than anyone else could, he took a violent dislike to it. A blast on the trombone, the effect was, as he prognosticated, instantaneous, though not perfectly satisfactory. The brazen note was immediately responded to by one equally loud from our cat, who appeared to regard it as a challenge to combat, and thickened his tail and bared his teeth accordingly at the same time, swearing and spitting dreadfully. I need not say that the trombone player was discomfited, while my fame as a cat charmer was considerably augmented. Poor pussy, her character is not often properly understood. As we read elsewhere, 
one or two common errors about cats may be noticed many persons will destroy them when anything is the matter with them whereas in many cases they would recover with a little care some think they do not drink much which is a mistake water should always be placed within their reach as to their want of attachment there is no doubt that is generally owing to the neglect if not worse treatment they often experience every animal will ordinarily return kindness for kindness and if persons will only try they will not find cats an exception but to knock an animal about or hardly ever to notice it and to punish severely any fault it may commit are not ways to attach it to you the writer has heard of more than one instance in which on its master's death a favourite cat has gone away and not been seen again there is a great diversity of character in cats as indeed in all animals as to the colour this is not of such importance as the shape she should be well-rounded compactly formed with small ears and fur of fine texture it sometimes happens that ordinary-looking cats have some very good qualities cats are very much afraid of each other two of them will often look at one another over a plate for a long time neither venturing to move or to take anything at other times they are great bullies one will get close up to another and scream into his ear until the other gradually shrinks back and runs off when he's got clear the chinese it seems says another writer learn the hour of the day by looking into the eyes of their cats but i imagine that if cats could speak chinese they would tell us not only what o'clock it is but also what is the day of the week when a boy i was a great pigeon keeper pigeon keeping in a town leads to excursions on roofs excursions over roofs led sometimes to neck breaking sometimes to strange discoveries our neighbour at the back was a large coach builder and the nearest buildings were his forges on weekdays i beheld during my airy rambles nothing but the blacksmiths hammering away at bolt and spring and tire and nail but on sundays except in case of inclement weather the warm tiles that covered the forges were tenanted by numerous parties of cats there they sat all day long admiring one another holding silent deliberations determining in their minds which partner they should select for the evening's concert and ball while daylight lasted it was a quaker's meeting silent and sober but after dark the darker the better leaps and friskings were audible with vocal effects of long swelling notes such as called forth in peter pinder's ode to the jewish cats of israel mendez whose opening line is singers of israel o ye singers sweet End of chapter 12, part 1chapter 12 part 2 of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by ellen preckle the book of cats by charles henry ross chapter 12 part 2 from monday morning till saturday night not a cat was to be seen they knew when sunday came round as well as i did from the low temperature of the tiles it is very common for cats to select one member of a family on whom they lavish all their fondness while toward the others they comport themselves with the utmost indifference i remember says a lady there was a cat with her kittens found in a hole in the wall in the garden of the house where my father-in-law lived one of the kittens being a very beautiful black one was brought into the house and almost immediately attached himself in a very extraordinary way to me i was in mourning at the time and perhaps the similarity of the hue of my dress to his sable fur might first have attracted him 
but however this may have been whenever he came into the room he constantly jumped into my lap and evinced his fondness by purring and rubbing his head against me in a very coaxing manner he continued thus to distinguish me during the rest of his life, and though I went with my father-in-law's family every winter to Dublin, and every summer to the country, the change of abode, to which cats are supposed to be averse, never troubled my favourite, provided he could be with me. Frequently, when we have been walking home after spending the evening out, he has come running down half the street to meet us, testifying the greatest delight. On one occasion, when I had an illness which confined me for upwards of two months to my room, poor Li Bu deserted the parlour altogether, though he had always been patted and caressed by every one there. He would sit for hours, mewing disconsolately at my door, and, when he could, he would steal in, jump upon the bed, testifying his joy at seeing me by loud purring and coaxing, and sometimes licking my hand. The very day I went down he resumed his regular attendance in the parlour. Another lady describes how her cat awoke her in the middle of the night. It sat down by the bedside and mewed while rubbing itself backwards and forwards against the bedposts. The lady had no idea what was the matter, but felt sure there was something, and lighting the candle found a dead mouse quite close to her. Satisfied that the lady had examined its capture, Puss took it off, and after playing with it for an hour, ate it up, leaving as usual the tail and paws. In the country or in the farmhouse, the cat will never fail to bring home birds and mice, and, in southern climes, lizards and even snakes. She does this, however, very much in proportion to the amount of kindness bestowed upon her at home, and if this be altogether lacking, the prey is only shown to other cats living in the same house, or to her own young, if she happens to have any. Often, indeed, she brings her trophy immediately and only to her young. There was a gentleman who had a tortoiseshell cat, which, though he never fed it or paid it much attention, formed an attachment for him equal to that of a dog. It knew his ring at the bells, and at whatever time he came home. It was rubbing against his legs long before the servant came, saw him into the sitting-room, and then walked off. It was a very active animal, and usually went bird-catching during the night, but when its master rose, which was generally early in the morning, the cat was always ready to receive him at the door of his room, and accompany him in his morning walk in the garden alternately skipping to the tops of the trees, and descending and gambling about him. When he was in his study, it used to pay him several visits in the day, always short ones, but it never retired till he had recognized it. If rubbing against his legs had not the desired effect, it would mount the writing-table, nudge his shoulder, and if that would not do, pat him on the cheek. But the moment he had shaken it by the paw, and given it a pat or two on the head, it walked off. When he was indisposed, it paid him several visits every day, but continued in the room, and although it was fond of society generally, and also of its food, it never obtruded its company during meals. Its attachment was thus quite disinterested, and no pains whatever had been taken to train it. Here is a curious anecdote culled from another source. I have at the present time about my house a cat that came into my possession under rather singular circumstances before we knew her we had a cat that gave perfect satisfaction it was a good mouser and an affectionate mother in the rear of our house there is a shed commonly used as a wood store and frequently at least once a day it is by no means a secluded place and the door through a weakness in its hinges is constantly ajar one morning there was discovered in the shed not only a strange cat but a strange kitten with its eyes open plump and about a fortnight old. 
the strange cat made no attempt to stir when the maid entered but lay suckling her baby and looking up with an expression that said plainly as cat language could a persecuted cat and her kitten at your service don't drive us out that's a good creature more singular still before the person appealed to could consider the case our own cat peeped into the shed and after deliberately walking up to the refugees and giving them a kindly touch with her nose walked back to the servant and commenced to rub against her purring the while as though to manifest her good will toward the strangers and to recommend a favorable consideration of their case so they were taken in as soon however as the novelty of the affair wore off it began to dawn on us that we did not require a houseful of cats though for that matter the four lived happily together which should we get rid of the strange cat's kitten was too big to drown and too little to send adrift our own topsy and her daughter must of course be retained so there was nothing left but to send away the strange she-cat she was rather a good-looking cat and that coupled with her known cleverness, gave us good ground for supposing she would soon find another home. It appeared, however, that we did not give her credit for being nearly so clever as she was. It was arranged that she should be conveyed in a basket to a certain square, about a quarter of a mile distant, and there left to seek her fortune. To the best of everybody's belief this arrangement was carried out to the letter. Therefore, the amazement of the entire household may be easily imagined, when— on reference being made to the cat cupboard to see how Topsy and her two young charges were getting on, to find no Topsy at all, only the strange cat and the two kittens. How the cheat had been accomplished it was impossible to say. That Topsy was not the cat placed in the basket was vouched for by two witnesses. One of them had held the basket lid open while the other pushed the animal in. Perhaps in my own mind I have little doubt how the business was so mauled, but I know that in certain quarters there exists a belief, either that by some sort of witchery the strange cat put on so topsical an appearance as to deceive her would-be smugglers, or that after she was basketed she managed to sneak out, and either by persuasion or force induced the unlucky Topsy to take her place. However it came about, the result is that the strange cat alone reigns at our house, to the jealous exclusion of all her species. No one, I believe, has any particular affection for her, but that circumstance is not observed to prey on her mind, or to interfere with her appetite. She devours her rations with the air of a cat that is conscious that she has earned them, and, as though she is aware, and rather gloried, than otherwise, in the knowledge that she is regarded as a cunning and maneuvering beast, that first, by hypocritical representations, induced an honest cat to obtain for her a situation, and afterward ungratefully contrived to push out her benefactress and progeny, and install herself in their place. From the Autobiography of Miss Cornelia Knight, Lady Companion to the Princess Charlotte of Wales, I take the following scrap. An old woman, who died a few years ago in Ireland, had a nephew, to whom she left by will all she possessed. She happened to have a favorite cat, which never left her, and even remained by the corpse after her death. After the will was read in the adjoining room, on opening the door, the cat sprang at the lawyer, seized him by the throat, and was with difficulty prevented from strangling him. This man died about eighteen months after this scene, and on his deathbed confessed that he had murdered his aunt to get possession of her money. The oft-quote lines by Gray should not be omitted from the book of cats. On the death of a favorite cat, drowned in a tub of goldfishes. T'was on a lofty vase's side, where China's gayest art had died, the azure flowers that blow, demurest of the tabby kind, the pensive Selima reclined, gazed on the lake below. 
her conscious tale her joy declared the fair round face the snowy beard the velvet of her paws her coat that with the tortoise vies her ears of jet and emerald eyes she saw and purred applause still had she gazed but midst the tide two angel forms were seen to glide the genie of the stream their scaly armour's tyrian hue though richest purple to the view betrayed a golden gleam the hapless nymph with wonder saw a whisker first and then a claw with many an ardent wish she stretched in vain to reach the prize what female heart can gold despise what cats averse to fish presumptuous maid with looks intent again she stretched again she bent nor knew the gulf between malignant fate sat by and smiled the slippery verge her feet beguiled she tumbled headlong in eight times emerging from the flood she mewed to every watery god some speedy aid to send no dolphin came no nereid stirred no cruel tom no susan heard favorite has no friend from hence ye beauties undeceived no one false step is ne'er retrieved and be with caution bold not all that tempts your wandering eyes and heedless hearts is lawful prize not all that glitters gold these verses are well known but those which follow are less often met with they are attributed to george tuberville and written somewhere about the beginning of the sixteenth century the lover whose mistress feared a mouse declareth that he would become a cat if he must have his desire if i might alter kind what think you i would be not fish nor fowl nor flea nor frog nor squirrel on the tree the fish the hook the fowl the lime twig doth catch the flea the finger and the frog the bustard doth dispatch the squirrel thinking naught that featly cracks the nut the greedy goshawk wanting prey in dread of death doth put but scorning all these kinds i would become a cat to combat with the creeping mouse and scratch the squeaking rat i would present i and at my lady's call to guard her from the fearful mouse in parlour and in hall in kitchen for his life he should not shew his head the peer in poke should lie untouched when she were gone to bed the mouse should stand in fear so should the squeaking rat all this would i do if i were converted to a cat but i think george must have been very far gone when he wrote that last piece of poetry for i should think that even with the advantage of nine lives to lose a cat's existence is rather too hazardous and by the way that reminds me of some instances where pussy's natural prey have turned upon her in a most unpleasant manner thus a cat was observed on the top of a paled fence endeavouring to get at a blackbird's nest which was near it the hen left the nest at her approach and flew to meet her in a state of alarm and uttered a wild cry the cockbird on perceiving the danger showed signs of distress by sometimes settling on the fence just before the cat who was unable to make a spring in consequence of the narrowness of her footing after a little while the cockbird flew at the cat settled on her back and pecked her head with so much violence that she fell to the ground followed by the blackbird who succeeded in driving her away a second time the same scene occurred the blackbird was again victorious and the cat became so intimidated at the attacks made upon her that she gave over the attempts to get at the young ones 
after each battle the blackbird celebrated his victory with a song and for several days afterwards he would hunt the cat about the garden whenever she left the house there is also an instance of a pair of blackbirds following a boy into a house and pecking at his head while he was conveying one of their young into it here is another case a lady who kept a tame jack hare in giving an account of it says that if a cat approached him he would sit upright square himself as it were and rub his paws together like a pugilist preparing for an encounter with one stroke of his soft but strong paws the hare would tear a strip of the hair and often even the skin from the cat's back at other times he would make his sharp cutting teeth meet in her neck and so formidable at last was the timid hare to the little domestic tiger that no sooner did pussy spy her conqueror than she would fly in terror from his presence in these two anecdotes as in many others pussy is exhibited in a very unamiable light but i hope that a few of the good traits i have been able to relate in the foregoing pages may weigh the balance in her favour with those inclined to judge her fairly as a cruel destroyer of smaller and weaker animals she is most often painted and so identified is she with that character that it is difficult to make those personally unacquainted with her many good qualities to believe that any exist in this way an actor famous for his villains becomes so very villainous that even in a virtuous character we suspect him of hypocrisy and expect that presently he will throw off the mask and assume his proper colours by the way of allusion to a cat on the stage, I think I can quote one of the most effective pieces that have been spoken. Do any of my readers remember Robeson acting in the burlesque of Medea? Upon the night of its production, Ristori went to the Olympic to see his travesty of her great character. One of the finest passages in the tragedy is that in which Medea describes how, like a tigress, she will spring upon her intended victim. In Robert Brow's version, the tigress is turned into a cat, and Robeson, with one of his intensely passionate bursts, used words, as well as I can recollect, I have not got a book by me, in something after this fashion. How will I, eh, the way the cat jumps, upon a simple unsuspecting mouse, loose in the pantry, no one in the house, nibbling away with confidence unshaken, eating his cheese up first to save his bacon? She's in no hurry, with dilating eyes, and undulating tail she crouching lies, till his enjoyment's crises he is at, then pounce she makes a spring, and has him pat. To a short game of pitch and toss she treats him, tears him to pieces slowly, scrunch, then eats him. While upon the subject of the theatre I might add that it is a rule behind the scenes, a rule, however, very seldom enforced, if I am properly informed, that a cat which crosses the scene when the curtain is raised shall be put to death. Such an inappropriate appearance has, before now, spoilt the finest tragedy. I think there is a story by Colonel Addison bearing upon an incident of this kind. The Old Catch When a good housewife sees a rat in a trap in the morning taken, with pleasure her heart goes pitty-pitty-pat, for revenge of loss of bacon. Then she throws it to the dog or cat, to be worried, eaten, or shaken. Tolerably well indicates the popular notion of a cat's duties, and the idea of keeping one for a pet, as birds are kept, would be thought by many a monstrous absurdity. By the way, it is said that the best way to get rid of English rats is not to get a dog or cat to kill them, but to purchase two or three Australian rats, and let them loose among them. They are to be purchased in London, and realize a high price from those who have faith in their frightening propensities, which I confess I have not.
With respect to pussy's mouse-catching qualities, etc., a writer in a periodical says, Most persons have heard of the beautiful contrivance by which the claws of these animals are preserved, constantly sharp, being drawn when not in use by certain tendons within a sheath or integument, while only the soft parts of the foot come in contact with the ground, thus enabling the animal to tread noiselessly. The roughness of the cat's tongue is due to a multitude of horny papillae, much stronger, of course, in lions and tigers, by which it is materially helped to keep itself clean. A most important point for cleanliness is a necessity to cats, inasmuch as if they had the slightest smell about them, their prey would detect their presence and never come within their reach. As it is, the cat is so free from smell that she may sit close to the holes of mice without their being aware of it, although they possess a fine sense of smell. A cat never eats a morsel of anything, whatever it is, without afterwards sitting down to clean and wipe its face and lips. The caution for which it is so remarkable is likewise evinced in its choice of secluded spots for bringing up its offspring, very often some hole or corner little thought of by the inmates of the house. If the young be removed and placed elsewhere, the mother will frequently take them again and again to the place chosen by herself. Another characteristic of the domestic cat is an instinctive knowledge of the presence of danger. Even a chimney on fire, or the presence of strange workmen in the house, will make it very restless and uneasy, and on such occasion it will sometimes not go to rest, even during the night. Every animal is endowed with peculiar means of self-defense, and, as the cat cannot trust, like the hare, to speed on the approach of danger, it watches its enemy, occasionally taking side glances, or looking round for a place of refuge. On these occasions, notwithstanding its natural nervousness, it maintains great coolness. If a hole or shelter be near, it waits for an opportunity, or until its enemy looks away, and then rushes under cover, or runs up a tree or a wall, and immediately sits down and watches its enemy. If driven to an actual encounter, the smallness of its mouth and jaws preclude the use of its teeth to any great extent, but it can inflict considerable injury and acute pain with its sharp claws, which perhaps no dog except a bulldog can bear. Indeed, few dogs like to attack a cat at bay, though they all run after them. It is curious, too, that once in a place of safety, it never seeks to leave it or loses sight of its enemy. A cat on the safe side of an area railing will sit down and coolly watch a dog barking furiously at it. Its care and solicitude for its offspring are excessive and touching. If attacked while rearing them, it will not run away, but stand and defend them against any odds, like the hare in similar circumstances. The cat evinces immense power and courage, no matter how formidable the enemy may be. Of course the females of all animals possess more or less of this quality. Cats have a much better time of it in France than here. A year or two since, the budget of the Imperial Printing Office in France, amongst other items, contained one for cats, which caused some merriment in the legislative chamber during its discussion. According to the pays, these cats are kept for the purpose of destroying the numerous rats and mice which infest the premises, and cause considerable damage to the large stock of paper which is always kept there. This feline staff is fed twice a day, and a man is employed to look after them, so that for cat's meat and the keeper's salary no little expense is annually incurred, sufficient, in fact, to form a special item in the national expenditure. Of these animals a somewhat interesting anecdote is related. It appears that near to the imperial printing office is situated the office for the director of the archives, and the gardens of the two establishments are adjacent. 
in that belonging to the latter gentleman were kept a number of choice aquatic birds for whose convenience a small artificial river had been constructed their owner suddenly discovered one day that his favourites were diminishing in a mysterious manner and set a watch to ascertain the reason soon it was discovered who were the marauders the cats the enraged director acting in the spirit of the law thought he had a perfect right to shoot and otherwise destroy these feline burglars whenever he found them on his grounds and accordingly did so traps were set and soon half a dozen cats paid the penalty of their crimes the keeper of the cats also by this time found that the muster at meal-times was much scantier than usual and reported to his superior the director of the printing office at first the workmen were suspected of killing them but the appearance one day of a cat with a broken snare around its neck put the keeper on a fresh scent and ultimately led to the discovery of the truth the director thereupon complained to his brother official who only replied by pointing to the thinly tenanted pond and saying that he would not have his birds destroyed if he could help it the result was that a fierce hostility reigned between the two establishments until an arrangement was made by their respective heads by this treaty it was stipulated that the director of the imperial printing office should on his part cause every outlet by which the cats gained access to the gardens of the director of the archives to be carefully closed and every means taken to prevent such a contingency while on the other hand monsieur the director of the archives agreed never to molest any cat belonging to the imperial printing office who should by some unforeseen accident obtain admittance into his garden and thus by this famous treaty the horrors of civil war were averted perhaps as curious an instance as any on record where puss's powers as a watchman have been called into requisition may be found in a fact just communicated to me there is it appears a family now residing near richmond who have a black cat nicknamed snowball which during sowing time every morning punctually and dutifully presents himself to his owners for the purpose of being fastened up by a cord near the spot where the peas or other seed may have been newly sown and whilst thus keeping guard woe betide any bird that might attempt to commit a depredation within puss's reach End of chapter twelve chapter thirteen of the book of cats this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox org recording by ellen preckle the book of cats by charles henry ross chapter thirteen mention has already been made of a cat concert in paris but we should not forget that we once had an english actor of the name of harris who took part in the entertainment given by foot at the little theatre who was called cat harris in consequence of the talent he displayed in imitating the mewing of the feline race he burlesqued scenes from italian operas and probably at that time the squalling of a cat was thought to be a very severe satire on the foreign singers only a year or two ago however i remember a music-hall singer since dead who sang a song called the monkey and the nuts he being dressed something like a monkey with a peculiarly comic mewing and jabbering chorus the since popular perfect cure is the air of this song slightly altered in the same way that the whole hog or nun is altered from love's young dream the imitations of the singer i allude to i think his name was mcgowan were very good and there was no occasion for him to tell you which was meant for the monkey and which the cat by no means superfluous information sometimes when a young gentleman gives his notion of the voices of popular actors 
By the way, do any of my readers remember the great von Joel's celebrated plaque purd and trush, and how hard it was occasionally to tell which was to trush or which was to plaque purd? In talking of a cat's fondness for fish, I might also have mentioned the great liking these animals seem to have for the end of asparagus, which I often have observed them devour with great eagerness. Talking of fish-catching, an officer on board an Australian packet tells me that he has seen a cat watch for hours on a windy night for flying fish, which jump on board if they see a light. From the same source I have learned some curious facts relating to puss and the sea. There are, he says, generally two kinds of rats on board a ship one kind going out, another coming home. While we were in the East India docks, the rat-catcher caught twenty-five rats in his traps on board our ship, which we purchased and let loose in a malt bin, extending the width of the ship. A cat which we put among them killed all the brown rats, but did not touch the black ones, of which there were three. When she came in contact with a black rat, she drew back, and made no attempt to harm it, although the black rats were much the smallest." Our ship, coming home from Sydney, was swarming with black rats, but I never knew a cat to kill one, or even go near it. The reason of this I cannot explain. I have seen a cat imitate a monkey in climbing up a loose-hanging rope. Of course it took longer time to do it, but it did do it in the end. Aboard ship it would seem sometimes as though Pussy required to have all her nine lives at her disposal, and yet runs some risk of being killed even then. Upon the vessel in which this gentleman served there was a black cat that had lost its tail in rather a singular manner. A squall came on one night, and I gave the order to let go the main-top gallant halyard. The cat was in the coil of rope, and in whizzing through the leading block the rope cut off its tail. She remembered the place which she had found so dangerous, and could never afterwards be induced to venture abaft the foremast. In Sydney we had hauled out from Campbell's Wharf to the stream, previous to sailing next day for England, and found, when the men had gone to bed, that the tailless black cat was missing. It could not be below, as the hatches were battened down. About three a.m. next morning the two men who kept anchor watch heard a piteous cry at the bows, and, looking over, saw a black object clinging to the chain cable, trying to get in at the hawse-pipe. One of them lowered himself down by a bowline, and handed up poor puss in an awful plight. She had swum off to the ship about three hundred yards. It took three or four days of nursing before she recovered, but she got round at last and remained in the ship for more than five years afterward. Sailors have the greatest objection to a cat being thrown overboard. The captain one day found a cat sitting on his chronometer in his cabin, and in a passion flung the cat into the sea, although this cruel act was protested against by the man at the wheel and other men at work on the poop, who said that we should have an unlucky passage of it. This proved to be the case. We lost three men and a boy, besides our jib-boom and four-top gallant-mast, and we also ran short of water. All this the sailors, they were north countrymen, ascribed to the cat's murder. As a rule, sailors treat cats well, as they are sources of great amusement on board. One of the boys once took a cat to the fore-royal masthead and left it there. In about half an hour it was on deck again. It came down backwards, crying pitifully all the time. It never allowed the boy to touch it afterward. The same gentleman tells me that in Coburg, Canada West, he knew a widow lady who had a cat two feet in height, and beautifully marked. It was supposed to be a cross-breed between a wild and a domestic cat. His youngest brother had often ridden on it when eight years old. It was very docile. It had been fed highly when young, and never showed the least desire to hunt mice or birds or to leave the house. 
with regard to the origin of the name cat and nine tails referred to in a former chapter a writer in notes and queries says as there appears to be some uncertainty about the number of cords or tails attached to this whip it may be a question whether like its namesake the animal it did not originally commence by having only one tail and in course of time or fashion increased to nine the number of lives proverbially allotted to our domestic friend pussy according to the talmudists Macoth three ten the jews in carrying out their sentences of scourges employed for that purpose a whip which had three lashes jan's arch biblica page two forty seven and it is stated in the merlinus liberatus or john partridge's almanac for sixteen ninety two that in may sixteen eighty five dr oates was whipped and had two thousand two hundred fifty six lashes with a whip of six thongs knotted which amounts to thirteen thousand five hundred thirty six stripes sir john vanbrugh moreover in the prologue to his play of false friend written a d seventeen o two alludes to this scourge in these words you dread reformers of an injurious age you awful catanine tales of the stage in james's military dictionary the cat etc is described as a whip with nine knotted cords with which the public soldiers and sailors are punished sometimes it has only five cords the following passage occurs in mr sala's waterloo to the peninsula a dutch king they say introduced the cat o nine tails in the british army ere the nassauer coming the scourge had three thongs there is a little story of feline affection for which i should have found a place in an earlier chapter a lady had a cat which she called the methodist parson it used for years regularly to go away every sunday morning and return to its home on the next the monday morning it was never known to miss for a series of years going away on the sunday morning except upon one occasion when it stopped at home on the sunday and went away on the monday morning after this it never returned in the same lady's house upon a certain occasion for some reason or other the water was turned off it was in the evening and she had the tap of the water butt turned on with a tub under it thinking they would get water when they wanted it the family went to bed forgetting that the water tap was left turned on in the course of the night the cat came to the lady's bedroom door making a great noise and mewing her husband got up several times and drove it away but it returned again and it would go to the corner of the stairs then turn round as if to see whether he was following it at last he followed it downstairs and found the whole of the lower premises inundated the water having been turned on from the main here too is a facetious story which should not be omitted one night some hours after a certain family had retired to rest there arose a most extraordinary and unaccountable noise in the lower part of the house had thieves broken in if so they must have been very noisy thieves and quite careless as to the noise they made you can imagine paterfamilias sitting up in bed and listening with suspended breath materfamilias suggested that he had better get up to see what was the matter paterfamilias of the contrary opinion and inclined to wait a while and see what happened next then a group of white figures with whiter faces at the head of the stairs and the mysterious noise below growing louder and louder but the explanation of all this was simple enough when some venturesome spirit summoned up courage to creep downstairs and inquire into the cause the servant when she had gone to bed had left a strong brown jug on the dresser with a drain of milk in the bottom of it after every one had retired puss commenced prowling about and attracted by the milk in the bottom of the jug put her head into it now though the top of the jug was wide enough for the cat to put her head through it was not so wide but what it required a slight pressure for her to get her head into it 
When the milk was lapped, however, she could not get her head out again, for it required someone to hold the jug and enable her to do so. In the meantime, all being in bed and asleep, the cat, in her terror, jumped about, knocking its head with the jug on it, against the tables and chairs and upon the kitchen floor. Hence the alarming and unaccountable disturbance. I clip this from an American paper. During the progress of the war, I was sitting one day in the office of Abel and Company's wharf boat at Cairo, Illinois. At that time a tax was collected on all goods shipped south by private parties, and it was necessary that duplicate invoices of shipments should be furnished to the collector before the permits could be issued. The ignorance of this fact by many shippers frequently caused them much annoyance, and invoices were oft-times made out with great haste in order to ensure shipment by boats on the eve of departure. A sutler with a lot of stores had made out a hasty list of his stock, and gave it to one of the youngest clerks on the boat to copy in due form. The boy worked away down the list, but suddenly he stopped, and electrified the whole office by exclaiming, in a voice of undisguised amazement, what the dickens is that fellow going to do with four boxes of tomcats? An incredulous laugh from the other clerks was the reply, but the boy pointed triumphantly to the list, exclaiming, That's what it is. T-O-M-C-A-T-S. Tomcats. If I know how to read. The entrance of the sutler at that moment explained the mystery. Why, confound it, said he, that means four boxes of tomato catsup. Don't you understand abbreviations? Here is a bit of my own experience. I once had in my possession a very lifelike engraving of a remarkably ugly bulldog, which hung in a frame over a piano in the drawing-room. With some surprise I noticed upon several occasions that a favorite cat would climb upon the top of the piano, and sitting close underneath the picture, fix its eyes upon the dog's face, and putting back its ears, remain thus, with a wild and terrified expression, for as long as an hour at a time. This was remarked by other persons in the house, and we could not in any way satisfactorily account for Puss's behavior. Two dogs formed part of the household, and with these she was on friendly terms, and they, being of a very meek and harmless nature, she treated them with contempt as a general rule, boxing their ears now and then when their presence annoyed her. We came to the conclusion, however, that she must have taken the picture for another dog of a different and higher order, more terrible in its motionless silence than if it had growled or barked ever so fiercely. Its eyes were drawn in that particular angle, which made them seem to be fixed upon you in whatever part of the room you might be in. Many of us recollect in our childhood some gaunt-featured oil-painting, with hungry eyes, which thus pursued us. I remember one in a scrapbook, which it wanted some courage to face all by oneself when twilight was gathering. With much of the same shrinking dread Puss seemed, whilst hating, to be unable to break the spell this picture had over her, to the contemplation of which she returned again and again, though frequently sent away. During the time that we noticed this conduct on the cat's part, she was with Kitten, and when the four kittens were born they were dead, and one of them, strange to say, had a bulldog-shaped head marked almost exactly like the picture. I need not tell a kind master or mistress to use every precaution when drowning a cat's kittens to keep their mother in ignorance of the fact. It can easily be imagined that the poor creature will be in great distress if the slaughter be committed before her eyes, and I know of a case where the cat, having found her young ones which had been drowned and thrown carelessly in a corner of the yard, brought the bodies back to her nest, and mewing and licking them, seemed to use every endeavor to restore them to life. A friend of mine, too, once passing along the bank of a river one moonlight night, found a cat mewing piteously among the long grass at the water's edge. 
he came to a standstill a dozen yards from the spot and looked on curiously at sight of him the cat turned round and came running to his feet looking up appealingly into his face and running back to the waterside and then back again to him seemingly to be entreating his assistance presently the moonlight showed him three or four kittens being borne away by the stream and crying in small weak voices for their mother's help he did everything in his power to reach them but they were too far away from the bank and very soon they came to a place where the current was stronger and swept them out of sight the mother's cries were then most heart-rending and he was unable to induce her to come away indeed having taken her in his arms and carried her some distance she struggled and fought violently to regain her liberty and ran back again to the water's edge this took place at some distance from any habitation but he concluded that somebody must have thrown the kittens into the water and that the cat had followed them and seen the deed done there are some children who will not cry however much they are beaten it is as difficult to make a cat cry out when you chastise it it will shrink sometimes growl but rarely cry yet when beaten by another cat it will howl loudly a dog on the contrary very often cries at the bare sight of a whip and screams at the lightest blow some people will say that all cats are thieves i will not deny that a good many are indeed so are dogs neither will steal much if they are well fed as they only take food when they are hungry here however is a plan by which i think you can generally ascertain whether or not a cat is of a thievish disposition give the cat a piece of meat an inch square and if he is a dishonest rascal he will not lay it down on the floor to pick it up again as is the usual way with his species but keep tight hold of it with his teeth and jerk it down his throat sometimes using his paws to prevent its falling there is one ridiculous accusation brought against poor pussy which i have not yet referred to namely that she is in the habit when the opportunity offers of suffocating young babies by sucking their breath now since the world began i beg emphatically to state no baby was ever so suffocated and i say this in the face of numerous newspaper paragraphs and a thousand old women's stories for instance the annual register january twenty fifth seventeen ninety one says a child of eighteen months old was found dead near plymouth and it appeared on the coroner's inquest that the child died in consequence of a cat sucking its breath thereby occasioning a strangulation my friend mr burroughs surgeon of westburn park place who is a great lover of animals gives me this note it is quite impossible for a cat to suck a child's breath as the anatomical formation of the cat's mouth would prevent it no doubt in some remote country places among the ignorant a popular superstition to that effect may exist but when a child has been found dead from suffocation in many cases the cat may have lain on the infant's mouth in the cot or cradle near the fire for the sake of warmth not with the slightest criminal intent of course but purely for the sake of obtaining the latent caloric from the warm body and clothing of the infant who would probably not possess sufficient muscular powers to disencumber itself or even to make any resistance but it is not only in remote country places that the superstition prevails but here in london amongst most of the upper middle classes and after all are not more ridiculous notions to be met with every day only a few months ago a lady was seriously informed by a poor woman in a village near bath that a mother should never cut her child's nails before it is a year old she should always bite them otherwise the children would grow up thieves in ireland the following cure for warts is practised by even the most intelligent classes take a small stone less than a boy's marble for each wart and tie them in a clean linen bag and throw it out in the highway then find out a stone in some field or ditch with a hollow in it which rain or dew may have lodged such stones are easily found in rural districts and wash the warts seven times therein 
and after this operation whoever picks up the bag of stones will have a transfer of the warts here again is a little bit of devonshire folklore which has its believers when you see the new moon in the new year take your stocking off from one foot and run to the next stile when you get there between the great toe and the next you will find a hair which will be the colour of your lovers this must be rare sport when there is snow on the ground there is also a vulgar superstition to the effect that a cat left in the room with a dead body will fly at and disfigure the face of the corpse some of my readers may remember the old man's death in bleak house and how the cat was carefully shut out of the room where the body lay from what i recollect cats are not great favourites of mr dickens though dickens dogs a small collection from his canine heroes published some years ago showed him to be a great lover and close observer of that animal pope says but thousands die without or this or that die and endow a college or a cat the latter case however is rather rare i should think when pussy's good master and mistress die the wide world is often enough left for it to roam in at its will seeking its living as it can a wide world full of cruel kicks and cuffs justin's cat was lucky to die of old age in a good home and have such fine epitaph written over his remains worn out with age and dire disease a cat friendly to all save wicked mouse and rat i'm sent at last to ford the stygian lake and to the infernal coast a voyage make me prosperine received and smiling said be blessed within these mansions of the dead enjoy among thy velvet-footed loves elysium's sunny banks and shady groves but if i've well deserved o gracious queen if patient under suffering i have been grant me at least one night to visit home again once more to see my home and mistress dear and purr those grateful accents in her ear thy faithful cat thy poor departed slave still loves her mistress e'en beyond the grave stray cats i'm afraid have a bad time of it before they find a new home cats were recently said to be in great demand in lucerne in switzerland and to be selling at a high price in consequence of a malady which had greatly thinned their numbers according to the account in the newspaper the head of the animal swelled rapidly the cat refused all nourishment and very soon dropped down dead it is true that in some quarters of the globe the feline race is still held of some value vida lady duff gordon's article in macmillan's magazine which gives us a glimpse of a strange superstition in thebes she says do you remember the german story of the lad who travelled um das grüseln zu lernen to learn how to tremble well i who never grüselte quaked before had a touch of it a few mornings ago i was sitting here quietly drinking tea and four or five men were present when a cat came to the door i called bis bis and offered milk but puss after looking at us ran away well dost thou lady said a quiet sensible man a merchant here to be kind to the cat for i dare say he gets little enough at home his father poor man cannot cook for his children every day and then in an explanatory tone to the company that's ali nasiri's boy yusuf it must be yusuf because his fellow twin ismain is with his uncle at negade mirkrisulta i shuddered i confess not but what i have heard these things almost as absurd from gentlemen and ladies in europe but an extravagance in a kuftan has quite a different effect on one in a tailcoat what my butcher boy who brings the meat a cat i gasped to be sure and he knows well where to look for a bit of good cookery you see all twins go out as cats at night if they go to sleep hungry and their own bodies lie at home like dead 
meanwhile, but no one must touch them, or they would die. When they grow up ten or twelve, they leave it off. Why, your own boy, Achmet, does it? Oh, Achmet? Achmet appears. Boy, don't you go out as a cat at night? No, said Achmet tranquilly. I'm not a twin. My sister's sons do. I inquired if people were not afraid of such cats. No, there is no fear. They only eat a little of the cookery, but if you beat them, they tell their parents next day. So-and-so beat me in his house last night, and show their bruises. No, they are not afrites. They are Beni Adam. Only twins do it, and if you give them a sort of onion broth and some milk the first thing when they are born, they do not do it at all. Omar professed never to have heard it, but I am sure he had, only he dreads being laughed at. One of the American missionaries told me something like it, as belongs to the Copts, but it is entirely Egyptian and common to both religions. I asked several Copts, who assured me it was true, and told it just the same. Is it a remnant of the doctrine of transmigration? However, the notion fully accounts for the horror the people feel at the idea of killing a cat. Ah, heaven help those whom we love and cherish when we are dead and gone, the soft, delicate hands that never were made to work, the gentle hearts untried, the pretty, thoughtless heads pillowed so softly, slumbering so placidly, all unconscious that there is a rough, unsympathizing crowd surging round the castle gates, whose hoarse murmur has never yet reached our darling's ears, and our dumb pets, where shall they find a home and kind hands to wait upon them? It's a thousand times better when we die that they should die too, and you, whose roof has sheltered a cat, should you change your home and be unable to take the creature with you, would act a more humane part by having it killed at once than leave it to the questionable mercy of the newcomer. The too often carelessly uttered words of, oh, the cat will get on well enough, have sealed the poor dependent's fate, and it has been left to shift for itself with what fate its late owners have, but rarely troubled themselves to inquire. What fate would many of us meet with were it not a helping hand stretched forth in time of need? To how many of our poor brothers and sisters is the help never tendered? There is a hospital for dogs, which is, I am told, in a flourishing condition, and a lady of the name of Dean established a sort of asylum for lost cats at Rottingdean, in consequence of the large number which she saw lying dead upon the beach, and, indeed, offered premiums to anyone who would bring animals of the feline species to her city of refuge. But such kind friends are scarce, and Pussy, going upon her travels, will find many dangers upon the road, and but few doors open to receive her. Therefore, in conclusion, I would advise all cats to stay at home when they have a good home to stay at. One word, too, I would fain to say to those who do not like cats because they do not know them, having long observed these animals carefully, and I sincerely believe without prejudice, I am sure that when kindly treated they will be found gentle and attached, and little, if at all, inferior in intelligence to their much vaunted rival the dog. One last word to those who have followed me thus far. I hope I have not been very prosy, and I hope in the somewhat large collection of cat anecdotes here brought together, the only one worth the trouble of relating, has not been omitted. If this has been the case, allow me to assure you it has not been, because I have spared any trouble in gathering together my materials. The End End of the Book of Cats by Charles Henry Ross